Christians versus Pharisees, choosing sides and how to fight for them in the Mormon Civil War. Episode 11C, Take Back Control, the shared eternal core of the general authorities and the pseudoscientific loon bats. Welcome back, intrepid listeners. In this mini-series 11, I am making the strongest case that I can for the need for radical reforms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints if it is to survive the next five years in my country and the next ten even in its strongest heartlands without falling below thresholds of numerical decline in active members it can never recover from. We are probably already there in most of the UK and Europe, but I don't want it ever said of me that I didn't try while there was still a chance for change. I'm also mapping out exactly how to do this, by using the Church's own scriptural constitution, canonised in the Doctrine and Covenants. The systems of common consent accountability that give us the right and regular opportunities to vote to release and replace the incompetent leaders killing the Church, and the separation of powers Church discipline authority given in section 107 which teaches how even a local bishop can disfellowship or excommunicate them, including the president of the church. In episode 11a, we mapped out the landscape of dysfunctions that are causing the largest exodus of members and failure to recruit replacements for them the church has faced since it nearly fell at the first hurdle at Kirtland in response to Joseph Smith's financial deceptions nearly two centuries ago. I itemised how the LDS Church today is doing all 17 of the things Jesus excoriated the Pharisees for doing in his day, as he led a transformative revolution of the religion they were screwing up royally. In episode 11b, we focused on overall strategy, with a five-point philosophy for reform. Number one, softly, softly sucks. Number two, saviour profits never happen. Number three, activism works. Number four, Mormonism already has the tools to heal itself. And five, it's now or never. And we reviewed how the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants explain at length how assertive and vigilant democracy is how God wants secular governments and his church to be run, and how in the Pearl of Great Price we are taught that God's heaven is also a democracy, not a dictatorship, where we freely discussed, debated and voted for the plan of salvation we thought was best and would consent to go through. I also started to navigate through the global headline-grabbing horrors of kidnapping, torture, abuse, murder and financial scams that have become an ongoing parade of embarrassment for the church as members take the nonsense too many general authorities have been teaching and tolerating for decades literally and it inevitably leads to appalling outcomes. We started with Avraham Gileadi, one of the September 6 who was quickly reinstated in membership and as a teacher at BYU, 
who has since trained a whole movement of Latter-day Saints to believe his nutty interpretation of the book of Isaiah, pointing to a Davidic servant saviour figure, who is meant to come now to prepare the way for the returning Christ. So far, this has led directly to the kidnapping and rape of Elizabeth Smart by a man believing it was him, and a woman and her brother a few months ago to abandon their families and kidnap her 16-year-old son and try to raise him off-grid in Alaska because they are convinced that he is the Davidic servant. Avraham Gileadi is just one of a growing and increasingly influential community of loon bats and pseudoscientists doing their best to liven up the utterly boring snooze-fest the current clique and culture of general authorities have made of what should be the most exciting and interesting religion on earth. The church members have been raised to expect world-changing drama on a much bigger scale than the announcement of two-hour church and tinkering with missionary age thresholds in their lifetimes. So not surprisingly, they have therefore started to take matters into their own hands. They are now freelancing fulfilment of their overclaiming patriarchal blessings and the rhetoric from the apostles and the correlated teaching manuals that prepped them for apocalypse. So, this episode is all about meeting the rest of the crazy gang and working out where their ideas are coming from and who is really running the LDS church and its big ideas and political and social campaigns. Let's take back control from all of these official and unofficial leaders and make Mormonism Mormon again. A classic case of this phenomenon in Latter-day Saint world of these fundamentalist and amateur celebrities replicating the local ministers of the LDS church who are winging it based on their own ideas and assumptions, mostly untouched by the steadying hand of rational thought or relevant professional education and qualifications, and reinforcing each other's madness and echo chamber, was the March 2019 Eternal Core Conference. With the mission statement, quote, exploring God-centric mental health, close quote, the Eternal Core Conference on the 29th and 30th of March at Little America Hotel in Salt Lake City was a who's who of Latter-day Saints feeding the pseudoscience and hysteria that eventually led the LDS Church and the state of Utah to declare pornography a public health emergency and declare all their teenagers and young adults who have totally normal hormone turbocharged obsessions with sex and masturbation and pornography to be addicts who will bring down civilization. Funnily enough, Hormonal teenagers obsessed with sex and working out what their genitals can do don't seem to have stopped humanity from progressing for several hundred thousand years so far. In a nutshell, my point in this episode is going to be that this rapidly growing movement in the American LDS heartlands that regularly spills out into the international church of therapists and parenting gurus claiming to offer Mormonism-friendly, faithful, 
but also professional and science-based approaches for church members in how they guide their children and anyone with mental health and relationship challenges is completely integrated into the mainstream church now. It isn't a sideshow. Several years ago, the church made what should have been a wholly positive, radical change in its policies and practices to stop expecting unqualified amateur clergy to fix everyone's relationship and mental health problems, and instead refer them to professional therapists, and gave them permission to use fast offering funds to pay for this if members cannot afford it themselves. The harmful mental health impact of serving a mission has become so widespread for missionaries returning early or just trying to process what they experienced after serving the full 18 months for women or two years for men that bishops are now told they have an automatic allowance of funding for six sessions of counselling for returned missionaries if they want to use it. So, a huge reservoir of trust, clients and money have become available to build a career and a business around as an LDS therapist, even though they are often completely unqualified to be treated as trustworthy experts in the fields of parenting, counselling and mental health. Even though their systems, practices and philosophical foundations are often very obviously unscientific, unprofessional, and not even Mormon kosher doctrinally. All these people have had to do to be treated as trustworthy experts and authoritative influential guides is tap into the anti-science and anti-secular rhetoric all Latter-day Saints have been raised on, particularly the constant literal demonization of the quote philosophies of men and, quote, worldly norms in wider society, as if that makes them inherently untrustworthy or dangerous and deceptive, part of Satan's conspiracy against the faithful. All these people have to do is present themselves as the completely religiously faithful insiders who one is led to expect and trust as the only alternative and safe option to the constant paranoia about anyone in the therapy and psychiatry professions who doesn't believe whatever the Mormon doctrines are this week. They basically get carte blanche, a free pass. In their simple, intellectually infantilized binary state of mind that never allows for complexity, nuance or healthy skepticism, about the claims people make if they are Latter-day Saints. Typical LDS members and leaders love it when they can find anyone with what appears to be worldly expertise or professional status who says something that seems to validate LDS doctrines and worldviews. This is in part because of our desperation to be accepted by mainstream society, while at the same time demonising mainstream society as something we must always be different to and in conflict with. This love-hate relationship with societal approval is one of the many exhausting paradoxes we constantly flip-flop around with in our Mormon mental gymnastics. 
we love to find something scientifically accepted in mainstream society proving that our weird religious beliefs are true because in reality just believing or having a spiritual witness of something alone is not enough to convince most normal people that our religion and its specific truth claims are true. So, secular authorities get quoted regularly in talks, including by general authorities in the past, although they tend more in recent years to just quote each other. A lot of the meaty general conference talks of the past by big beasts like Boyd K. Packer would include a quote from something they had read in a newspaper, or by a Christian theologian or apologist like C.S. Lewis, where something they said, often quoted out of context, matched the ideas and terminology of the Mormons and made us all feel validated. Look, even these apostate Christians and secular journalists and physicists and social scientists know that we and our prophets are right about this thing. We really do have the obvious truth about everything in our church. Even these people can see it. But because this all happens at a shallow level, cherry-picking quotes for a talk rather than delving deeper to check if these secular or non-Mormon religious experts actually mean what they said in a way that seems to validate our beliefs, there is no culture in the church of fact-checking checking whether these people are regarded as mainstream or credible in their fields by their peers. I explored this in episode 11b regarding Avraham Gileadi. Because long-dead BYU professor Hugh Nibley was impressed by him when he was a student and a young lecturer, and because he has published some books and studied in Canada with a leading religiously conservative evangelical professor. The wider community of biblical scholarship doesn't seem to mention him and his ideas of the end times Davidic servant that he presents as the most important message of Isaiah and the Book of Mormon anywhere. All he has to do to get a devoted and in several cases dangerously fanatical LDS following is declare himself to be a leading scholar in his field and a faithful Mormon and they trust him as if he is the prophet, even when he basically teaches that he and they are better at understanding and interpreting the scriptures than the president prophet of the church. If it was just a matter of interpreting esoteric metaphorical prophecy scriptures from the Bronze Age in a particular way, it wouldn't be particularly harmful in our real lives what these people claiming faithfulness and expertise think and teach, although it quickly becomes very impactful indeed in some areas, like whether or not God wants you to kill LGBTQ children or people who take their dog for a walk on the Sabbath. But when the self-proclaimed experts are telling everyone that pornography use and being gay is clinical addiction, that you should parent your children with ruthless hyper-control and torture, that if you send your teenage sons on their expensive course, they will cure them of masturbation for the rest of their life in just two months, that your physical heart is literally controlling your body, your emotions, 
and your compassion rather than your DNA and your brain, it really matters. Every bishop and parent paying these people to put their normal children and vulnerable mentally ill ward members through counselling and therapy and reform regimes based on delusional pseudoscience and spiritual-sounding superstitious mumbo-jumbo given credibility because it sounds vaguely similar to LDS concepts and jargon, are a clear and present danger to those children and vulnerable adults' safety. They are a clear and present danger to their immediate and long-term mental health. But this is going on right now in almost every one of the 30,000 LDS congregations around the world. These pseudo-scientific crazy people and con artists have been allowed to write and run the programs of the church's own addiction recovery program. As I will be proving in this episode with specific examples from the Sons of Helaman organization, they are literally among the employees and other counsellors and therapists working for the church running the addiction recovery meetings in the wards and stakes, or given clients by the church in the church's own family services program. They are personally targeting parents and LDS bishops with direct advertising and special discounts, and being given clients by them paid for by the fast offering resources, simply on the basis that those desperate parents and bishops feel warm and fuzzy about these apparently orthodox and safe heroes offering simple solutions to the intractable problems in their families and wards that they feel completely unequipped and untrained to help or resolve. And the endorsement and integration of these people making a fortune from the Latter-day Saints' real or artificially generated anxieties, depression and mental health challenges goes right to the top. The people we are going to get to know better in this episode, like Tom Harrison and Jody Hildebrandt and others like them, are reported to have had access and meetings and influence on the bureaucrats and the general authorities deciding and publishing church policy and programs. And if all that wasn't enough, Even though some of these people were already in the national newspaper headlines and being arrested for their crimes and abuses of clients endorsed and paid for by the church by October 2023, actual President Nelson, in his one talk in the October 2023 General Conference, single-handedly guaranteed that the Mormon lambs will continue to line up to be slaughtered by them and pay a lot of their own and the church's money to these dangerous parasites for the privilege. You couldn't make it up. At the most basic level, the foundation of the money and power these imposters and pseudoscientists are able to take from Latter-day Saints is the idea that non-believing, non-LDS psychiatrists, counsellors and parenting experts cannot be trusted by church members, because they are highly likely to tell you your church and its teachings are actually the cause of your problems, not the solution for them. 
So part of your healing requires that you stop believing the messages from your religion, telling you that some behaviours, like masturbation or looking at pornography, are so sinful that they are second only to murder in seriousness. That if you have discovered your church leaders are lying thieves and you don't want to be in their church anymore, then that seems eminently sensible, rather than a clear and present threat to your well-being and marriage and a satanic deception. Those pesky, fully qualified and experienced therapists have the annoying tendency to tell people experiencing gender dysphoria or religiously induced anxious perfectionism about whether all their thoughts are pure enough and their sleeves the right length and whether they can ever forgive themselves for drinking that cappuccino that they are completely normal and there is nothing wrong with them, thus undermining the religious control tactics of the church. In reality, there are quite strict rules and ethics for properly supervised professional secular therapists to work within a client's religious paradigms and to respect their boundaries and work around or within rather than against them. But I've never heard anyone say that at church, except once by an actual trained therapist and from my mum, who was a professionally trained relationship counsellor in her later working years. Her training taught this principle very clearly, and she was required to be willing to counsel same-sex and unmarried couples with the same respect as married heterosexual couples, whatever her religion's beliefs about each relationship. So, if, like the Scientologists and other cults do, Latter-day Saint leaders are telling their community of millions of people that they can never trust a normal professional counsellor or psychiatrist, who are they meant to go to for help? All Latter-day Saints have left is their totally amateur, always male, priesthood leaders in their bishoprics or state presidencies, or the psychiatrists and therapists who claim to be faithful church members that state presidencies and bishoprics are now told by the church to refer you to and pay for. This has created an unregulated sector of LDS therapists worth millions of dollars every year. And if you create a completely unregulated or very lightly licensed sector of therapists able to make millions of dollars with a large captive clientele religiously and financially obliged to use your services, and trust you completely, what on earth is the inevitable outcome of that conflation of opportunities for mayhem going to be? Mayhem, of course, a free-for-all of often unregulated, unsupervised, self-appointed experts feeding at the trough of an unlimited supply of clients and money. Let's watch the current president of the church despite months of headline-grabbing evidence that this whole system may not be a great idea, double down like never before on this foundation of their opportunity to exploit the Latter-day Saints. You might have expected a responsible leadership, seeing where all this is very publicly heading, to have issued stark warnings in General Conference to parents and bishops 
about very carefully checking the professional training and accountability of the experts they choose to trust with the most high-risk and sensitive aspects of their entire roles. But instead, we got this in his Think Celestial talk. Obedience paves the way for a joyful life for you today and a grand eternal reward tomorrow. The Lord's perspective transcends your mortal wisdom. His response to your prayers may surprise you and will help you to think celestial. Consider the Lord's response to the prophet Joseph Smith when he pleaded for relief in Liberty Jail. The Lord taught the prophet that his inhumane treatment would give him experience and be for his good. If thou endure it well, the Lord promised, God shall exalt thee on high. The Lord was teaching Joseph to think celestial and to envision an eternal reward rather than focus on the excruciating difficulties of the day. Our prayers can be and should be living discussions with our Heavenly Father. As you think celestial, you will find yourself avoiding anything that robs you of your agency. Any addiction, be it gaming, gambling, debt, drugs, alcohol, anger, pornography, sex, or even food, offends God. Why? Because your obsession becomes your God. You look to it rather than to Him for solace. If you struggle with an addiction, seek the spiritual and professional help you need. Please do not let an obsession rob you of your freedom to follow God's fabulous plan. Thinking Celestian will also help you obey the law of chastity. Few things will complicate your life more quickly than violating this divine law. For you who have made covenants with God, immorality is one of the quickest ways to lose your testimony. Many of the adversary's most relentless temptations involve violations of moral purity. The power to create life is the one privilege of Godhood that Heavenly Father allows His mortal children to exercise. Thus, God set clear guidelines for the use of this living divine power. Physical intimacy is only for a man and a woman who are married to each other. Much of the world does not believe this, but public opinion is not the arbiter of truth. 
The Lord has declared that no unchaste person will attain the celestial kingdom. So when you make decisions regarding morality, please think celestial. And if you have been unchaste, I plead with you to repent. Come unto Christ and receive his promise of complete forgiveness as you fully repent of your sins. As you think celestial, you will view trials and opposition in a new light. When someone you love attacks truth, think celestial and don't question your testimony. The Apostle Paul prophesied that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. There is no end to the adversary's deceptions. Please be prepared. Never take counsel from those who do not believe. Seek guidance from voices you can trust, from prophets, seers, and revelators, and from the whisperings of the Holy Ghost, who will show unto you the things what ye should do. Please do the spiritual work to increase your capacity to receive personal revelation. Paying tithing requires faith, and it also builds faith in God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Choosing to live a virtuous life in a sexualized, politicized world builds faith. So, to recap, your mortal wisdom is not good enough. What God wants for you may seem crazy and nonsensical, but just go with it. Quote, inhumane treatment, quote, and, quote, excruciating difficulties, close quote, can be part of God's plan for you and good for you. Pornography use is an addiction. You should be ashamed of your struggle with an eating disorder or any other compulsion you cannot control because you are being offensive to God. So sort it out now. Quote, if you struggle with an addiction, seek the spiritual and professional help you need, close quote. But it must only come from LDS believers, because any other professionals will expose you to Satan's devil doctrines. Breaking the law of chastity is the fastest way to lose your testimony. So if your children are masturbating, you should totally panic because they are at immediate risk of losing their souls and being lost from your eternal family unless you get them to stop urgently. Ignore any of your loved ones who disagree with any of this. Only listen to us 15 apostles and your spiritual feelings from the Holy Ghost because we will tell you all of everything you need to know. So please bear in mind through the analysis that follows that all these people have been given the opportunity and encouragement to carry on doing what they were doing in 2019 in the clearest possible terms by the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
in his one keynote address at the very latest general conference. The buck stops there. This talk was a manifesto for never trusting or seeking second opinions, qualifications, or accountability from secular professionals and authorities when deciding who not to trust as a psychiatrist or therapist. The only qualification that matters is that they claim to be a believer. Everyone else is literally controlled by Satan and their ideas and professional norms are the, quote, doctrines of devils, close quote. Nice one, Rusty. What could possibly go wrong? This is going to be a long episode, I'm afraid, because these Eternal Core conference talks are no longer available online. So, for the historical record, I want to include as much of their content as is relevant, or it will be forgotten. And this period in our church history, and these particular characters, and what they are teaching, are turning out to be pivotal to the destiny of the whole religion. Most of the coverage of what these characters have been up to, and what it means for us in journalism and the podcasting world, is quite reactionary, and by necessity brief, which doesn't allow for claims made about what they are saying and doing to be thoroughly explored and proven beyond doubt. This makes the coverage easier to dismiss as biased, either defensive apologetics or anti-Mormon propaganda, and the quotes referenced as taken out of context or unrepresentative of the whole. So, my purpose in this episode, as with most of my podcasts, is to be thorough, analytical, fair, and to prove the case I'm making about the big ideas and recurring themes in what these people seem to believe and teach, beyond reasonable doubt, with plenty of evidence. My wife Lynn teases me that I just can't stop being in teacher mode like I am in my profession as a secondary school teacher, and I agree, she is right, and I am happy to own it. My purpose is to be informative and educational which requires long-form analysis and building up a case for particular conclusions. My fellow podcasters have been doing a fantastic job trying to keep up with rapidly unfolding events in the lives of these people and their consequences for the LDS community and institution, and some have referenced and used a few clips from this conference. But I don't think anyone has really explored the content and context and implications of it like we would analyse an LDS general conference. So that's what I will attempt to do here. And my goodness, is it a revealing window into the wider trends in the LDS world that makes a lot of sense of a lot of things in ways I had not fully understood or noticed before. I hope what I share here will also help you to understand all these often confusing interconnections between ideas and influential people going on in our religion, and give you the confidence and determination to take back control of it from these pseudoscientists and loon bats, who the general authorities have handed over far too much control of our religions and family lives to, Although they have recently been thrown down the memory hole, the Eternal Core Conference sessions were all still on YouTube 
at the time of writing and starting to record and edit this episode, and they haven't aged well in the last three years. Speakers include Tom Harrison, who founded the conference and what they hoped would become a growing community of specialists, and all the people in awe of him, like Jody Hildebrand and Tim Ballard and other Operation Underground Railroad operatives. I tried getting to the eternalcore.com website through a link advertising it and a download of Tom Harrison's ebook, but was confronted instead by a remarkably appropriate red alert screen warning, quote, deceptive site ahead. Attackers on eternalcore.org may trick you into doing something dangerous. Close quote. It turns out that never a truer word was spoken. And if you thought you couldn't make that up, and are trying to mentally corral all these people into a zone that isn't entangled with the mainstream church and its leaders, guess who else was speaking at Eternal Core just before Tom Harrison's keynote address? Of course, friends of the show, Emeritus 70 and President of BYU-Idaho, Bruce Hafen and his wife Marie, talking about their Faith is Not Blind book and project and how it harmonizes with the messages of the other speakers. Knowing that Tom Harrison is going to talk after us, all I can tell you is, the best is yet to come. <laughs> we feel really blessed to be here, Tom and all of you. We know many of you, and we honor and respect you for what you're doing and what you care about. Tom has told us about the connection he has seen between the heart-brain connection and our book, Faith is Not Blind and has asked us to try to compare them. It's been good for us to do that comparing. We feel very welcome among you. We feel like we're part of a community, in a sense. The more I listen to these thought leaders, academics, pseudo-academics, and general authorities while researching the content of this podcast, the more I notice how much they are repeating and reinforcing each other's ideas as they riff on themes that have been present in Mormon thought from its earliest days. Also, the hefty chunk of prejudices and paranoia about the modern world and its tolerance and rational, science-friendly intellectualism, which Pharisee Mormons have borrowed wholesale from the American Evangelical Christian Fundamentalists. Having served a two-year LDS mission in the heartland of American politicised, undereducated, evangelical collective madness, awash with speaking in tongues and millionaire televangelists fleecing their flocks and casting out demons in Alabama. I naively assumed my church was one of the few adults in the Christian room and we would never go for that scale of blatant money and demon obsession. How wrong I turned out to be. Mormonism's founders were assertively science-friendly. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young repeatedly spoke about all truth in all cultures, religions, and scientific disciplines being welcome in Mormonism and part of our religion. 
but the church has inevitably evolved from a young, idealistic and forward-thinking modern movement, making Christianity credible in the scientific age of information and archaeology, to a backward-looking conservative movement, seeing itself as the guardian of traditional values under threat from modern developments in tolerance and scientific discovery. This was always going to happen as soon as Brigham Young staged the apostolic coup, making the church a dictatorship of the Q15, and introduced an entirely unscriptural new system of automatic presidency for the very oldest serving apostles, or oldest continually serving apostles when he later tweaked the rules to stop Orson Pratt from rightfully inheriting the presidency. Orson had been briefly relieved of his apostleship when he objected to Joseph Smith trying to marry his wife while he was away on a mission. These scared old general authorities who have forgotten how to keep up with the times and the education of the human species, and the church's anxious apologists like the Hafens, Fair, Ward Radio, Scripture Central, the Interpreter Foundation, and everyone else who keeps losing the arguments for the traditional narratives about the LDS Church and its origins against a tidal wave of rational analysis and documentary evidence the Church used to hide from everyone, have to now perform Olympian mental gymnastics to avoid or discredit a long list of obvious truths. These manipulations and distortions of their own thinking and the solutions they are selling to church members to keep them unquestioning and faithful, end up boiling down to a short list of three strategies. Number one, only expose yourself to, or trust, evidence, arguments, and information that reinforces your preconceived and carefully conditioned faithful belief system. Distrust, avoid, and don't read or listen to any other evidence or arguments. Number two, emotional blackmail. If you expose yourself to the dangerous, faith-threatening information and rational arguments, the risk is too high that you will lose something far more important than truth and reason. Your unquestioning loyalty and trust in the prophets and the institution of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the ordinances and eternal marriage and ticket to heaven it alone offers you. They insist that if you study hard enough and persist, you can, of course, refute all the criticisms and arguments against the Church's truth claims about itself, but that most people are too weak to do that properly. So, they shouldn't try or it will break their testimonies rather than saving them. Better to just trust the church leaders and church-approved apologists that they know what they are doing and saying and have already checked it all and found the critics of the church's claims are all wrong and evil and motivated by satanic stuff like fame and money. Number three, science sometimes gets things wrong, so don't trust any of it. We will tell you that of course lots of it is credible, but since we cannot say exactly what will trip up your testimony or turn out to be improved upon by new scientific discoveries, it is far safer to just not trust any of it 
and instead only trust church leaders to know what the truth is because they will be proved right in the long run, eventually. And if they turn out to be wrong, no biggie. You proved your loyalty to them, and that's the important thing. You don't actually need answers to questions, just faith. Ignorance is bliss, and much less disturbing. We hear this repeatedly in general conference talks now, and also the many talks General authorities have been giving to the young people of the church in global broadcasts and BYU speeches. But it is also constantly reinforced in these even less careful and more speculative conferences and events and organizations run by celebrity thought leaders in the larger LDS world with much more unhinged assertions made away from the church's correlation systems. And since it is becoming clear they are all reading each other's speeches and books and quoting them back to each other, it is impossible to see where each idea they are latching onto and repeating and evolving into their big solutions for everything in the face of the faith crisis epidemic actually began. Did it start with the self-important, delusional and undereducated amateur general authorities living in a very unrealistic social and intellectual LDS bubble? Or did these ideas begin with the self-important, delusional and undereducated amateur therapists, apologists, visionary preppers or politicians living in a very unrealistic social and intellectual LDS bubble curated by the general authorities? Wherever it began, the overlaps between what the general authorities and the freelance crazy people are teaching as the truth, with a capital T, are getting more conflated every year. Here are a few clips of the speakers at the Eternal Core Conference, reinforcing the messages about prioritising belief and feelings over rational analysis and evidence, discrediting science, and pseudo-scientific energy healers teaching that we get diabetes because anxiety vibrations collect in our spleens, and lower back pain happens because we are not in the place our destiny wants us to be in our lives, with diagrams from Chinese medicine and what look like medieval alchemists mixed up with Mormon ideas about spirit bodies and clearing our negative energy, like Scientologist Dianetics. Cynical, anti-religious critics point out that if you normalise in religion, believing unbelievable things with no supporting evidence, you become much more vulnerable to believing any other nonsense that is told to you with similar conviction and mystical woo claiming to explain everything in your life. You want to see that in action. Watch these eternal core presentations. Perhaps starting with Tony D'Angelo, talking about how your spirit influences the mind and body from a Chinese energy medicine perspective. Hi, how are you guys doing? Okay, so, so far this has been amazing. I've been really excited about everything I've been hearing, especially Tom's this morning. Actually, he was talking and I'm like, oh, there went everything I was going to say. 
Energy medicine is a vehicle, especially medical qigong, is a vehicle that helps us to understand the body, the energy body. Because when we heal, we work with people, we're looking at their physical, their emotional, their mental, their spiritual body, and their causal body. Does anybody know what that means, what causal body? Causal body is cause and effect. Meaning, your environment, something affected your environment. It changed your vibration, your energy, your spirit energy. And then it changed the way you see and think about it. Then that in turn changes your emotions. Now I'm frustrated. Then that frustration will settle in my body somewhere. Where can it settle? Well, in Chinese medicine, we have what they call the five elements. One element is, is wood. Wood is liver. Liver has to deal with anger and frustration and rage. That's what we call an acquired emotion. The, the congenital emotion would be compassion. Uh, and so what happens now is now it's affected. Well, if I hold on to that too long, well, I'm going to get addicted to the one uh, addiction that is, usually affects the liver is alcohol. So I try to use the alcohol to suppress all that anger because implicitly I don't remember what it is. I just feel it all the time. Heart is our long-term memory. So everything that's ever happened, we have our long-term memory of our heart. There's another organ in the body that connects with long-term memory. It's called the limbic system, and that's in the brain, the unconscious. Well, guess what? When they're not, they're not having a good time, they're arguing. Now we have disconnection between mind and body. And then in the elements we have fire, we go to the next element, which would be spleen, pancreas. That's associated to worry, regret, remorse. So people who worry a lot are going to have a lot of pancreatic issues, diabetes, um, digestive issues, the ability to assimilate food is going to be off. So all those are going to be dealing with your spleen. Then we go into kidney, I mean, I'm sorry, lungs. Lungs is metal. Yes, ma'am. And then you can look at the secondary organ, which would be stomach, which is the inability to digest. Not only food, but information. Do you have a problem with memory? Do you have a problem with digesting the memory? Do you have a problem with digesting information that you're getting on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you feel too much is coming at me? I can't stop, 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 stop. That can be all that, that organ alone, okay? Is that good? Lung is another organ where we look at that grief, that sadness, that shame in us, okay? And so the, one of the ones we use to suppress that, as everybody knows, smoking, right? We smoke to suppress the anger, and we suppress that sad, sadness within us. Kidneys is the organ of fear, abandonment, betrayal. We also have self-esteem, self-confidence. Okay, I don't have that self-confidence. How can I get where I need to get? How do I do what I need to do without the confidence? I get that all the time. I have lack of motivation and lack of confidence. Okay, well, we have a spleen deficiency. So this is where we have to start to look at how we function as an individual every day. Everything, every connection, every person, every place, everything that we connect to has a vibration. And those vibrations are going to remind us of all those functions in our body. And then those functions are going to rise up in our spine and communicate to our brain. Our brain's going to go, all right, what is it? Okay? So we have to move. And this is what all the ancient art of Qigong is about. It's about tissue manipulation. Because if we know that trauma is trapped into our bodies, we have to release that. Just like Ben hit me with the stick. I know my arm hurts, but every time I think about Ben, my arm hurts. He calls me up, I'm like, man, my arm was feeling good until you called. That's because that memory is imprinted into the tissue. So we have to remove it. We have to remove that energy in the tissue so he no longer has that connection. How do we do that? Well, do we believe everything is vibration? 
Okay, so if we look at fire up there, fire deals with the small intestine, triple warmer, heart, pericardium, and that's a creative cycle. And we go to earth, which is stomach and spleen. And then we go to metal, which is large intestine and lung. And then we go to water, which is your, uh, the bladder and kidney. And then we go back to wood, which is um, gallbladder and liver. So any of those organ dysfunctions would play a part in that. For example, the best one, if we can look at, wood destroys earth. Earth insults wood. This is a good one. This we see all the time. My liver and my anger, I'm so upset. So we can actually say that this body that we have is a vessel that holds the spirit, correct? And we can say that with specific concepts and principles that we have within ourselves. So we have our, we have our root. If we look at the root, it says root. Everybody can see that? Root stands for our foundation, our belief system. How many things in your life right now are part of your belief system that does not serve your true self? That's a big question. How many things in your belief system right now are causing issues in your tissues because you were born into a concept that you didn't have a choice for and now you're stuck in it and you do it just because that's what you're supposed to do but it doesn't resonate with who you are? Let's create deficiency massively. And belief systems are really, I mean, your belief about what money is and how it works for you, that's a belief system. So if, you have any, you know, if you're not having a hard time making money or supporting yourself with that, you have support issues within yourself. Can you support yourself? If you can't support yourself energetically and emotionally, you're sure not going to be able to support yourself financially. And that has to do with root. Root is all of my beliefs and how I believe who I am and, I, and, and that concept. And everything I learned from all my teachers, my guides, my uh, parents, everything, all that has a big aspect of that. And we go into the sacral. Sacral chakra is about how I connect to those around me with the belief system I have. Oh, that makes sense now. Because that reminds me of all those crappy people I hang around with. And I can't seem to get rid of them. It's because I have, I'm connected to them because that's my belief system. This is why it's important to clear, unravel, and dismantle all those beliefs, all that energy, so we can become more connected to who we really, truly are. In Chinese medicine, we have a, a spot right back here. It's called Mingmen. It's called the Heavenly Destiny Path. How many people have lower back pain? Yeah, well, guess what? You are not on your path. How many of you that raised your hand think you should be somewhere else? It's just about everybody that rose their hand, right? It's because you are not in alignment of your true self. You are not in that alignment of what that is. Okay? Excessive Oh, so empath is someone who I feel everybody's emotions. Okay, so you walk into a room, it's like, and then we take them on as our own, which is even crazier. So let's say I walk in a room and you're really upset, and now all of a sudden I start feeling upset. That would be a sign of an empath. Okay, so I feel other people's emotions. And I do, I am an extreme empath, but I manage it. I don't want to feel all your stuff. You guys are awesome, but no. <laughs> Right? I have to balance that. And in order for me to go in and work on a client, and then they have all these deficiencies and emotional problems, I have to be in a certain spot. I create a sacred healing space. I invite divine light. I create my body to become a conduit of the divine energy. And I create a sacred space around myself. I create one around them. I create a vortex in the earth to suck all the negativity into it. So I can be responsible, and then when I'm done, I seal it. I give them back what's theirs as light and return mine as light back to me. 
So I, can un I, I know how to balance that space, which is really important. Tony D'Angelo describes himself as having the superpower of an extreme empath, able to tune into the emotions and thoughts of anyone in a room if he doesn't intentionally shut them out. Tom Harrison in Visions of Glory described being able to go into a room of people during his three near-death experiences and know and feel the entire life and secret sins of the nurses and doctors around him usually very sex-obsessed about all the secret affairs he claimed they were having with each other without actually checking with them later. Jodie Hildebrand and Laurie Vallow claimed to be able to discern in other people the scale of evil spirit possession they were in and who needed torturing or, to Laurie, killing because they were too far possessed to unpossess themselves without extreme interventions. Also based on what Visions of Glory describes about Tom being able to see the evil spirits fighting to possess anyone doing anything at all naughty, like looking at porn. You can see how they would all see a natural fit with these ideas extrapolated from superstitious and unscientific Chinese energy medicine describing catastrophic physical and mental health sickness resulting from normal life experiences that need purging from the mind and body. In finding and presenting these connections with what seem to be ancient and respected healing traditions at conferences like this, they give their own irrational and oversimplified beliefs additional credibility in a confident flurry of psychobabble Jodie Hildebrand's presentation was all about her unique, simple, and single, quote, brand new, unquote, solution to all the different things therapists are trying to heal, from gender identity to depression. It is a concept of extreme openness, which she calls humility and honesty, in which even children must open up to her as the therapist about every thought, action, or emotion. So I am so excited. Like, I could barely sleep last night because I get to come and talk to you about God <laughs> and how God is, um, how we need to bring God back into the mental health field because he is the, thing, the, the person, the being that heals us. And so let me tell you a little bit about what I've been doing. For the last 20 years, I've been trying to figure out how to help my clientele. I've been working with tens of thousands of people for 20 years, and I've been asking God about how to help heal them from this array of mental and emotional illness, okay? So all of us know that depression, anxiety, suicidality, all these presenting issues and symptoms that come into your office or in your families or maybe or even inside you, and so I have been on this journey trying to understand how to use principles that are God's in helping people heal. So let me back up and talk to you about when I was a child. So I was raised, I was the sixth of seven children. I have one sister. So I had all these brothers ahead of me. And my parents were both emotionally shut down. Now, I didn't know that as a child, but now I do. They were emotionally completely not available for me or for any of, our, of the other children. And so chaos went on in our house a lot, 
and none of us were really allowed to emote other than to get angry um, or to just stuff it. And so I learned how to be really nice. I learned how to be kind and helpful and gracious and good, right? So some of you who are clinicians are probably like, whoa, she's setting herself up for addiction. Sure enough, I ended up with an eating disorder, right? I started trying to control everything because I had no outlet to emote my emotions. I had nobody there to validate me and say, yeah, that makes sense that when your brother, you know, puts you into a pretzel, that that would hurt and that you would want to tell him stop. You don't like that. I wasn't allowed to do that. So I went on my own journey. I went to therapists and tried to figure out, you know, one, what was going on with me, um, and two, how to heal it. And unfortunately, and I would say inadvertently, because I met some lovely people, and what they did is they validated what I'll call my victim. They reinforced me to stay where I'm at and said, yeah, you have every right to feel this way. And I didn't know any better. I thought that that would help me get better, is if they said, yeah, that this is reasonable why you feel the way you do. And I didn't have anyone, at least I didn't hear it in my head, give me a transitional bridge to move over into what I now know is truth. So I would leave my therapy sessions and I would feel heard but I still go back into my eating disorder behaviors and control and being really nice and helpful and friendly. I didn't really heal. My soul wasn't healing. So I went into graduate school um, sick. And I learned all the, the principles in graduate school, and I went out to work with drug addicts. It was my very first job. And as I sat across one of my very first clients, he presented um, in a very, what I'll call, adulating way. He was very narcissistic. And he had a tragedy happen to his son. And he became really aggressive with me when I would invite him to look at his own behavior. He's like, listen, I just had this tragedy with my son. My son is super sick. And this isn't about me. This is about helping my son get better. And I'm like, well, what if your son doesn't get better? And he went into this place that I will uh, introduce uh, originally called distortion. And I'm going to talk more about distortion this, this afternoon. He went into a place of distortion. And he would get angry at me, which is, this is part of his distortion. He'd get angry at me. He'd want to blame me. He'd want to blame his wife. He'd want to blame God. He started blaming all these people. And what I learned as I worked with him is that as I gradually started confronting him with three principles, this is what I learned. Teach him how to be responsible for himself. Teach him how to be honest and teach him to be humble. So I started working with him. So what are we not healing from? When people come into my office, I get a spattering of diagnoses, right? Those of you who are clinicians, you have a spattering of diagnoses. Out in the world, out in the community, we have everything from suicide to gender confusion to depression to anxiety to um, addictions, all different kinds of addiction, control issues, divorce, right? On and on and on. It seems like the world's coming, across, coming apart at the seams. Okay? This is what I'm experiencing that we're not healing from. Abuse, resentments, fears, feelings of uh, worthlessness, entitlement, depression, anxiety, defensiveness. Okay, and I could, I could make another, you know, four lists of things that we're not healing from. Here's the key. This is the key. Responsibility. Responsibility. I am responsible for three things. I've learned this, over, like I said, over the last decade plus. I am responsible for my own perceptions. It's what Shannon was just talking about. It's spot on what she was saying. I'm responsible for my own perceptions, which means my thoughts. And then when I perceive, 
I then feel emotions. And when I feel emotions, it's because of my perceptions. And when I perceive and then feel emotions, then I then choose to behave. And so I'm responsible for that whole process in everything, even when I'm depressed. So when I talk to people, they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's nice and good, but I have depression. And I'm like, okay, wait, stop. You missed what I just said to you. <laughs> and then they'll say to me, are you suggesting that I'm responsible for my depression? And I'll say, yes, you are. That's one thing. If you don't know me, I'm really blunt, <laughs> really direct. Some people hate that. <laughs> Some people love that. It's like, tell me more. That feels right. Because I'm not suggesting that you're a bad and unworthy person. I'm suggesting that you don't have the skills and the tools to really understand how to apply these principles that are being governed by your choices. So there's four principles I want to hone in today on. Choice, honesty, responsibility, and vulnerability, which means be open, be teachable. I'm hoping that everybody in this room is vulnerable today, that they're open, that you're willing to consider what I'm saying because this is a brand new modality, not that responsibility is a new concept, but the way I'm angling it towards mental health is brand new. So this is the key. The therapist must bully them into taking total personal responsibility for all of their, quote, thoughts, feelings, and behavioral choices, close quote, by entirely accepting and agreeing with the therapist's assumptions about what the truth is, even if their analysis is all wrong and crazy, as it was in her mostly man-hating and husband-blaming worldview that shattered several marriages she was counselling, and led her to torture her niece Jessie, whose mother handed over legal guardianship of her to Jodie after being convinced that this was the only way to rescue her from her normal teenage issues. Because when I'm not honest, responsible, and humble, I am then disconnected. And disconnection manifests like this. Control, uh, aggression, uh, anxiety. These presentations where the person is either unknowingly or deliberately not being willing to take responsibility for those three, those three principles. Their perceptions, their emotions, and their, their behavioral choices. So I'm either in a relationship or I'm just in a dynamic. Dynamic just means that you and I are, are talking, but we're not connecting, right? Everybody here knows what it feels like to connect with somebody. I've been talking to many of you over the course of this morning and this afternoon, and numerous of you, you walk away and I'm like, whoa, that person's connected. They're connected. You can feel it, you can see it in their eyes, they're connected, they're present. And the way that you are connected, I guarantee you, is that you do your very best job at using your choice in honesty, responsibility, and, and you're, you're open. So my first relationship is always with myself. So I am responsible right here. Another thing I learned, the only thing that I can control are my thoughts, my feelings, and my behavioral choices. That is it. I can't control anything else. And my guess is that many of you have been in relationships or child-parent relationships, so you're like, oh, I wish I could control them. I wish I could get them to do what I want them to do, and you just can't. But when you try, you then disconnect from them 
because you go into a controlling posture. You go into a, a dynamic instead of a relationship with them. So people will say, well, well, if I love this person, then how do I get them to, and I'm like, can you hear how you're going down control lane? You can't get them to. Your job is to speak the truth to them about their responsibility, which is they're responsible for their own perceptions, their own feelings, and their own behavioral choices. So no more of this. You made me do this. Because of you, I feel. If you wouldn't have done that, then, I'm, then I wouldn't have done this. All of that is called distortion, which means distorting the truth. So here are my potential relationships or dynamics. I would invite each of you to look at, your, at yourself and see how, how connected you are or how disconnected you are to these areas and then everything else. Okay? So, so relationship is about connection and connection. The fruit of connection is being honest, responsible, and humble. That is the way that you have the outcome of connection. You can't just be connected because you want to. And you can't be connected because you have lots of money or you're really nice. I talked to a lot of women, they're like, but I'm so nice. And I'm like, and you're very controlling. And they'll be like, nobody's ever said that. I'm like, well, let me help you see how when you try to not be honest with your boyfriend or your spouse, you're controlling his perception of you. Well, I don't want him upset. It's like, that's the control. Right there. That's not nice for you to lie to him. Now this is like, whoa, I've never even heard of that. So everything comes down to your choice. I love choice. When I finally figured out, and again, this took a lot of years. This wasn't just, you know, bing, I got it. But when I finally figured out that my healing resides inside me, oh my goodness, I was like, I want to tell everybody. I want to tell everybody, like, guess what? Like, you, you don't need all these extra, you know, uh, interventions if you understand about the power of choice and the power of honest, responsible, and humble. So you either get to choose truth, which is honest, responsible, and humble, or you choose something called distortion. Let's look at truth first. So truth does incorporate being honest, responsible, and humble. And when I say that, you're like, oh, what does that mean? I think I'm honest. If you want to learn what honest, responsible, humble means, listen to my podcast. Come to a class. Let me teach you. Let me hone you in on the nuances of what I'm talking about. Because it is hard work to be honest, responsible, and humble. It is hard work. And the masses don't live that way. So truth is this. Truth is lasting. This is the, the characteristics of truth. Truth is about things that are lasting, things that are eternal, things that are objective, Things that are factual, unchangeable, and constant. This worldview, which Jody said is new and effectively the one therapy fits all solution for all mental health problems, has been taught to others and presented as a parenting philosophy since 2015 by Ruby Frankie in the Eight Passengers podcast, sharing how she has parented her six children, guided by Jody. This clip of Ruby Frankie shows clearly how she treated her two younger children worse than she treated the other four. I find this extremely difficult to watch as a mother, as a human. She took Christmas from her two youngest children while they had to watch the other four 
have Santa visit and open their gifts. And instead, she and Kevin gave her two youngest the gift of truth because they're so selfish. Knowing people these days, I don't know if people are going to, you know, how they're going to respond. Um, so Kevin and I, we have two, well, we have six children. The two youngest are showing long patterns of selfishness. They have been showing um, through their choices, their unwillingness to repent, their unwillingness to feel sorrow over some pretty egregious choices that they've made. So Kevin and I have decided that we are going to give the gift of truth to them this year for Christmas. We are going to give them the gift of boundaries and we're going to give them the gift of repentance. So, so we sat down with them and we, we told these two um, what our expectations were again. And we let them know how, deeply sorrowful we've been because of the choices that they've been making and how it's affected their teachers at school. It's affected their peers. And we just laid it out very clear. And we told them that this year they are not going to be visited by Santa. Christmas morning, their four older siblings will be getting Christmas presents to open and that they will have the gift of love from their dad and I. So up until now, I was really hoping that like keeping them home from school and wiping the floorboards would like really bring pain. Like, like, Oh my gosh, I really want to change this behavior that I've been exhibiting. And it didn't, it didn't They like, it wasn't painful for them. They're like, Oh yeah, we get to stay home from school and clean floorboards. This is kind of fun. It's like, ah, so, you know, they've had these visceral experiences, uh, you know, and they haven't, they haven't affected them. It's because they're so numb. And so the more numb your child is, the greater experience, the big, the bigger the outcome, they need to wake them up. <laughs> you're, you're not going to push a boulder with just your hands. You need some real leverage. And the biggest leverage that a little child has is probably Santa Claus. And so I, I expressed to them that I love your soul more than anything in this world. And I literally would do anything to to invite you into repentance and I know parents say that I'll do I would do anything for my kid but really what I think most parents are saying is I would give anything to you if I I would pay any price monetarily I don't know how many parents are actually willing to put any boundary in place that would bring a turnaround that would really bring repentance A public backlash against their extreme punishments of their children that was mentioned in Amongst the Happier Fluff led Ruby and her husband Kevin to take down the Eight Passengers website. But Ruby rebooted in June 2022 with a new podcast with her by now business partner Jody, promoting the same ideas as part of their connections business, offering therapy and training for therapists. As the BBC article about this says, quote, recent posts on an Instagram account the two share, called Mums of Truth, offer parenting guidance, urging followers to avoid, quote, coping strategies, close quote, to distract from the, quote, pain and discomfort of reality, forward slash truth, close quote. It is not clear what this reality or truth looks like, 
but the coping strategies they list include social media, exercise and socialising. Close quote from the BBC. The Connections project did not last long, although its website is still live. Ruby and Kevin Frankie separated. Their older children responded to the abuse by leaving and becoming estranged from Ruby and trying to get the police and social services to rescue their younger siblings for years. While most church members internationally had no idea this was going on, the world of social media has been all over it for years. Doing far better due diligence regarding the harmful messages being taught in these parenting podcasts by Latter-day Saints with a huge online following than their priesthood leaders, including Callum Markey, an English social media commentator from Middlesbrough with an awesome Geordie accent and nearly half a million followers. I'm going to play a few clips from his coverage, mainly because after my episodes about Brad Wilcox speaking to the youth of Sunderland Stake, it has been far too long since we had a Geordie accent on the show, and there is nothing quite like one of those to get you grounded and centred and blow away the cobwebs of pretentious nonsense. But also because this guy is like YouTube Sherlock Holmes, he is so thorough in his detailed research and analysis that I am just in awe of the skill set he usually wastes on trivial online drama between trivial online celebrities. And most of all, because once again, I cannot re-emphasize enough how devastating to the church's inept and shonky PR efforts all this is. There are only about 20,000 active members left in the British Isles, and their impact on the national media is negligible. But this one podcaster regularly got 300,000 views for his episodes covering Ruby Frankie and Eight Passengers. If the LDS Church is even trying to get anywhere in this marketplace of thought, it has to realise pronto that radical reforms and reality checks about what it is up against are going to be required urgently to try and rescue its reputation. And the UK and global members and leaders living in their mediaphobic bubbles of ignorance need to wake up to the fact that they are entirely wasting their time thinking they are protecting the good name of the church by anxiously policing the opinions expressed in gospel doctrine lessons and excommunicating me for calling the apostles' names they have thoroughly earned because they have much bigger fish to fry. And if they would just listen to us, they might find out what they are and how to fry them. The general authorities, or whoever is really running the church, have just set the cat amongst the pigeons by calling Aaron Sherinian an overt LGBTQ ally as the new president newsroom, to the completely understandable shock and confusion of the uber-conservative apologist LDS shock jocks, which I will be covering with glee in the next episode 10D. So, maybe someone somewhere in the great and spacious ivory tower is starting to wake up to this reality. Way I, Marky man, you're a canny lad. 
Look, I'll be honest, throughout the years I've made plenty of videos on eight passengers and within them videos I've said myself and you guys have said in the comments, I wonder what it's going to be like when the kids get old enough to realise what's going on, when they become adults and they kind of have a voice of their own and they can speak out against the parents, like will they actually do that? And to be honest, I didn't think it was really a possibility. I mean, we've seen it so many times in the past where people just grow up in really negative environments and they are almost brainwashed to think a certain way, even if 99% of the population thinks that's a negative way of thinking, because they've been raised in that, they're gonna think that. Well, it seems like this situation in particular couldn't be any further away from that, because in today's video alone, we're gonna be talking about Ruby's siblings still coming out and speaking out publicly against Ruby, but also, Ruby's own daughter, Shari, has came out and spoke out against Ruby. Like, I didn't think this was going to happen, but it has, so let's get into it. But recently, this became more than that, because Ruby, the mother, and one of her friends, or colleagues now, I guess, Geordie Hildebrand, created a Facebook group called Mums of Truth, where they give advice to mothers. Which was already a recipe for disaster, when you bear in mind everything we've just mentioned, but it was even worse than we could imagine, because the advice they were given these mothers was genuinely dangerous. They would say things like you should change your children if they are gay, or if they are trans, or if they just don't follow living in truth, as they call it. They said people don't have a right to medical care, which already is mental. They've even given advice on how you can just be more controlling with your kids, not giving them any privacy, saying that they're not allowed to have any privacy, telling them like what shows they can watch, what devices they can use, who they can be friends with, just everything. But within the last couple of weeks, there's been a bunch of rumours that Ruby Frank and Kevin Frank had actually separated and Kevin had moved out of the house as well as Chad, which is their sons. And then on top of that, we had Ruby's own siblings coming out publicly and expressing their thoughts on connections as a group. So as you can see, this connections group or this mums of truth group whatever you want to call it seems to have separated the family quite a lot and you can't really say it's surprising because the stuff they talk about on that page is so dangerous and just downright disgusting now a lot of people think the big reason why this happened is because of ruby's partner or whatever you want to call her the person who runs the page with her Jordi Hillbrand is a very, very sketchy human being. She's a marriage counsellor who has a lot of negative reviews from a bunch of people dating back as far as like eight years. So she's been doing this for a while. And it got that bad that Jordi nearly got a license took off her permanently and was put on an 18 month probation period where she had to be overlooked when she was talking to clients. This being because she has a reputation of trying to ruin marriages instead of trying to help people. She'll make the marriage seem a lot worse than it is, make up rumours, make up lies to try and get you to book more appointments because you need her help more. Also, Jodie actually posted a video on the Facebook page where she's answering a question by a person who studies at BYU, which is actually where Kevin works at, but Jodie kind of goes out of her way to mention that people who work at BYU should have this responsibility of living in truth. Listen to my language closely. The people who choose to attend and the people who choose to teach at Brigham Young University also have committed and promised to live in truth, which means to live principles such as honesty, responsibility, and humility. And so here is this person saying, I'm at this institution and I'm not finding people who are living principles of truth. I attended Brigham Young University and I remember feeling that same way, not being able to find students or faculty who actually 
lived and used their agency according to principles. And I know she doesn't say anything directly about Kevin, but firstly, why does she mention people who work at BYU when that was never part of the question at all? And secondly, why would she mention people who work at BYU in a negative way when she knows that Ruby, who was her partner on this page, her husband works at BYU? I don't know, to me, the more I hear Jodie and what she has to say, it becomes a lot more possible that she has kind of brainwashed Ruby in a way, and she is kind of like the kingpin of this all, and Ruby is almost her puppet, and she is enjoying watching his family tear to pieces. Like, that doesn't surprise me. And Bonnie also mentions medication, which is interesting, because Ruby has spoke up negatively about medication many times in the past. She has said that people don't have a right to medical care. She has also made a video responding to a mother who was talking about her daughter being prescribed antidepressants by her doctor, and she is wondering, is this okay whilst living in truth? To which Ruby answers the question by saying that there are a bunch of other ways that you can help this scenario by just living in truth. She was able to manage her emotions without using uh, medication, and she was able to manage it instead by using principles of truth. Which is obviously mental, because if you've been prescribed antidepressants by a doctor, like a professional, it's obviously for a reason. Like, I would trust them over Ruby Frank is wrong. In all fairness, Geordie appears to have started off her career with noble intentions, but those intentions are all called into question by past and current professional peers whom I've sought insight from, who see her methods and manners as emotionally and mentally detrimental, even abusive. Her license was revoked for a time due to violating client confidentiality. Ruby, who is known by many for her role as a YouTube influencer and a person trying to help families succeed at home, is a gifted and intelligent woman, but something has changed. For example, Geordie and Ruby seem to think themselves synonymous with truth, always written with a capital T, which makes it appear that there is some type of god complex going on, and this gives off the warning signs of a cult-like mentality. Geordie and Ruby frequently make judgments about a situation without knowing or seeking to know enough of the details, and have been known to reflect truth by saying, I feel sorry for you, it is obvious that you are lost, your anxiety, depression, suicidal tendencies are a result of not taking responsibility for your feelings, your children have no right to privacy, I recommend you kick your daughter out of your home for her rudeness and take her off your health insurance, regardless of her serious heart condition, etc. The tone and way these mothers treat people and give advice commonly goes against nearly every principle taught in professional psychology, counselling, teaching, even most religious teachings, and mentoring. It is painful to watch and heart-wrenching to read about, knowing that desperate or fearful followers may very well follow this frightening counsel. I feel obligated to warn those investigating connections or mums of truth to be aware that these women have become master manipulators, who are expert at pulling vulnerable individuals in, making them doubt themselves, their spouses, children, siblings, etc., until they one day realise their own family relationships have disintegrated. Please look closely at the current lives and families of many of those involved and talk to their family members, immediate and extended, before jumping into any counselling or training with them. So it has been a few months since I last spoke about connections, mums of truth, eight passengers, whatever you want to call it, and let me tell you, that's for good reason. And no, it's not because they stopped spewing the shit they were spewing before and they've improved and kind of realised what they were doing was wrong. That definitely isn't the case. But in fact, it's the opposite. It's the fact that they've carried on spewing the same shit they've been spewing the whole time. They've been speaking out against gay people, trans people, saying if people are suicidal, it's their fault and they should take some responsibility and just all the other shit they were spewing the whole time. And to be honest, 
just didn't want to speak about it anymore. Like, there's only so many times I can react to the same horrible people saying the same horrible things and giving my opinions because, I mean, let's be honest here, my opinions aren't exactly going to change. So I kind of just stopped speaking to them because I was like, you know what, the situation's not going to change. But that was until a couple of days ago because Shari Frank, who was actually Ruby Frank's daughter, has spoke out in a podcast about the whole situation and why she stopped speaking to her mother. We'd film going to the store. We'd just like always kind of film everything. Um, but over the years, like, I, I got used to it more. It's like, yeah, this is, like, our job. This is, like, our job, she says, at the age of 12. Well, I guess she said she realised it was a job within a few years, but she had been on camera since she was 12 and then realised, oh, actually, when I'm on camera, this is me working. Which I think goes without saying, shouldn't be the case. When I was in 10th grade, so I was, like, 15, um, my family joined a group um oh here we go connections like a mental health kind of like a self-help group basically like it was great at first like we were um learning like a new like learning lingo for stuff and we were able to communicate in ways that we understood each other and then as like the years progressed um this group became more extreme and they began to equate like their curriculum and their teachings kind of with the gospel in a sense. Yeah, I guess what she's saying here is that the group did just kind of start off as like a group to help people and mothers more specifically. And then as time went on, it became less of like a conversation group and more of Ruby and Geordie are just telling you how you need to live your lives. I remember going into it and one of the people had said to me, like, I don't think you have a lot of like empathy for other people and a lot of compassion for other people. Like towards you individually? Yeah. And so I was like, okay, like I'm gonna work on it. I'm gonna work on it. And so I would say my prayers at night and be like, Heavenly Father, like, why don't I have empathy? Like, Aww. please help me to like have it. And so I look back at like a lot of the things that I prayed for at that age and I like feel bad for myself that mm -hmm. I was like so concerned with like, help me be clean, help me be empathetic like I don't know what to do and then I feel like I would work on it and then I would go and talk with these people and they'd say you're still not getting it mm -hmm. and I would just like lose my mind over like what else am I supposed to do like I was always focused on the negative things that I was doing mm. um and had to report on those and so I started to notice those things in like other people as well I would look at somebody and say your eyes look dark like you've probably, you're hiding something, you're, I make snap judgments about people and I'm like, crap, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so it's like, it's taken a lot of work and still is to like undo that kind of like snap judgment mentality. Ah, oh, bless her, man. Like, I was very judgmental. I was like, wow, she's wearing that. Like, she's going to hell. Mm -hmm. Wow, she's wearing that. God's so mad at her. Or, so like, I was still very like judgmental about people like That's that. That's literally how Ruby speaks now. And they would talk about, you know, God is so gracious and kind and i'd say well they've got it wrong like some things within my family were happening that i started to question like i don't know if this is okay like i don't know if god would actually support this like is this really the gospel and so for a long time for like seven months of my freshman year in college i was just debating i was like i don't know what to believe and by the way that must be such a hard thing to do if you grew up your whole life being told, like, this is true, this is how you should live your life, and the other way is wrong, it must be really difficult to kind of think for yourself and be like, wait, is this how I should be living my life, or should I do it the way I feel is right? And she's done it, and I feel like a lot of people wouldn't. Like, maybe if I was in that situation, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know, because I've never been in that situation, but I can imagine that must be very, very difficult. At that point, I was very convinced, like, 
this is too extreme. I need to do something, change something. But I wasn't sure how because, you know, I want to honor my family. We're supposed to honor our parents. And I felt that to disagree with them was sinful um, and that God would be mad at me too mm -hmm. if I did that. Yeah, so as you can see, she's explaining that she did end up coming to the conclusion that these beliefs that she was taught were right were actually too extreme and that she didn't feel like they were right. But obviously going against your parents is always going to be tough. Like this week, it was St. Patrick's Day. I went and got Irish food. Oh. Was like, <laughs> like just like really stupid things like that, yeah. honestly. That it's like, this is, I'm experiencing life in a new way that I haven't before. I mean, can we just get a round of applause, eh? We finally got a good ending. <laughs> For the first time ever, you are watching me talk about eight passengers and you don't want to pull your hair out by the end of the video. I mean, what a day. They will tell this story in history lessons in many years to come. My desire when I was younger, I don't want to say it was selfish, but I was like, I want to get to heaven. Yeah. Like, I. What can I, like, what do I need to do so that I can check the box heaven, yeah. and like make yeah. it to heaven, yeah. And now it's more of like, how can I like maximize the life that I have right mm. now? How can That's I beautiful. live in ways that, you know, we get one mortal life. Like, what can I do to like do new things every day? Like live, yeah. live fully and be able to look back and say like, I don't regret anything. And you know what? That is a beautiful place to leave this video. And this year in 2023, Ruby's 12 year old son, emaciated from starvation and covered in deep lacerations from being tied with ropes and with duct tape still around his ankles, climbed out of the window of Jody Hildebrand's home in Utah where he and his younger siblings were imprisoned and went to a neighbour to beg for food and water. The children have now been rescued and Jody and Ruby arrested and charged with several counts of child abuse. Let's have a look at the ConnectionsClassroom.com website and what it says about what Jody is offering on its front page. As we do, I want you to see if you can guess where we heard all these ideas recently somewhere else. It starts with, quote, Connections is a different modality of healing that psychotherapy cannot offer you. Transform your pain into joy. Choose the life you want to have. Change your confusion for clarity. Does real change seem out of reach? You're a mum who doesn't feel good enough and you're just trying to survive another day with your child. You're a husband that gave up on your marriage a long time ago. You're a teen, young adult who has been paralyzed by anxiety, depression, and addiction. You've gone to multiple therapists for yourself or your child without experiencing any real results. You have the power to choose what the story of your life is going to be. Empower your life with training that is built on principles of honesty, responsibility, and humility. Connections offers training that takes self-improvement to a whole new level. Start empowering your life with these training options. You don't have to be a victim to your circumstances or the people around you. You can have the life you want, but you must dispose of distortions, ugly lies, in order to live in truth, connection, and freedom. Close quote. 
It offers group therapy sessions for just men or just women for $75 a week for three months, which adds up to $1,000, or one-to-one training with Jody for 50 minutes for $181 a session. Three months of that once a week would cost you around $2,500. Apparently, lots of bishops have been spending that much from their fast offering budgets as they referred ward members to Connections and other similar services. As confirmed by Jody's niece Jessie, who bravely shared in episode 1808 of Mormon Stories the torture, interrogations, and intentional physical neglect she experienced when her parents gave Jody legal guardianship of her. Jody's magic formula is to put the entire responsibility for change and healing on the ill person, to demand that they simply wake up to some kind of realization about their true nature, and then with that realization, accomplish total self-control and simply choose to be healed and change all their thoughts, behaviors, and feelings to acceptable ones. This is basically the whole approach of Scientology's Dianetics, where starting as young children, you have radically honest confessional conversations with the Scientology auditor and are ruthlessly challenged to admit all your emotional baggage and problems are not so much your own fault. In their theology, as you pay more and reach higher levels of auditing, you are told that they are the result of possession by disembodied murdered alien Thetan souls, but definitely in your power to change and purge from your being as an act of determined self-will. So, Tom Harrison's visions of glory and Jody Hildebrand's therapeutic models are not new at all. They are basically Scientology for Mormons. The Thetans possessing you in large numbers that need purging through a long process of ruthless interrogation and, if necessary, physical deprivation and an intensely controlled lifestyle of total submission to human mentors, are swapped for Mormonism's evil spirits, the third of the host of heaven who fell with Lucifer and are desperate to possess human bodies if we allow ourselves to give in to their temptations. And to be fair, Scientology did not invent this stuff either. There is a long tradition in Hindu, then Buddhist, and then Christian monastic orders of what is called ascetic religiosity where you disconnect from normal society and live in an intense regime of starvation, flagellation, self-denial of comforts and possessions, and total submission to your gurus or abbots and abbesses. This isn't aestheticism, the philosophy of defining what is beautiful, spelt A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C. A-S-C-E-T-I-C is defined in the dictionary as, quote, characterized by severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons, close quote. Scientology is famously hostile to psychotherapy and psychiatry, engaging in relentless propaganda attacking it as an entirely mistaken approach to mental health and obviously in conflict with their system of evicting thetans through Dianetics to sort yourself out mentally. How fascinating, then, 
that one of the first lines on the Connection website is, quote, Connections is a different modality of healing that psychotherapy cannot offer you, close quote. But there is an even more disturbing and important to us parallel of someone else teaching exactly these same ideas. Have you guessed who it is yet? It's President Russell M. Nelson. Seriously. Just in his latest October 2023 General Conference talk, Think Celestial Alone, he covered pretty much everything on this website's front page, and has repeated it often in his other talks as President Prophet of the Church. He shares exactly the same ruthless, inhuman, unrealistic, and oversimplified belief system. Especially in his talk, Christ is Risen, Faith in Him Will Move Mountains, in April 2021 General Conference, telling people to just believe, and all they need is a morsel of faith and determination to fix anything at all in their lives, before then flip-flopping to teach the opposite, and then back again. Maybe Jody got it from him originally, but there has demonstrably been a codependent meeting of minds between the Pharisee Mormon General Authorities and the community of Idaho and Utah therapists hoovering up influence, clients, and money from their fellow Latter-day Saints, and cheerleading for their own religiously delusional and dangerous distortions of professional psychotherapy. Professional psychotherapy definitely does not want God in the therapy room, telling everyone that having normal sexual thoughts is possession by demons and addiction. The key messaging of President Nelson has been, quote, Transform your pain into joy. Choose the life you want to have. Exchange your confusion for clarity by ignoring every other source of information or opinion in that confusing cacophony out there in the world and on social media that isn't me. You have the power to choose what the story of your life is going to be. Empower your life with training that is built on principles of honesty, responsibility, and humility. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints offers training that takes self-improvement to a whole new level. Start empowering your life with these training options. Close quote. The fees are 10% of your income, plus generous donations to fast offering and most of your spare time for free labor. Philosophically, the perfection now, if you just do as we tell you and realize how easy it is, religion offered by President Nelson and his fellow fundamentalists, and the therapy offered by Jody Hildebrand, are not just totally unrealistic. They are the opposite of Christianity and Christian Mormonism, because they sell the idea that people can effectively save themselves. They don't need grace and won't be offered any. Because their problems and failures are entirely their own fault, Rusty and Dallin and their team keep telling us that if we don't sort ourselves out enough to be celestial now, and he specifies that this means married in the temple and doing all the covenant path things with exact obedience and never doubting any of it, then we have no reason to have hope after we die of anything heavenly or ever seeing our family members ever again 
in trillions times infinity years of our afterlife. And they leave it right there, especially Rusty. Because of Jesus Christ's infinite atonement, our Heavenly Father's plan is a perfect plan. An understanding of God's fabulous plan takes the mystery out of life and the uncertainty out of our future. It allows each of us to choose how we will live here on earth and where we will live forever. Mortality is a master class in learning to choose the things of greatest eternal import. Far too many people live as though this life is all there is. However, your choices today will determine three things where you will live throughout all eternity, the kind of body with which you will be resurrected, and those with whom you will live forever. So, think celestial, carefully considering where each of your decisions while here on earth will place you in the next world. The Lord has clearly taught that only men and women who are sealed as husband and wife in the temple and who keep their covenants will be together throughout the eternities. He said, quote, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise have an end when men are dead." Close quote. Thus, if we unwisely choose to live celestial laws now, we are choosing to be resurrected with a celestial body. We are choosing not to live with our families forever. So, my dear brothers and sisters, how and where and with whom do you want to live forever? You get to choose. Jodie and the people thinking like her and Tom Harrison and the Daybells and the rest have concluded that if you are not willing to play ball and fix yourself to their satisfaction, your life has become worthless that there is nothing unethical about torturing or killing you. You asked for it, just like Rusty's God. Grace is about lots of our weaknesses and failings being beyond our ability to control, so they have to be tolerated, worked around, and forgiven because they can't be changed by our good intentions and human will. The standard mainstream Christian application of grace is that despite your brokenness and falling short of the ideal, if you ask for help, Jesus will rescue you, and you will be saved and have a celestial afterlife anyway. 
Christian Mormonism's greatest gift to that still problematic model, which is ultimately totally disempowering and never elevates humanity above a hopeless or helpless sinner and failure, and encourages the born again to wallow in self-loathing and loathing the whole of humanity as just awful and ungodly, is that it has a bold solution for the best of both worlds. Christian Mormonism says that God gives us grace and saves us, but does it at the same time as still patiently helping us to help ourselves and learn and grow in baby steps well into our eternal lives until we eventually mature and become his equals, not eternally infantilized and demeaned as his rescue pets. Christian Mormonism is staggeringly different to and I believe far, far better than mere Christianity. It sees every person as having divine potential in themselves, not the potential if they get lucky to maybe be rescued by a rather arbitrary divinity. And if they don't get the opportunities to start on that path of development before they die in their short lives here, they will have an eternity to get there later not have their opportunities and potential severed as soon as their mortal body dies. This is arguably the biggest unique selling point of Mormonism. And in his astonishingly willful ignorance of his own religion, Rusty has made it what he called his 100th year of life and still not noticed or understood this. So he's thrown it in the bin and set fire to it. It's sad heaven for you if you haven't got everything together before you croak. I suspect he is about to find out personally what sad heaven really feels like when the Jesus he thinks he is speaking for tells him he never knew him, and Rusty has a dark night of his shriveled soul until some mercy kicks in. Jody's presentation at the Eternal Core Conference in 2019, mainstreaming and normalising her dangerous ideas, that offering empathy for victims of abuse to explain and heal their pain is not helping them, because to really be fixed, they have to toughen up and fix themselves, or be fixed by a brutal regimen. She says that the whole psychiatry and psychotherapy profession has it all wrong, and God has revealed to her the real solution. Just as President Nelson ignores the part member marriages, and messy, unavoidable complications and dynamics of real Latter-day Saints' lives in his simple solutions like Kenya will become a rich country if its Mormons pay tithing, and just choose to believe and get it all right on the covenant path before you die, or you will never see your family again, Jody is totally ignoring the mental illness and depression and other conditions that are genetic or due to hormonal and chemical imbalances, or deep conditioning from childhood experiences that cannot just be magicked away. She says all mental illness is in the conscious control of the sick person to change, just by exercising free will in the correct way. Okay? So, every time I have an experience, which you're having thousands of experiences all day, thousands of them. This morning, um, I got up and um, 
I don't know where everybody came from, but for me, there was about, I don't know, three inches of snow in my car. And I, I'm not a fan of snow. I lived here for 25 years, but then I moved down south, and I'm like, yay, no more snow. And then I woke up this morning, and there was all the snow. So I'm with my hand in my skirt, you know, shoveling the snow off. And I started having distorted perceptions. And I started going away from truth and started going into distortion. And guess what I felt inside me? My soul started getting depressed. My soul started feeling sad. And this isn't fair. And why did these things happen to me? And my gosh, the first time I come back up to Utah County, it's snowing. God doesn't love I mean, all that stuff that I would call distortion. Okay? Or I could look at that experience and say, okay, what's the truth? The truth is that there's three inches of snow on my car, period, the end. So as I was wiping snow off the car, I'm like, oh, it's so cold. And it's like, yep, period, the end, it's cold. That's it, just stay in truth. And immediately, I went back into feeling excited and happy and energetic to meet all of you today. It's that quick. It is that quick. And each of you are responsible to learn these principles for yourself primarily. And then if you have charge over anyone else, children, grandchildren, you know, classes, therapy clients, you have a responsibility to teach them these principles so that they too can be released from what I call distortion. So many of you know this word as shame. I started using the shame word for probably, I don't know, five years, and people were having the hardest time wrapping their head around shame, what shame was. And I was teaching about shame, and I, I went to God, and I said, people can't understand the word shame. Do you have another word? Can you give me another word? And I heard one day, distorting the truth. And I was like, oh, brilliant, distortion. Here's what distortion is. I break it into two groups. This is core. you got to know this. Self-denigrating distortion, self-adulating distortion. Every single one of us goes into distortion. When I was moving the snow off the car, I went into adulating distortion. Like, this shouldn't happen to me. This is unfair. This is not right. You know? <laughs> and because I know this stuff, my soul's like, Jody, stop it. I'm like, okay, you're right. You're right. Sorry. Bad. <laughs> my bad. My bad. The perception that I was going into was angled into distortion rather than truth. So self-denigrating is, it's my fault. Again, it's not fair, but like more of, I'm a victim, it's not fair. Um, I'm stupid, I can't, I'm irresponsible. I mean, you can see how these lists could go on quite a long time. So you need to become an expert at your distortion. How do I help people heal? They come in and they do this. So I am, I've been depressed for 25 years. I'm like, whoa, that's a long time. And I'll validate them and they'll tell me their story. And then I will take that diagnosis and put it over here. And I'll turn back to them and say, okay, you and I need to learn about truth. And you need to learn about the power of choice. And you need to learn about perception and what you're responsible for and what you're not. And you need to learn about distortion. And as I teach people these, th those four core principles, I and they have watched their depression heal. I'd call it miraculous if I didn't know what was happening. So it was all about my perception. 
Perceptions are everything. You get to perceive what's going on every single second of the day. That's why you are responsible for why it is that you are feeling, feeling anxious and feeling depressed. Feeling. It's feeling. It's not I am depressed. It's I feel depressed. Now, can you be depressed in truth? You bet you can. I just ran over cat. It's appropriate to feel depressed. And depressed is a state that I go into and I come out of. You are being asked by your maker to stay inside truth. If you will stay inside truth, you will not become ill. You just, you just won't. Now, I know there's some people in the audience who are probably like, well, I don't know about that. Try me out. You start living in truth. I don't know anybody who lives in truth that is emotionally and spiritually sick. I don't know anybody. I know thousands of people who have done this. My desire is to spread this throughout the whole entire world, to teach as many people and therapists and mental health professionals and, and health professionals who want to start empowering their clients, regardless of where your client has been, if they've had traumas or abuses, they can heal. If they have sinned, if they have been making choices, such as you know, acting out an addiction, acting out contrary to their value system, if that is why they're having distortion, this can heal that as well. And then there's this third category called life. Life just shows up like the cat underneath the car. Who put that there? <laughs> right? Life. So outcomes of other people's choices have affected us. My own choices affect me, and then life shows up. That's how experience shows up. And inside all those experiences, you are responsible every second of every single day to be introspective and pay attention. Am I in truth or distortion? I am not so much now because I've been doing it for 10 years, but I used to say to myself, where am I? Where am I? I'm like, I'm in, I'm in distortion. And then my distortion would say, and I'm staying here. <laughs> I, I have a right to be here. Right? When you're saying that, you're in trouble. You're in distortion. <laughs> that is the message that I want to share with you and just testify. I started making podcasts four years ago, and they are now 23 countries around the world, 700,000 downloads in four years with zero advertising because this message is resonating with people. Those people who want to take their power back and empower themselves to heal themselves, you can do that through living, using your agency inside this place of truth and understanding what distortion is and its vicious attack on each and every one of you and how you can combat it by seeing, okay, is this in truth or is this in distortion? Distortions, characteristics are I'm dishonest, I'm irresponsible, and I'm not being humble. That's how you know you're in distortion. Truth is about I'm being honest, responsible, and humble, and characteristics of truth are also the facts, things that are objective, things that are eternal, things that are everlasting. So you can take any experience and go, okay, where am I? Because there's only two places for you to go. There's not a third option. Thank you very much. So in a nutshell, Jody's solution for all mental illness, addiction, compulsive behavior, or what these people keep calling acting against your value system, which seems to be an emerging euphemism for masturbation with or without porn or doing gay things, is classic Mormon toxic positivity. Stop feeling those feelings and turn it off, as the Book of Mormon musical puts it.
We saw the London production for the third time yesterday, and it just gets better every time. Lock your heart, as they told us at the Missionary Training Centre, while trying to convince an auditorium of thousands of 18 to 24-year-olds at their peak of health and fertility, to simply stop being interested in sex and relationships and quit taking the self-guided tour for two years. Stop being sad or frustrated about anything because your entire emotional range options are binary, happy and perky, or depressed and sick. And if the whole world could just be persuaded to realise that Jody Hildebrand of Mormon Bubble, Utah, has worked out how to fix all of everything by adopting a ruthless concept of constant self-suppression, completely alien to what the masses experience as normal life and psychology, it will heal the world. So you either get to choose truth, which is honest, responsible, and humble, or you choose something called distortion. Let's look at truth first. So truth does incorporate being honest, responsible, and humble. And when I say that, you're like, oh, what does that mean? I think I'm honest. If you want to learn what honest, responsible, humble means, listen to my podcast. Come to a class. Let me teach you. Let me hone you in on the nuances of what I'm talking about. Because it is hard work to be honest, responsible, and humble. It is hard work. And the masses don't live that way. So you can take any experience and go, okay, where am I? Because there's only two places for you to go. There's not a third option. More about that later. Russell M. Nelson has no professional training or education whatsoever in theology or literature or history or anything else relevant to being an expert authority about religion. Hence, his ideas about it are ignorant, full of holes and contradictions and ludicrously oversimplified amateur nonsense. As John Larson said in his recent appearance on Weekly Mormon News Roundup, the last apostle who was a theologian and actually cared about doctrine was Boyd K. Packer. Jody Hildebrand has a degree in English language and literature from BYU, and a master's degree in educational psychology from the University of Utah and was a licensed clinical mental health counsellor, which perhaps indicates how lax the standards are for being a licensed clinical mental health counsellor in Utah, until giving up her licence after her arrest. Her licence was previously put on probation by the Utah Clinical Mental Health Counsellor Licensing Board for 18 months in 2012, when she reported one of her clients a BYU student whose marriage she was trying to destroy, to his LDS church leaders for allegedly being a porn addict, which was totally unprofessional and got him kicked off his course at BYU by the Honor Code Thought Police. Qualification in educational psychology absolutely does not qualify you to be a marriage counsellor or deal with clinical depression and such like and certainly not to create an alternative system to the professional ones to heal all mental illnesses. Jody also presented at the 2017 BYU Women's Conference with Jeremy Levitt, a counsellor for the Sons of Helaman program aimed at curing your sons aged 13 to 24 
of pornography use, masturbation, and LGBTQ inclinations. Jeremy Levitt doesn't seem to be working for them anymore, and he seems to be talking sense and promoting informed and positive sexuality in his contribution to a Choose Recovery Services YouTube channel episode in June 2023, discussing how parents whose spouse has traumatized them with their pornography obsessions need to be careful not to project shame and overreact with panic in response to their teenage children's sexuality. But Sons of Helaman and its founders seem much more problematic and unhinged, in my opinion. After a $150.50 minute orientation meeting, your lucky son will have a weekly group therapy session for $65 and a weekly $30 half hour session with a mentor, usually another young person who has completed the course. So basically, a multi level marketing setup. They market their services specifically toward leaders worried about their wanking and LGBTQ youth. And in their, quote, the devil exposed, close quote, masterclass, are very clear that they also discredit professional psychotherapy and attribute intrusive thoughts and mental illnesses or the normal stuff they label as unhealthy sickness to attacks by actual Satan and claim to have scientific perspectives confirming what prophets have taught about the devil's strategies. Also, apparently, founder Morris Harker is a young earth creationist. He mentions that Satan has been refining his skills, tempting humanity for 7,000 years since the first humans, Adam and Eve. Good morning. I'd like to invite you to a new class that we're doing, a master series of classes that we've been working on for many years. We've refined for those of you who experience temptation, for those of you who experience torment or relationship turmoil. These are three very unpleasant things that most of us experience on a regular basis. Temptation, the unwanted invitations and enticements to behave in ways that contradict our value system. Torment, involuntary thoughts and feelings that increase anxiety, depression, fear, overwhelm, etc. And turmoil, unwanted relationship tension, miscommunication, disappointment, etc. None of us like to experience these things, they create pain. When we turn to the professional psychology world, they tell you very convincingly that these psychological experiences come from inside you. They have been convinced, as prophesied by Nephi, that there is no dark spirit involved in modern human psychology. Second Nephi 28.22 says, And behold, others he flattereth away, and telleth them that there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, therefore there is no devil. And thus he whispereth in their ears. The default conclusion by the scientists is that you are your own worst enemy, a popular idea that completely contradicts the revealed principles provided for us by both modern and ancient prophets. In this workshop, we will be exposing the role the subtle serpent plays in your psychological experience of temptation, torment, and relationship turmoil. 
Along with this, we will be providing carefully prepared and designed tools, weapons, and techniques for responding to these unwanted and intrusive attacks on your spirit. So, like Jody Hildebrand, Morris Harker and his quite large team of other adult therapists have decided to entirely reject the premises of mainstream therapy and psychiatry and take their LDS doctrines from basic Sunday school completely literally. And so the experience of being someone who has their act together in so many ways, but except for that one thing, except for that one thing, all right, and it can drive you nuts. I can't tell you how many times I'm in an intake session with a young man and their parents, I always have the parents brag about the kid in the intake session. The parents just, oh, he's the best. They just go off. The kid's all, ah. And as soon as the, kid, the parents leave the room for a few minutes, they burst into tears. And they go, nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Nobody knows how horrible this is. Okay? And so having my own version of those experiences, it has suddenly occurred to me that I am in the field of psychology. Why don't I just study it? I could just study. Why do smart people do stupid things? That small clip speaks volumes. I think it is one of the most important things you will hear in all the many hours of this podcast. It encapsulates the whole machine of cliché cult control, particularly of the young, through sexual shaming and guilt. As Morris Harker describes, he and all the other predators exploiting the innocent for their loyalty and their money tell people who are fundamentally brilliant, well-behaved, kind people who wouldn't hurt a fly and pretty much always want to do the right things, that they have one thing wrong with them that is so awful it is second only to murder. They get sexually aroused and they masturbate. The one thing isn't any number of one things different for each person, as bishops and apologists and these therapists try to imply with their vague terminology of generalizations. It's all about the obsession with sex, and for the younger kids in particular, this means masturbation. Bishops and parents aren't taking their guilt-ridden teenagers to Sons of Helaman counsellors because they are short-tempered, or they do shoplifting, or hate the poor, or are hypocrites, or any of the long list of things Jesus actually described caring most about. They are all there because they masturbate, like nearly all the other teenagers on earth, and nearly all the adults. It's the one thing and it catches nearly everyone in their trap. Because they are strictly forbidden to do it by the church under any circumstances, they are far more likely to get entangled in a codependent relationship with consuming pornography to break through those inhibitions and meet a basic biological need, rather than dealing with the need without the porn. If the church wants to redeem itself, stop driving most of its teenagers away with totally unnecessary guilt and torment and be a safe place to raise your children in, I suggest it needs to start with this one thing. 
just stop fluctuating between vague and hysterical and tell the kids there is nothing wrong with masturbation without porn. This mini-series is about arriving at the simple solutions for the complex network of dysfunctions killing the church. So there's another one for the shortlist. Most of the other Christian churches worked this out long ago. We are so used to agonising about this stuff and worthiness interrogations of the young, we forget that this is nowhere close to mainstream behaviour in the Protestant world. Worthiness interviews of the young people and scrupulous interviews for temple recommends for any age group were nowhere to be seen in the first century of Mormonism. They are an invention of the 20th century control freak prophets, borrowing the worst ideas from the Catholics, who are similarly notorious for making their members unhealthily sexually repressed and guilt-ridden, and we've all seen what that did to their clergy and retention of their children. Until the fatwa on porn-free masturbation is lifted, these financial and sexual predators and unrighteous dominators in the clergy will continue to descend upon our children like ravening wolves, making them despair and cry and voyeuristically make themselves feel important by offering painful and mostly dysfunctional and ineffectual solutions to that artificially engendered pain. To do this systematically to children is unforgivable. It happened to me in ways I cannot forgive. I had the absolute mildest light-touch experience of these shaming systems, yet looking back on the decades of guilt they put me through in what would otherwise have basically been a guilt-free youth and young adulthood, I was a very good boy, is a powerful counter-narrative to the idea that being raised in the church was a net blessing. I get so angry thinking about it, I come close to just wanting the whole church to burn down and good riddance to it, along with its rampant robbery of the poor and machine of facilitating and covering up child abuse. These arrogant white saviours deserve everything coming to them, and rather delightfully, we have spent this year watching justice finally tearing through their ranks like an avenging angel. And we don't even have to wait till Judgment Day to see the tides finally turning against them. Hurrah! The experience of being someone who has their act together in so many ways, but except for that one thing. Except for that one thing. And as soon as the, kid, the parents leave the room for a few minutes, they burst into tears. And they go, nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Nobody knows how horrible this is. I could just study. Why do smart people do stupid things? It was during that time that I found out that Satan is a good psychologist. Another concept that's not taught in textbooks. 7,000 years of perfecting the art of messing with the human mind. Now, I remember sitting in church settings and I, you hear lots of vague warnings. Be careful, Satan will mess with you. Be cautious, he's going to try to attack you. Okay, that's all fine and dandy, but I didn't understand the mechanics of that. So exactly what is he going to do? Exactly what technique is he going to do? How is he going to attack me? What, how, what form does it come in? 
All of those things were a mystery to me. I didn't understand them. So as I studied it, I went back in time a little bit and looked at, let's look at what's going on before Adam and Eve. Anybody know what's going on before Adam and Eve that involved the dark side? War in heaven. Okay, we have this entity, this guy, who finds himself in a position where he's the leader of a very large portion of that army fighting against the other side. And so it occurred to me that not only is he a skilled psychologist, but perhaps he's also a skilled military strategist. That's a little uncomfortable of a concept. And so, if you were the leader of a large army versus another large army, who would you kill first? Dave? Their leader. Why? They can't organize, can't so would it surprise us if this 7,000-year-old genius decided to target leaders? And what if he could figure out who the leaders were going to be while they were still children? Anybody know of any stories where there was an attempt on the life of children who were going to become leaders in their older age? Who comes to mind? Now, bear with me. I play several roles in the community. I am a um, healer. I'm a trainer. But I also play another strange role. I'm a scout, not a boy scout, but a military scout. One of my jobs is to study the enemy in great detail so you don't have to. I sit on the edge of that dark territory watching for his techniques with the hope of coming back and sharing with you what he plans and what he's doing. Part of that responsibility is I study his personality and his feelings about things. So can you imagine Satan's response when Moses and Christ slipped through his fingers? Maybe that's when swear words were invented. So he gives up, right? No. So now I see him pacing back and forth. He's going, okay, I couldn't kill them when they were children. I'll kill them when they're older. So he arranges for Christ to be killed. He arranges for Joe Smith to be killed. And he wins. Yes? Can you imagine his emotional response three days later when Christ came back? Okay, a little agitation, a little frustration, some swearing and possibly kicking of sheep. Okay, highly frustrated. So, of course, he gives up, yes? Now, time starts to proceed on. Things keep moving forward. Perhaps you've heard the rumors that in the final days there's going to be a wave of the noble and great ones. That there's going to be spirits that were held for the final days that are better than we've ever experienced, leaders by numbers, okay? And so this probably intimidates the dark side, right? And so he gets overwhelmed and gives up, yes? So then he ponders, so, I, well, I can't kill them when they're children. I even thought about that. How do you get the modern political leader to uh, arrange for babies to be killed in mass? I was thinking, could he do that to Obama? Anyway, <laughs> I don't have a lot of political information, but... Have to cut that part out, okay? <laughs> okay. I can't kill them when they're children. I can't kill them when they're older. How am I going to wipe out the leaders of the final generation? What's the strategy that'll do that? I see him pacing back and forth until he discovers the concept of addiction. Okay. Perhaps many of you have seen it. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's one of your children. You see them, as Karen described, you see them on the path of amazingness. You see them on this journey to greatness, and then something starts to go wrong. 
something happens to them. Something starts to mess with their heads and you can't quite put your finger on it. As a mom, you sense it really early going, something's weird here, something out of the Shakespearean phrase, something wicked this way comes. I don't know what's going on, but something's wrong here. And that starts to freak you out. And so Satan has learned that if you can turn a youth into an addict, then his leadership skills, his confidence skills will fall apart. And so the more I've studied it, the more I've um, analyzed what's going on, not only in each individual's lives, but across the board, is Satan is so afraid of these leaders. He's so afraid of them that he has to come up with some sneaky psychological technique to convince them that they actually aren't leaders. You see, if I was a deviant person, I even studied deviant military psychology like Hitler and stuff like that, if I could pinpoint the leaders of the other side and put them in barracks and every day point out to them what's wrong with them, point out to them why they're broken, point out to them all the mistakes they make, if they get to age 18 years old and they are convinced that by identity there's something seriously wrong with me, what will that do to their leadership confidence for the next 80 years? You don't have to put much work into slowing them down because they'll slow down themselves. And so that's why I've targeted this adolescent group. The resources are available for other ages, but to make sure they can win this war by the time they're 18, 19 years old is my primary focus so that they can continue to learn for the rest of their lives. All right, I hope that helps you understand why the dark side is approaching it this way and that he's not attacking the broken ones, but the warriors, the heroes. Okay? Okay, most of you know me. This is Maurice Harker. I'm here with Pete. Okay, Pete Simona. This harmonizes as Pete and I have um, studied and pondered the whole psychological experience of trying to live up to your value system and being told that the Book of Mormon was written for our day and close to 50% of the Book of Mormon is about war. To um, approach life as the soldiers of the Book of Mormon, the sons of Hila, the men of Rona, and other warriors, they built these strong relationships with God. They understood the power of healing and of the atonement, but they did the training. They did the work to know the enemy. Um, Captain Moroni did not just hope that his men would win. And so, as we've learned how to expose, pull him out of the weeds, improve the spirit of discernment, finding the serpent is the most subtle of all the beasts of the field. He has been working for 7,000 years to trick us. And even the most noble and great ones of the final generation will be tricked. So Pete and I feel an unstoppable commitment to uh, sifting this information out of the scriptures, out of the conference talks, providing them for you in a um, setting that not only gives you a place to hear it, but also discuss it. This workshop that we will be starting on the 6th of January is designed to be interactive, but we hope to give you things you've never thought of before. We hope that you will hear things like, oh, I never saw that before. We're going we're gonna to do what Elder Christiansen asked us to do in last spring conference, where he said, we need more bridges between science and the gospel principles. Now, I want to make sure you know that we're not going to show you things that prophets have not already shown us. Everything we're going to show you is a scientific perspective on what the prophets have already revealed. We're not claiming to be prophets with further light knowledge beyond the intelligence, wisdom, and perspective of prophets. We are scientists. We are servants. And it is our goal to make your life better and your life easier 
and give you some invigorating and comforting information at the same time. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you in January. Check yourself. Are you voluntarily having that internal experience or is it intruding upon your cognitive process like a brother with pots and pans? This is the most common thing I'm seeing with youth and adults is they're not asking the question, what role is Satan playing in my psychological experience? And on the flip side of it, what role is the Holy Ghost attempting to make? And remember, if you lose some of those battles, you are going up against a 7,000 year old genius and it's really mathematically likely that you're going to lose many of those battles. If you're ever confused about the voices in your head, get a piece of paper out, cut it into three columns. On one side, put the dark side or whatever your reference is to Satan. On the other side, put the Holy Ghost and in the middle, put myself. And here's what you're going to notice about yourself. The only thoughts that are going on in your head that are you are when you're intentionally trying to make something happen. When you're planning, when you're trying to get organized, when you're gathering things for cooking, and you'll notice you never plan to have negative self-talk. Check your schedule sometime and look for the last time you wrote down from 3 to 4.30 today, have some good quality negative self-talk. Pretty dang sure you never plan that. So if you're not planning it, then it's intrusive. And intrusive means it's someone else walking into your space. As you work through the many resources on the Life Changing Services YouTube channel and the Sons of Helaman website, with its militaristic language and metaphors for the mental struggle against sexual thoughts, the model presented for young people to frame their whole mental world is that only your thoughts deciding to take action are your own. The other thoughts you have are either coming from the Holy Spirit or Satan. You are constantly sharing your own mind with two other spiritual entities. Every thought and impulse to do anything the church labels as bad, like feeling sexual, is not your own mind. It is the constant presence of actual Lucifer in your head dangling temptations to you. So the only way to deal with this and maintain control of your own mind and body is constant hypervigilance. All the impulses to do something nice are also in this model not your own or something you can take credit for. They are from God. Your only job is to make choices about which ideas to act on and which to fight. Can you even imagine how much stress that puts a vulnerable, shamed, desperate and trusting young person into? Having to constantly be that vigilant and worried about their own thoughts and feelings. Taking these very familiar LDS ideas to this extreme really highlights how potentially harmful for mental health even milder versions of this model of temptation and inspiration to do good and bad are. Mercifully, when I was growing up and anxiously grappling with all this, some general authorities at least made the effort to insist that Satan cannot actually read your thoughts. Only guess what you are thinking from your actions, which is intimidating and worrying enough. But these people have stripped away even that veneer of mental privacy. In complete harmony with the constant battle to control our behaviour by competing mobs of aggressive demons that Tom Harrison wrote about in his Visions of Glory, 
the sons of Helaman are being told that Satan has constant access to their minds to keep attacking them there and knows everything they are thinking. How could you ever relax or be truly at peace with yourself and in control of your behaviour if you really believe that? The other thing that seems immediately suspicious to me is how fast the Course declares someone free of masturbation, awards them a titanium ring, gives them the militaristic rank of general and starts inviting them to mentor new recruits. They develop strategic responses following the example of Captain Ronay in the Book of Mormon and then the trainer runs the warriors through drills, drills and more drills creating a vital piece of success known as mental muscle memory. They work toward accuracy, strength, speed, endurance, and warrior-like ferocity, all needed in order to win the sexual self-mastery battles for the rest of their lives. The meeting is concluded with the Brotherhood Circle, where each young man promises to his fellow warriors his commitment to their mutual success. The warriors leave each meeting feeling brotherly love, encouragement, and commitment to another week of success. They are given special progress awards when they reach four weeks and eight weeks, and then at 12 weeks. After they have demonstrated the ability to master their sexuality, demonstrate consistency in their daily manpower, and commence transitioning into their passion energy into passion projects, they not only receive the coveted titanium Sons of Helaman ring, but they also acquire the confidence and the admiration of their fellow warriors. They are ready to transition to the next phase of their lives and are welcomed warmly back to the meetings as often as they wish to show off their awesomeness and help train the new generation of new warriors who have been dragged into this unwanted war. A final note. We understand that like unto the sons of Helaman of the Book of Mormon, this war cannot be won without a strong connection with God. We are aware of this, and we expect every warrior to daily attend to that relationship through his PWR exercises. His PWT, or Personal Warrior Trainer, will help him fine-tune this. We leave stewardship of the repentance process in the hands of the warrior's spiritual leaders. With your warrior, we play a role like unto Moroni, Helaman, and Tiankum. We understand that the original Sons of Helaman had to go through some kind of boot camp in order to have the skills to survive and win their battles. In the end, graduates of the Sons of Helaman find themselves standing before God not only with the confidence that they no longer carry the weight of unwanted patterns of misbehavior, but they are also intimately familiar with using the power of God to do great things with the passion projects. As a clinician who has worked with these fine warriors for over 17 years it is a glorious sight to behold. Welcome to the war. Now let's win it. You can only imagine the guilt and trauma when they discover a few weeks or months or years later that they are very much not cured of sexual attraction and the lure of masturbation or pornography that comes with that. At that point, young Latter-day Saints coming out of a curated repentance process with their bishop or in a program like this mostly give up in despair. Believe they are irredeemably wicked, so there's no point trying to persist with Mormonism and its requirements, 
and they drop out of participation in the church. Or they learn to lie to the worthiness interviewers, either cynically or with ongoing secret guilt like I did. Or they keep diving back in to confessing to their exasperated bishops and more programs like this on an endless loop and get even more thoroughly messed up. The numbers of people harmed by these kinds of toxic beliefs about sexuality and pathologizing normal adolescence as sin and addiction are staggering. Post-Mormon communities have hundreds of thousands of people in them, and as soon as these things get brought up for discussion, the outpouring of rage and frustration at how much unnecessary misery and lasting harm to their self-esteem and ability to function sexually in healthy ways is overwhelming. The relationship and sexual health therapists, like Natasha Helfer, who works with members and ex-members of the church, confirm the damage this kind of response to sexuality in the church has done and continues to do to huge numbers of people. All of this comes from creating an alternate reality based on the accumulated hive mind of unqualified, uneducated, elderly male general authorities from Utah, mistaking their local cultural norms and their opinions gained from reading the journals of discourses rather than professional textbooks for revelations. They then proclaim forth in general authority voice, sweeping generalizations greeted as the ultimate truth from God by a huge community of people that have then been quoted and repeated on a loop in the church's lesson and marriage preparation courses. Until, in recent years, the professionals at the church's family department seem to have finally won the battle to replace the GA quotes with guidance more in keeping with professional norms and common sense. My mum, working as a relationship counsellor for the church's family services and delivering the marriage and relationship courses from these resources, was delighted when that shift occurred and she could actually trust and use the official materials. But that has not been the dominant experience or messaging in the church as a whole. All along, and more today than ever in the past, there has been a context of being repeatedly told to distrust other sources of information, however experienced and scientifically credible, as ultimately written by Satan. In a nutshell, a superstitious and blind faith, rather than a rational faith, taking on board all the lived experience and knowledge of the world and moderating religious beliefs accordingly, which I am arguing is how Mormonism was originally intended to be and will have to become again if it wants to survive this century. But still, the keynote addresses of the church's President Nelson are telling us not to trust or take any counsel from unbelievers. So, perhaps originally well-meaning, Latter-day Saints like Jody Hildebrand and Morris Harker believe that, and then take it to its absolutely logical conclusion in the counselling programmes and businesses they create for fellow church members abandoning secular professional norms and standards and ethics 
and thinking little old them have worked out something much simpler and much better than the entire global community of therapists and psychiatrists have ever thought of. I guess there is a simple way to determine which are getting this stuff right. Jodie and Morris reinventing psychiatry in their own religion's image, or those other people. By their fruits you shall know them. Oh dear, it hasn't turned out well for Jodie and Maurice. These programmes haven't even worked for them personally, never mind the hundreds and thousands of clients they claim to have inspired and helped. Maurice Harker's cheerfully named programme called Sons of Sacrifice is all about supporting same-sex attracted men, quote, who want to keep their covenants with God, especially of a sexual nature, and remain active members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, close quote, but also claims that, quote, we are not reparative therapy, shame-based, or anti-gay, close quote, which is surely a completely contradictory statement. The video advertising it and the course materials are more honest, describing repeatedly how the group functions on the basis of an addiction recovery therapeutic model, how their impulses to act on their sexuality are an addiction, and teaches men how to pass and participate in a heteronormative man's world, all at the bargain price of $80 a week, or $4,169 a year. The biggest fears that men have in joining the Sons of Sacrifice program is probably being seen. A lot of men who who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who experience same-sex attraction have never been in a group where they are acknowledging the feelings that they have, and it can be embarrassing the first few times they join, and everyone in the group understands that. We also follow the program of the Men of Moroni, designed by Maurice Harker, that is an addiction recovery. We follow the same basic meeting outline that those groups do, with the addition that we also spend some time talking about male bonding and connecting issues. The reason we have a male bonding uh, section of our meetings is that Most of the men who join us feel some type of disconnect, some type of distance between themselves and other men. When they join the meeting, there can be some fear about making friends with men. A lot of the men will express that they've got one or two good friends, but that in general, they don't feel one of the guys. They don't feel like they fit in. And part of our goal is to help men learn how to become one of the guys how to maintain authenticity as who they are and and however they express themselves, but still be accepted as a man in a man's world. That takes some practice and it takes some leaning into the fear. And the group is here to support and encourage men. I was working my way through the Sons of Helaman website and doing a bit more Googling and it took me a while to realise that Morris Harker has also been charged with sexually assaulting his clients. I had heard in all the Daybell and Hildebrand mayhem podcasters and journalists have been trying to wade through and make sense of in the last couple of months, that a male LDS therapist 
had also been accused of some kind of sexy exorcism thing, lying on top of his female client to get the devils out of her. But I had no idea it was the actual founder of Sons of Helaman. You really couldn't make it up. Rolling Stone magazine had a really thorough article all about it a year ago on the 3rd of October 2022. Yet another nail in the coffin of the church's PR operation, as yet another national publication goes into lurid detail about exactly how abusive, creepy, crazy and culty the Latter-day Saints are. As the Salt Lake Tribune summarised it, quote, A former Farmington therapist and founder of a Utah-based life coaching practice, who was charged in Davis County this week with assaulting a vulnerable patient to rid her of, quote, demons, is also facing professional sanctions. Morris Harker, 54, is accused of forcing the female patient to the ground, dragging her on the floor, covering her nose and mouth so she couldn't breathe, slamming her against his office door and not allowing her to leave the room, according to charging documents filed Tuesday in 2nd District Court. He's also accused of encouraging the patient to watch pornography to get rid of the demon he claimed possessed her, telling her he needed to, quote, teach her about sex and creating an online dating profile for her where he would pose as the patient to talk to suitors, the charging documents state, close quote. The Rolling Stone journalists wrote that they have listened to conversations with Morris Harker that his victim recorded, confirming the abuse and his rather belated apologies for going too far. Fox 13 TV station and the Salt Lake Tribune recently reported in September 2023 that the Utah Division of Professional Licensing has not done anything about this because he did not renew his license after September 2022, just before the Rolling Stone article. But, quote, Harker's licensing case is slated to go before the state's Clinical Mental Health Counselor Licensing Board on December the 7th, close quote. Meanwhile, while he is no longer licensed, Harker is still listed on the Life-Changing Services website as the organization's owner and co-founder and as a marriage repair specialist who coaches weekly training sessions. Quote, he continues to work on special arrangements with individuals and couples working to repair and rebuild traumatized marriages as a consultant, close quote. The website stated as of Friday, close quote from the Salt Lake Tribune. So Morris Harker, the champion of being paid a lot of private and church fast offering money to supposedly cure your teenage and young adult children and husbands of masturbation and looking at pornography, for years developed a hyper-controlling and eventually violent relationship with a vulnerable survivor of childhood sex abuse until she was meeting with him daily, and part of his prescription to release her from the invented demon possession he convinced her she had was to watch pornography to learn about sex. 
And a former Utah therapist is facing felony charges for allegedly abusing a patient for nearly a decade. Charging documents show 54-year-old Maurice Harker reportedly used aggressive hands-on therapy on his patient, telling her it was necessary in order to cleanse the victim of her demons. In some cases, when the patient would try and leave the session early, police records say, Har police records rather say Harker would physically restrain her. He's charged with felony kidnapping and aggravated assault of a vulnerable adult. If convicted, he could face up to 15 years in prison. And the information given to the Salt Lake Tribune that now unlicensed Morris Harker is only counselling couples by arrangement in some kind of unofficial capacity seems fishy. When you go to the website and YouTube channel, he has continued to upload new films since those charges including one of the ones I just showed clips from, where he seems to be carrying on regardless and not limiting himself to private couple counselling at all. The whole operation targeted at teenagers and gay men and their parents and bishops seems to be carrying on exactly as before, with no mention of this scandal and the charges against him. In fact, several months after being charged, and while still waiting for a trial, on New Year's Day, the 1st of January 2024, while I made the final edits to this episode, he posted a new video inviting people to access their services, talks about his role in marriage counselling, and unbelievably specifically mentions that people may need additional one-to-one -one therapy sessions with him while he is facing a potential 15-year jail term for what he did to the last person who got sucked into doing those. What did I do right? What did I do wrong? And one of the most important ones, what technique did my opponent use that I wasn't ready for? If you ask yourself these questions and you can't figure out the answers based on your own self-observation, what would you do if you actually wanted to improve? This is true with your wives also. Do you really think a woman has time to learn how to give you feedback on how to be a man and a husband? You can use a teammate, but what's the pros and cons of using a teammate even in sports? They're doing it wrong too. They're like, I don't know. So think about it guys, if you wanted to become an Olympic champion, who would you go to for training? A coach that actually knows how to coach. Why are we so willing to pay 30 bucks an hour for piano lessons for our kids or 500 bucks for a weekend of football training and not training for self-mastery or for marriage repair? I'm only one of the highly skilled trainers with marriage repair, but sometimes we do need to do some one-on-one -on -one work. If the global training isn't working, you might have to invest something similar to what you'd invest in your kids getting into football training to do some extra one-on-one -on -one work. If you're finding this video helpful or want to help us reach others in need, don't forget to like, comment and subscribe because it really supports our channel. Thank you. Yes, you just heard blatantly sexist Morris Harker telling married men he is trying to recruit that rather than asking their wives how they can be a better man and husband to them and spending their money on something like advanced sports coaching for their children, they should instead spend the money on having him tell them because their wives are far too busy. Great sales pitch, Morris. And in the notes under this YouTube film, he offers people a free 30-minute one-to-one session with him if they forward the life-changing services details to their bishop. 
to drum up more clients paid for from church fast offering funds. So Maurice Harker, the Latter-day Saint, who has been repeatedly exposed in the national press for abusive practices that re-traumatise and harm the abuse victims he promised to help, is carrying on offering exactly the same services to other people with no change of marketing strategy or methodology. Who on earth could he have learnt such chutzpah, such astonishing, arrogant defiance of accountability and responsibility from? I wonder. You couldn't make it up. My guess is that in his desperation, as his world collapses around him, entirely due to his own foolishness and predatory corruption and exploitation of the vulnerable, he is panicking and needs to rebuild a client base quickly to keep the business afloat. My guess is that Morris has been recruiting and convincing LDS bishops to use his services for nearly two decades now, and knows full well that they are far too busy with their overwhelming callings to have had the time to keep up with the news about him. That they are particularly desperate and easy to manipulate in their intense zone of Mormon magical thinking and stress about all the secret sexual sins being confessed to them by pretty much everybody under 30 in their congregations on a loop. He knows that bishops have been carefully selected and trained to be far too trusting of an authority figure man in a suit who can give it the Mormon-speak general authority vibes with earnest conviction and lots of manly military metaphors and promising miraculous transformations. Maurice knows that those bishops have been told that they can trust their own emotional and mental impressions as revelations from God, turbo-powered by their bishoply mantle of discernment. So, if he can just get them to listen to his well-rehearsed sales pitch, they will be convinced the Holy Ghost is telling them to trust him. He has convinced himself and his colleagues that the whole situation is simply more of his daring do as a military scout spying on Satan's next crafty innovation of new strategies for corrupting the super-righteous last generation. Or maybe, if he's facing a possible 15 years in jail, they all want to make as much more money as they still can from their clients and the welfare funds of the church, rather than closing the whole operation and scrubbing it from the internet in shame. His team seem to be a bit slow on the uptake regarding the clear and present danger continuing to associate with him professionally poses to their careers and credibility. Things just get curiouser and curiouser. My purpose in this episode is to demonstrate beyond doubt the total conflation of the mainstream Latter-day Saint community and its beliefs and practices, and the beliefs and practices of these headline-grabbing monsters exploiting the vulnerabilities and trust that the church engineers in people for money and power, as well as sexual gratification and opportunities to literally torture children. To join everyone else sounding the alarm, 
that these people who are the main drivers of the big ideas, the institutional church is adopting wholesale and putting front and center in its ideology and programs for young people, LGBTQ people, and people seeking counseling and therapy for mental health challenges or addictions are dangerous predators, but also totally integrated into the church. The profiles on the Sons of Helaman website for the other counsellors it employs demonstrates this clearly. They have nearly all been employed or are still employed by the church, while at the same time declaring their fervent conviction that everything Maurice Harker is doing and teaching in these operations is excellent and the best approach they have seen. Maurice Harker has been running life-changing services for 17 years since 2005, but before that he worked for LDS Family Services for seven years. Samuel Feliki Tonga Brown is currently employed by the LDS Church as well as Maurice Harker, giving mental health care to people in its welfare and self-reliance departments. Cody Hawes has divided his time between Sons of Helaman and working for the Church Family Services Department. Markham McReynolds has been employed by the Church to teach at LDS Business College, now renamed Enzyme College, presumably in honour of the fortune the Church is making investing tithing money in commercial enterprises through Enzyme Peak Advisors. Trampus J. Rowden is a currently serving bishop. Greg Dunford was employed by the church education system for 20 years, then immersed himself in the world of the Mormon Corridor's dozens of controversial outward-bound and residential programs and schools you can pay to send your children to to sort them out with often militaristic tough love. He and his wife, quote, are both currently serving as missionaries for the church's addiction recovery program. Greg leads a men's pornography and sexual addiction group, close quote. So, there really is no difference between Maurice Harker's Sons of Helaman and Jody Hildebrand's Connections and other programs like them and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They employ the same people at the same time. They deliver in their roles working for the church exactly the same approach to counselling and sexuality and mental health and addiction as they deliver in these organisations. These are the experts that are trusted and consulted as the church develops its own programmes in these areas of mental health, sexuality, pornography and addiction, with the same reckless naivety and total lack of discernment as when deceiving conman, forger and eventual murderer Mark Hoffman was running rings around them all, taking a lot of their money as he rewrote the script of the church's history. The two worlds are completely integrated, and all they have to do to have Latter-day Saints and their parents and their bishops queuing up to hand over to them thousands of dollars, and even their children, is tell everyone that they are the believers, the faithful church member counsellors, that prophets and apostles like Russell M. Nelson keep teaching all the Latter-day Saints are the only ones to trust, not those worldly satanic ones teaching the philosophies of men and the doctrines of devils. 
all they have to do is look Mormon, talk Mormon, quote the Book of Mormon a lot, and the Mormons become lucrative putty in their hands. And it doesn't take long before these people are so high on their power over you that some of them are using their hands to handcuff your young children to the floor to stop them escaping to get the food and water they have been depriving them of in a reign of terror and torture like Jody Hildebrand, or using their hands to smother your mouth until you cannot breathe as you try to scream while they physically restrain and assault you, like Maurice Harker. It was never a matter of if or maybe this whole mess would blow up in the church's face, but when. And the when turned out to be the year of our Lord, 2023 with megatons of bells on. Maybe it is no coincidence that the Oppenheimer movie of 2023 about the invention of the atom bomb is winning all the awards. God seems to love a bit of gallows humour sometimes. If the church's programmes and training resources, guidebooks, doctrines, policies, family services and culture are to be purged of the ideas and practices of these pseudo-scientific psychopaths and their hundreds of employees and associates and apprentices, it is going to take a Herculean and ruthless purge. It will probably have to take out the entire network of the church's employees and bureaucrats, burn it to the ground, disavow it all as a terrible mistake, and start again from scratch. It will need to be like the Inquisition or the Nuremberg Trials. Dozens, maybe hundreds of people will need to be fired from church employment. Literally thousands of employees and local church leaders, including all the bishops, will need significant retraining, or rather, training, because most of them have had diddly squat real training. There will need to be a bonfire of the miracles of forgiveness in Temple Square to make absolutely clear to everyone to entirely disavow and repent of the core concepts of judgmental Pharisee McConkie Mormonism. A humble and penitent church leadership will need to invite Natasha Helfer's Mormon Mental Health Association and the professional secular mental health community to guide them in constructing an entirely different program and systems of counselling and guidance for young people around sexuality. They will need to train the volunteer clergy and church employees in the CES, family services, addiction recovery program and welfare and self-reliance department and goodness knows what other departments in the church's sprawling bureaucracy we have probably never heard of. Well, we all know that's never going to happen without radical, revolutionary regime change. So we are left with a stark choice. Continue to endanger ourselves and our children by offering them up to the monsters and their monstrous ideologies. Run the hell away from this religion as far and as fast as you can get. Or radical, revolutionary regime change and get stuck in to the purge of the child abusers. You'll notice that after criticising them for being dangerously binary, 
I'm offering three options here. None of them is easy. But seriously, are there really any others? I'm all ears if there are. But as far as I can see, in this mess, where in every direction I start digging into, I discover more and more dysfunctions and dangers. It seems to me that this really is how bad and messed up it all is. And none of it needed to happen or get anything close to this bad if we simply practice democratic common consent scrutiny and accountability in the church of all its official policies and practices as we were meant to be all along. Remember, until recently, the Church's Correlated Institute Manual for the Doctrine and Covenants taught, quote, Not only are church officers sustained by common consent, but this same principle operates for policies, major decisions, acceptance of new scripture, and other things that affect the lives of the saints. See Doctrine and Covenants section 26 verse 2 which reads, quote, And all things shall be done by common consent in the church, by much prayer and faith, for all things you shall receive by faith. Amen. Close quote. There are a lot of mysteries in our church's history that I would give a lot to discover the truth about, but as I've mentioned before when discussing this astonishing paragraph with such enormous implications for what has gone wrong in our church, the top of my wish list is to know who wrote this and how it ever got published front and centre of our teaching curriculum for young adults and older grown-ups. It isn't a specific quote from anyone, it just states what should be the obvious truth of what this commandment and doctrine and law of common consent requires. Obviously, there should be collective scrutiny and then democratic votes of the whole membership regarding any significant new policy, decision, scripture, official proclamation, or any other thing that affects our lives as Latter-day Saints. Not just who can serve in what callings. But somehow, there was some kind of truly epic mental disconnection, cognitive dissonance, mental gymnastics, cult thought control, manifestation of an echo chamber within a bubble, within a rabbit hole, or whatever you want to call it, that kicked in for whoever wrote this, and whichever general authority signed off on this teaching and study manual, to not notice, or not care, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has not been doing nearly all of that for well over a century now. The only two occasions where we have come close have been when the current incarnation of the contents of the Doctrine and Covenants was sustained as scripture, the most recent section in it being a revelation to Joseph F. Smith in 1918, and the 1978 vote giving the priesthood and temple ordinances back to people with any black African ancestors, long after scientists had established that we all have black African ancestors. There was no discussion or voting about dozens of changes to actual ordinances, including the Temple Endowment, the Family Proclamation, the November 2015 Policy of Exclusion, that definitely impacted a lot of members' lives, certainly changed mine, 
reorganizing and redefining the roles of priesthood quorums like the 70s and the high priest groups, introducing temple recommend interviews and worthiness interviews and all the requirements that have been added to them. Financial decisions like hoarding surplus tithing far beyond our needs. Starting and then ending programs we donated money to, like the Perpetual Education Fund. All the bait and switches and flip-flopping that has gone on with the church's policies about temple marriages and sealings and sealing cancellations that Lynn and I became entangled in, and the hundreds of ongoing tweaks and changes to the general handbook by which our entire lives as Latter-day Saints are governed. To be specific, the manual this quote is in is the 1981 Institute Student Manual that was the Church's most thorough and advanced publication for studying the Doctrine and Covenants for 36 years until the current edition was published in 2017. For me personally, that is from age 10 to 46. So can you see why I and a lot of other people raised, educated and entering church leadership while this was the official current teaching for decades? Are expecting better of the church regarding accountability? Can you see why it was an existential shock for us when specifically in the mid to late 2010s, the First Presidency and most of the Apostles completely U-turned the concept of what sustaining votes mean and started running amok as they took the final steps to ideologically establish themselves as an unaccountable dictatorship, where your vote to sustain a leader is you making a binding covenant to be loyal and obey them unconditionally. Even if they are wrong for the job or teaching and doing bad things, because only God can judge or discipline and restrain them. In the Pharisee Mormon religion, they believe or pretend to believe common consent votes are for leaders to hold us accountable. Not reminding leaders that they should be humble and know their place because they can only serve with our ongoing consent and to leave no doubt about this dictatorship, they took the final steps started by their ideological predecessors among the general authorities to totally disempower women by cancelling the women's sessions of general conference, reducing the female conference speakers to an average of three and frequently replacing female general officers. They started publicly throwing previous more open-minded prophets under the bus by condemning I'm a Mormon as a victory for Satan and offensive to Jesus. They made sweeping changes to shun the innocent children of innocent LGBTQ parents from our ordinances and fellowship in complete violation of everything Jesus taught about children and turned their homophobic obsessions with America's culture war into the defining purpose of the LDS Church's existence in the 21st century. They abandoned a growth mindset and went wholesale for purging and sifting the Church of anyone who doesn't unquestioningly comply 
with their constantly changing doctrines and ordinances. We need to sift and purge them, pronto, or there will soon be none of the rest of us left, or ideologically compliant enough to please them. Having neutered and taken over the once independent Relief Society decades ago, and now silenced the women and made their global leaders mostly irrelevant, to make absolutely sure that only that tiny handful of senior general authority alpha males in the ranks of the male priesthood patriarchy have any influence on decision-making, they have removed any reference to consultation and common consent votes applying to canonising scriptures, authorising doctrines and policies, or making changes to ordinances and other practices in their new seminary, Sunday school and institute manuals. Institutes 1981, course number 324 to 325 manual and its second edition, which both have variations of brown ink marbling in their cover design, was replaced by this in 2017. Quote, Doctrine and Covenants 26.2 All things shall be done by common consent in the church. The principle of common consent was first implemented in this dispensation when the church was organised on April 6, 1830. The believers who were gathered at the home of Peter Whitmer Sr. were asked to give their consent that Joseph Smith should serve as the presiding first elder in the church and that Oliver Cowdery should preside under Joseph as the second elder. This practice of common consent has continued in the church since that time. It demonstrates <laughs> such a lie. <laughs> no one votes first anymore for, for first presidencies. Anyway as we've discussed many times. Where am I? It, this practice of common consent has continued in the church since that time. It demonstrates a belief in the principle that every person is free to express his or her willingness or unwillingness to sustain those who are called to positions in God's kingdom here on earth. The principle of common consent was reaffirmed in several revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, lots of quotes of those, DNC 26, 28, 38, 42, 104, 85, and 124. President Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained what sustaining our leaders means for us today. Quote, Often we sing, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet. Do you and I really understand what this means? Imagine the privilege the Lord has given us of sustaining his prophet, whose counsel will be untainted, unvarnished, unmotivated by any personal aspiration, and utterly true. How do we really sustain a prophet? Long before he became president of the church, President Joseph F. Smith explained, it is an important duty resting upon the saints who sustain the authorities of the church to do so not only by lifting of the hand, the mere form, but in deed and in truth. That's a quote from teachings of presidents of the church, Joseph F. Smith. 
President Joseph Fielding Smith, 1876 to 1972, taught that the purpose of a sustaining vote is not to express personal preference regarding whom the Lord has duly called. Quote, the priesthood selects under the inspiration of our Father in heaven, and then it is the duty of the Latter-day Saints, as they are assembled in conference or other capacity, by the uplifted hand to sustain or to reject. And I take it that no man has the right to raise his hand in opposition or with contrary votes unless he has a reason for doing so that would be valid if presented before those who stand at the head. In other words, I have no right to raise my hand in opposition to a man who is appointed to any position in this church simply because I may not like him or because of some personal disagreement or feeling I may have, but only on the grounds that he is guilty of wrongdoing, of transgression of the laws of God, which would disqualify him for the position which he is called to hold. That's a quote from Doctrines of Salvation, uh, compiled by Joseph Fielding Smith's son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie, in 1956. Close quote from the manual. I am delighted that at least the concept of the opposing vote being a safeguarding measure still features in this teaching. Our current First Presidency and several of the publicly lying apostles are clearly, quote, guilty of wrongdoing, of transgression of the laws of the church, which would disqualify him for the position which he is called to hold, close quote. So, let's get voting opposed. Then, when we have replaced them with leaders following the scriptural constitution of the church, they will give us back our rights and opportunities to vote regarding all the, quote, policies, major decisions, acceptance of new scripture, and other things that affect the lives of the saints, close quote, which have been imposed on us without our sustaining vote or common consent for over a century now and apply these commandments regarding any new decisions thereafter. The current Institute Student Manual concludes its guidance regarding common consent with, quote, After the church members sustained President Thomas S. Monson as the president of the church for the first time, Elder Robert D. Hales of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles emphasised the covenantal nature of the law of common consent in the church. He taught that when we raise our hands to the square, it is not just a vote, but more, quote, a private and personal commitment, even a covenant, to sustain and uphold the laws, ordinances, commandments, and the prophet of God. Close quote. That's from Gaining a Testimony of God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost in the Ensign of May 2008. So the punchline is that your sustaining vote is a covenant of obedience and being accountable for that to the authoritarian leader, not the leaders and their decisions being accountable to you because you have the final authority to authorize them. It's a 180-degree U-turn from the previous manual to the current one. This is further re-emphasized in the teacher manual for the current course, 
which adds a quote with a similar message by Henry B. Eyring, who I have for years been identifying as one of the leading proponents of this false doctrine of dictatorship, especially in his The Power of Sustaining Faith talk five years ago in April 2019 General Conference. The Teacher Manual references his similarly titled and themed First Presidency message in the June 2012 Enzyme magazine titled Called of God and Sustained by the People. Quotes from the Teacher Manual. What does common consent mean? Common consent refers to church members using their agency to express their willingness or unwillingness to sustain a person who has been called by the Lord to serve in his church or to be ordained to an office in the priesthood. Common consent is manifested by raising the right hand. What is the difference between common consent and electing or deciding by majority vote? Invite a student to read aloud the following statement by President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency. Ask the class to listen for what it means when we manifest our common consent. Quotes from President Eyring. By our sustaining vote, we make solemn promises. We promise to pray for the Lord's servants and that he will lead and strengthen them. Doctrine and Covenants 9351. We pledge that we will look for and expect to feel inspiration from God in their counsel and whenever they act in their calling. See Doctrine and Covenants 138. As we raise a hand to sustain a person, we commit to work for whatever purpose of the Lord that person is called to accomplish. That's from Called of God and Sustained by the People in the June 2012 Ensign. Several other general authorities, as well as Henry himself, have emphasised this new Pharisee-Mormon doctrine of a sustaining vote being an unconditional commitment to obey leaders without question, signing a blank cheque with our souls, in even stronger language in recent years. Guess what Henry Eyring's 2012 First Presidency message says immediately before that part quoted in the Institute Teacher Manual. Quote, Even though the Lord calls his servants by revelation, they can function only after being sustained by those they are called to serve. Close quote. How interesting. So, that means Elder Patrick Kieran, who was chosen and ordained an apostle in secret, by President Eyring and his crew on the 7th of December 2023 is officially dysfunctional, unable and unauthorized to perform any duties as an apostle, as the entire church membership he has been called to serve will not be voting about his appointment until five months later in the April 2024 General Conference. Yet he is going about his apostle business as if he already has that authority, just as Geoffrey Holland did when ordained an apostle on the 23rd of June 1994 without a vote of the membership, and just as Russell Nelson, Dallin Oakes and Henry B. Eyring did as First Presidency members repeatedly 
when ordained to their priesthood key-holding callings months before the membership voted. What a liar! Henry B. Eyring is a shameless liar. He knew when he wrote that, that this was not true, and had not been applied in his own calling to the First Presidency. I don't know how these men can live with themselves and presume to pontificate and teach and judge others when they know they are lying hypocrites regarding such basic things. Let's cheer ourselves up. Just imagine the LDS Church as an institution where the general authorities actually explained their constant contradictory tinkering with everything and U-turns and the reverses of U-turns. Never mind actually got some feedback and advice and permission from us regarding how to improve that stuff or whether to change it at all. It's no wonder our people and leaders are confused and believing and teaching a confused mess of entirely incompatible versions of Mormonism crashing into each other every Sunday and demoralizing most of us so much that we leave. The first presidencies and apostles are so used to absolute power with no accountability that they have been absolutely corrupted by it and don't even feel any need to explain anything to us about their decision-making and reasons for all these changes anymore. They just demand compliance to them as the most important measurable indicator of our faith in God. We should never have ended up in this mess, and this beautiful paragraph, sitting like a precious jewel, twinkling with truth and hope, in a pile of poo in our correlated teaching curriculum, is a seer stone we can look through to see the real Zion we should have had all along, and could still have if we believe it is possible, and then use our common consent voting power to insist on it. Let's memorize this. Quote, Not only are church officers sustained by common consent, but this same principle operates for policies, major decisions, acceptance of new scripture, and other things that affect the lives of the saints. Quote. My invitation to anyone interested is that we do not rest until this is actually happening in our church. It would fix everything. It is our only hope now. The responsibility for all this mess rests squarely with the Pharisee general authorities, who preferred control freakery and feeding crack cocaine to their own egos over the basic humility, compassion and common sense that Jesus pleaded with his people to live by and liberate themselves with from the Pharisees messing them up in his world. Our Pharisees chose decades ago to close their curtains and shut out the light of science and reason and professional research and the lived experience of the church members, and instead decided to dumb down and trust their own opinions and inherited culture and cultural biases and their own emotional feelings about all these things, and treat that as the ultimate truth, the word of God, by which their people must judge and condemn every other opinion and source of information. 
even if they are wrong. Because loyalty to them counts more than loyalty to truth or actual God. So, until the church members are allowed or willing to scrutinise the decision makers in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have to predominantly rely on secular democracy, journalism, government agencies and criminal justice systems to restrain the most extreme practices and individuals exploiting the Latter-day Saints. I will be diving into how they are doing this with regards to the financial crimes of the presiding bishopric and first presidency, and how we could be using the church's own disciplinary proceedings to hold them accountable too in episode 11e. But for now, let's see how the secular authorities are doing dealing with the unofficial pseudoscientific loon bats who are also guiding the policies and practices of the church. Davis County covers the area north of Salt Lake City, which includes Bountiful, Farmington and other wealthy neighbourhoods. After initially deciding not to prosecute Morris Harker, Davis County's District Attorney Troy Rawlins has decided to proceed with criminal charges, but a date for the court case has still not been announced. Troy Rawlins is going to be a very busy man for the next while. Because Utah State Attorney General Sean Reyes is completely compromised as the first choice to investigate and prosecute his close friend Tim Ballard, that job has now been passed to Troy Rawlins. Oh, scratch that. In order to try and restore his battered reputation, Utah State Attorney General Sean Reyes has announced his retirement, met with the women accusing his best buddy Tim Ballard of sexual assault, apologised for not doing enough to believe them sooner, and promised to devote his remaining time in office to properly investigating Tim Ballard's fraud and abuse operation. So, his ethics are as flexible as ever. Oh, there's another. Scott Owen, another Utah therapist doing conversion therapy on gay LDS men, paid for by their bishops and fast-offering funds, has been arrested for sexually assaulting his clients and performing the acts he is meant to be deterring them from while taking advantage of their vulnerability. He has been remanded in custody this month, November 2023, without bail as he poses a threat to society, and now been charged with multiple felonies that could result in sentences ranging from five years to life in prison. As a side panel on ProRepublica's reporting of this case, titled Breach of Trust, Utah's Troubled Handling of Sexual Assaults, puts it, quote, When healthcare workers sexually abuse their patients in Utah, survivors confront obstacles to justice in the law, in the courts, and in the culture as a whole, close quote. The Mormon hegemony and total conflation of church and state and culture in Utah leads to layer after layer of conflicts of interest and corruption in an epidemic of legal injustices and therapeutic and psychological exploitation that easily matches the state's status as the capital of financial affinity fraud. 
throw into all that the ongoing atrocities of facilitating and covering up endemic child abuse, and you have a toxic soup that surely calls for an end to the complacency and long overdue decisive action to reform it all. The Mormons have had the best part of two centuries to perfect their Zion in the Rocky Mountain utopia, and it is still an internationally notorious shiz show of abuses of power and sexual exploitation. It's always amateur hour in LDS leadership and discourse, and the madness that has spiralled out of control in the perpetuation of a machine of child abuse and money hoarding by President Nelson's regime, and the horrors and affinity fraud that have spiralled out of control in the careers of Tim Ballard and Jody Hildebrand, are stark warnings of just how dangerous it is for any community to give leadership and power to delusional, narcissistic amateurs. People are just lining up to monetize and exploit the solutions they offer to the deep fears about being normal humans that the church stokes up to existential crisis points. Getting back to Jody Hildebrand's presentation at the Eternal Core Conference, also notice how she presents a model of a controlling dynamic rather than true relationship or connection between people. But in reality, her idea of the connected relationship is staggeringly controlling, as her victims have described it. It involves the person she is trying to change having to agree totally with her opinion about who and what they are and what they need to do to change and then complying with it. Any resistance to her control freak madness was labelled a, quote, distortion, close quote, from the truth with a capital T. Just like the church treats anyone challenging its regularly changing dominant narratives about what the truth is about salvation and history. They are accused of twisting and distorting the truth satanically with their, quote, doubts and, quote, spirit of contention, when usually they are simply telling the truth about how the church's leaders have twisted the truth about these things, or just wanting what the church teaches and does to make sense, to be ethically consistent. Dodie describes an abusive childhood where she felt she had no control, and this being the starting point of her journey to find solutions and healing that remove the control dynamic. But it doesn't take a degree in psychology to work out just listening to her speak, never mind to what she actually did to her victims, to see that she is very much in a narcissistic mode of I will control other people, and only I have the divinely revealed truth about mental health. He teaches the LDS toxic positivity, that if you are feeling overwhelmed or miserable or discontent with what God seems to be doing to you, even sad that it is snowing on your car, this is a failure, a disaster a key indicator that you are in a state of faithlessness. And you just need to do what that primary song taught us to do. Quickly turn that frown upside down into a smile. Keep sweet and obey Jody, 
who alone knows and speaks the truth of God. And just like the church's obsession with intensively policing the youth with six-monthly worthiness interviews and constant hyper-controlling messages to embed anxious perfectionism, Jody's desperate need to control others messed up a lot of adults' lives but has their most extreme expressions in her torture of children. I invite you to listen carefully to her in this public setting, being presented as a wise and forward-focused guide for parenting in an LDS family and social and religious context. To notice that while some of what she says is potentially very disturbing if you are in a vigilant mode and not trusting her, in normal member mode, she really doesn't come across as dangerous or extreme or that different to the kinds of things that get said every Sunday at church by other Latter-day Saints, raised on the idea that secular psychiatry and counselling is a dangerous threat because it is based on the ill-defined philosophies of men rather than the gospel. And the idea that if you go to a non-LDS therapist, there is a big risk that they will tell you the church is wrong about what it is making you feel guilty about, or value most, and therefore a threat to your testimony. So it is super important to find or be referred to therapists who are also Latter-day Saints, so they will truly understand you and not challenge your belief system or total trust in the church's leaders as always speaking for God. Everything the Eternal Core Conference and its participants was about was making that pretty universal attitude in LDS Mormonism real, taking it seriously, and actually trying to reconfigure therapy and psychiatry in the image of the LDS Church, rather than secular or academic and professional norms and Sigmund Freud. Almost immediately, taking that approach for real unleashed monsters who have savaged the innocent among the Latter-day Saints like ravening wolves, but were presented and recommended to us as the safest of faithful sheep. A panel discussion at the conference featured Tom Harrison, Jody Hildebrandt and Garrett Rose, who is the son of BYU basketball coach Dave Rose. Another of the many indicators that all is not well in Mormon Utah Zion is that Salt Lake City has the second highest percentage of plastic surgeons per capita in the cities of the USA, beaten only by Miami in Florida. This is usually attributed by sociologists and psychologists to the large percentage of LDS women who are disempowered from higher education professional careers and authority in their religion, whose only power and status is therefore their physical attractiveness to powerful men and appearing to be perfect wives and mothers. Also, the added pressure that active women in the church far outnumber active men, so the competition to attract a husband is additionally fierce compared to the average population. At the time of the conference, Garrett Rose had been front and centre advertising a gastric band weight restriction surgery offered by a clinic in Utah, 
and the Break Free organisation Tom mentions him representing seems to be something to do with the weight loss programme. So his presence represents another huge component of the conflation between LDS culture and the businesses offering to fix the problems that culture generates for a lot of money. Tom Harrison was really thorough when assembling this parade of people in a handy one-stop shop of everything going badly wrong in LDS Zion. The fifth panellist was Kelly Borden of Eagle Ranch Academy in St. George, Utah, one of the dozens of very expensive boarding schools or hiking through the desert boot camps in Utah that parents send their troubled teenagers to to endure brutal regimes to fix them that often engage in traumatising abuse that does far more harm than good for the children sent to them. Whether they are actually troubled or just normal teenagers is an urgent question to ask in this religion reading apocalyptic significance into the normal experiences and immature foibles of young people and regularly hitting the panic button. British and European Latter-day Saints and our culturally similar Commonwealth cousins in Australia and New Zealand particularly the few like me born in the USA but raised here with dual citizenship, are, I think, uniquely positioned to experience and offer insight into the sometimes subtle differences between our cultures as we navigate being members of an assertively American religion in a non-American culture. We have Americanized a lot as we have adopted a lot of aspects of American capitalism, and aspirational desires for consumer goods, particularly in the UK, which has for centuries been called a nation of shopkeepers. We consume a lot of American music, TV, cinema, computer games and social media culture as well. But there are still some profound differences that have become clearer to me as I've experienced living in Alabama in the Florida-Tallahassee mission for two years and continue to closely follow American religion and politics, and how all these things impact my religion. We all have our own problems, but over and over again, the thought keeps occurring to us Brit Vengers watching this madness unfolding, that this would never happen here, or certainly not on the scale it is. Tim Ballard and Donald Trump would struggle to be taken seriously enough to be elected to a local council. We have some drug rehab operations, but there isn't a cultural norm of expecting your children to be perfect and paying for them to be taken away and quickly refurbished and fixed. The American dream, aspirational expectation that you can have any kind of life you want to if you work hard and pay for it, that in positive ways generates the capitalist ethos and wealth of the world's economic superpower, has a significant downside in not coping well with normal human variety and flaws in appearance, skills and behaviour. Europeans are much better at being patient with diversity, with being patient with people's differences and failings, with realistically moderating expectations with not expecting everything and everyone to be perfect. We are far less prone to being sucked in by advertising and charlatans, 
our culture is healthily sceptical, very allergic to anyone bigging themselves up as a saviour figure, proclaiming to have all the answers in politics, religion or business. The ultimate social crime in British society is to show off and brag about your achievements. We respect humility and even demand it of our kings and queens. So anyone turning up and presenting as Tim Ballard, Jody Hildebrand, Avraham Gileadi and all their ilk do would get very short shrift and very little of our money. We can usually detect a snake oil salesman in minutes, but sadly Americans tend to be extremely vulnerable to that kind of manipulation and trusting people claiming to offer the solutions to their problems. Perhaps this is because until a few years ago, nearly half the population of the USA was still attending church regularly, and being regularly trained to be unquestioning believers in invisible things, and authority figures based on emotional manipulation by skillful preachers. So I'm feeling quite proud right now that our fascinating cultural hybrid of egalitarian socialism and capitalist enterprise has done a pretty good job overall of knocking off some of the extremely harmful corners of unregulated capitalism, helping us arrive collectively at some fundamentally Christian values. Our heart is to be charitable and feel social responsibility for others. To expect leaders in any field to deliver what they promise or be replaced. To sceptically resist any new strategies and fads unless we can be convinced that they make sense. And we will ruthlessly analyse and criticise their effectiveness during and after running them and refuse to repeat things that didn't work last time an essential skill completely lacking in LDS culture. We expect to need to support and make allowances for people in need of state welfare or who don't meet ideals of intelligence or beauty. We stoically accept what we cannot change and tend to be realistic and cautious about expecting better for ourselves or others. In Britain, we pioneered social democracy, state and charity-led social reform and unionised labour, a national health service and state education. Our core values are to root for the humble underdog and value our eccentrics as national treasures. The core values of Americans are to heap praise and trust on the high achievers and socially confident, especially if they are rich, and treat them as role models and to do as much as possible with braces and clothing and cosmetic surgery to fit in and look and behave like everyone else, and trust cynical capitalist advertisers to tell you what your values are with the ulterior motive of making them more rich and more powerful. And when Americans find out the people exploiting them got very rich indeed, their usual instinct is to applaud them for their skills and try to do the same, not regard that as a total deal-breaker for trust and admiration. This has been spectacularly demonstrated by the responses of the brainwashed faithful to being told that their first presidency secretly hoarded hundreds of billions of dollars of tithing in Wall Street. 
in our national culture, that makes them some of the worst kinds of criminals and hypocrites, not heroes. Jodie described in this conversation how she steals herself to be ruthless with the young people she is counselling and ignore their pleas with her that she is being harmful or unreasonable and persist with her insistence that her view of what is going on in their lives is the only truth. Kelly Borden later talked about how we shouldn't trust our brains because they are often wrong or deceiving us. That's fine in a context of delusional mental illness, but the theme becoming more dominant in LDS and adjacent circles is the idea that you shouldn't trust rational thought and rational interpretations of evidence if they lead you to question the truthfulness of the LDS religion or the credibility and infallibility of its leaders. That is not the same thing as not trusting your brain when you are mentally ill. I love doing these panels with such experts because all I have to do is introduce them, maybe ask a question, and they're going to take it. And it's going to be great. So I'm Tom Harrison, if you don't know. I'm with Eternal Core, and I'm pleased to be moderating this panel on anxiety and depression. And we have Kelly Bowden from uh, Eagle Ranch. Eagle Ranch Academy down in St. George area, right? And then we have Jody Hildebrand from Connections. Yay, Jody. And we have Garrett Rose from Break Free. And then you got to deal with me again. So here we go. And my, you know, that, that experience that you were just describing is my opportunity. I'm going to keep going back to this thing of distortion. My opportunity to stay in reality or go into this place of distortion with my clients. So here's where I go when I get anxious. Oh, my gosh, they're going to be mad at me. <laughs> um, they're, they're going to uh, somehow manifest that as, as we're working together like, um, you don't understand me, or you're being mean to me, or you need to just let me live the way that I want to live and stop giving me some, some you know, distortion talk because it's not helping me feel any less anxious or stop trying to hold me accountable. Like, I start getting nervous that I'm going to get that kind of feedback from them. And so then my anxiety increases. Right. And so I'll say to myself, Jody, you know what this is, and regardless of whether they are interested in choosing this or not, hand them truth and then they get to choose for themselves and I calm right down instantly when I tell myself the truth and most of the time they calm down when I say listen I I know what this is and let me explain to you what I hear you say and then I'll point out their distortions as they're talking and I'll say you can either stay in that and feel uncomfortable which is disconnect or you can speak truth to yourself and immediately connect and most of them will follow that path back into connection. Some of them won't. Some of them get really angry, like, you know, you're not understanding me, and so I'm, I'm out of here, which is fine. But I know, because of the, the thousands of people I've worked with, that when people are willing to look at their, their distortions and speak the truth, they come back into connection, and anxiety and depression just leave. 
it's almost it's almost instantly unless you've been in it for years. Mm -hmm. If you've been in it for years, then you've got to retrain your brain. Yeah. Just uh, to say again, the, this this normal that we all experience involves hard. Just involves hard. So. Now, you know, many of us have had experiences just today that have been hard and uncomfortable. And that's what's normal. And what we have to remember is that that's a part of this life experience. It's what creates your character. It's what creates the stretching and the growing and the developing is if you'll stay in heart. And this is where we need each other. This is where we need connection. You know, you're my new friend, Tom. And I want to be able to call Tom when I'm in hard and say, Tom, I'm in heart. And Tom, because he knows how to validate, Tom's going to say, Jody, tell me about it. And I'm going to tell him what the heart is. And then he's going to say, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Or I understand, or I was there yesterday, or you can do it. He's going to validate me. And inside that validation, I feel the connection. And so then all of a sudden, my heart becomes less hard. It doesn't mean that it goes away. And I don't need to stay in this place of, oh, I'm anxious or I'm depressed. That's like a state of being. It's like a death sentence to stay in those two states. Instead, I call and I get some validation. And then Tom says to me, okay, Jody, you ready? You ready to hear your part in what's hard about this? And then because he loves me, he says, here's your part. You're responsible for. You're in distortion. You're saying to yourself, I can't do this. This is impossible. This shouldn't have happened. How dare they? He points that out to me, and then I can use my agency and say, okay, I choose to go into truth. And I'll tell you, it is instant that you come back into this very powerful connection. And I thank him. Like, thank you for telling me the truth, Tom. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're working towards. Normal is hard. Hard is normal. And that's what eternal core is. Eternal core is moving the whole field of psychology and psychiatry and social work and mental health, marriage and family counseling out of this distortion of we are all in com competition with each other and my way is better than your way. Uh -huh. If we cannot come together, how do we expect our clients to come together? If yes. we can't be united, how do we expect them to learn how to be united? Good. If we are not living in truth, how can we expect them to live in truth? Better, but I really believe that with Eternal Core and what we're doing here, that we can make a huge difference in, in helping, especially with these young people as they get older. Thank you, Karen. Hey, um I think what I so agree with what you're saying and where we work with teenagers at Eagle Ranch Academy we see it all the time and I, I think the one thing that I want to leave you guys with is that you don't have to listen to your brain noise all those negative thoughts all that negative brain noise it is just noise it doesn't mean that that's the truth it doesn't mean that 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 is the fact go out and look for the fact if you're if you're the thing that happens is our thoughts and our feelings match and we believe it. But if my thoughts are negative and it makes me feel sad, I'm going to believe that something's bad. Right. And it's not. It's brain noise. And you've got to tell that brain noise sometimes to stop talking. 50% of the time, our brains lie to us. Our brains are not always our friends. So. Every time it tells us something, say, 
is this the good side of our brain or is this the not so good? And some of our brains lie to us even more than that. So remember, the distortion is not always telling us the truth. Thank you so much for being with us today on the panel. So thankful for Garrett and Kelly and Jody. Thank you very much. I don't know how much she has drunk the eternal core Kool-Aid, but two months later, Kelly Borden of Eagle Ranch Academy recorded a training video in May 2019 titled Choice-Based Theory, which seems to lean heavily towards this idea that troubled mentally ill teenagers can choose their way to health. In this panel chat, Tom Harrison also praised the Fight the new drug anti-porn movement in Utah is a great thing. Its leader was one of the audience members at the conference. Fight the new drug has made a lucrative contribution to the caseload of at least two other panel members, as well as Tom, as parents keep spending a fortune of their or the church's money, referring their poor teenage children to them to be cured of puberty. Are you starting to see why this conference was an interconnected who's who of nearly all the key players in this cluster Moriankama? Well, I think we can find this wonderful hope in programs like Fight the New Drug, where they thought, but kids don't want to hear about this in high school. You know, they're not going to get behind it. And look, it's, it's a million strong groundswell of these kids saying, finally, someone is talking about this. I mean, Karchner, finally, someone is, has the courage to talk about these things and give us voice. Jessica Zercher, a BYU professor, spoke about a God-centered approach to parent-child communication about pornography. It seems mostly to be sensible stuff about removing shaming from conversations about difficult matters like pornography, being less authoritarian, and encouraging comfortable communication relationships with children. And quoting Dallin Oaks in one of his more sensible moments, warning against labeling even compulsive use of pornography as an addiction. It was mercifully pretty much the opposite of what Jody was saying. She used the same terminology, but gave it very different meanings, and ended with the sensible advice to not just take social media technology away from children, which is one of Jody's go-to punishment and control strategies, but to teach them to use it responsibly and positively. Along with Alina Fong's presentation about checking whether mental illnesses are actually the result of a previous concussion, this showed that there were some sensible adults in the room, and as always in LDS-related conferences, there were people totally contradicting each other. But the rest was mostly full-on visions of glory, extremism, and crazy people promoting their money-making scams. Anne Tanner, a PhD scientist, talked about how science isn't always as certain as it seems, or might be wrong about something. As a teacher, I was disappointed that she slipped into anti-intellectual and anti-science propaganda and slandered schools and education systems by implying that we teach things to students as overclaiming certainties, when of course we educate young people 
about how scientific models have been refined and improved over time and will continue to be. If I've learnt anything in this podcast and Mormon watching journey, it is that the shameful underfunded education systems in Utah and Idaho seem to be shockingly bad and ineffective, so maybe it is that bad there, but really she should know better. The entire point of her presentation seemed simply to be to sow general seeds of doubt about trusting science based on some pretty flimsy examples regarding different theories about what is at the Earth's core. I was hoping, when she started down that path, that we would be treated to the delightful idea knocking around in Mormondom while I was growing up, that the lost tribes are living in secret lands under the Arctic ice cap. But it never got that exciting, I'm afraid. It was titled, God, the Master Scientist. How science correlates perfectly with belief and faith in God. She did not prove at all that science correlates perfectly with belief in God, but she did reinforce the Hafens and general authorities and LDS apologists' message that you should start by assuming your religious beliefs are true and then judge scientific ideas by whether they agree with those or not. President Nelson revealed that his entire approach to his medical career was based on doing the same in his toe-curlingly embarrassing interview with the University of Utah on 2014 that I analysed in episode 6D. He said, on the nexus of science and faith. Well, welcome everyone to our first Dean's Roundtable this year. At a recent general conference session, you spoke about the importance of letting your faith show and referenced a time when a faculty colleague chastised you for failing to separate your professional knowledge from your religious convictions. Um, I won't ask you to elaborate on that, but I'm, I was also struck by the fact that Francis Collins, has, Francis Collins, who's the head of the NIH, has received a lot of criticism for being very open about his religious beliefs. And so I'm, I'm curious about how you've drawn lessons from your faith and how that may have improved your practice of medicine and vice versa. Well, that's a, that's a really important question because um, you're one person. You can't fragment your life and you can't fragment truth. If something's true, it ought to be part of you. And uh, whether it comes from a scientific laboratory or from the scriptures or from God himself, uh, it's got to be part of you. And you can't say, I'm going to check my religion at the door. So uh, it gives you strength in raising your family. It gives you strength in caring for your patients. It gives you strength in reading the literature. In my day, I subscribed to 17 different journals. Mm -hmm. And you don't have time to read 17 journals a month, but you have time to read the abstract. And if the abstract is inconsistent with what you know to be eternally true, then you don't read the abstract. I mean, you don't read the article. So it accelerated the rate at which I could read and study and, and know what things I wanted to incorporate into my own life and practice and those things which I knew I didn't want to keep. 
So it really saves you a lot of time in the long run to have a single focus on, on uh, eternal truth. Take infection, for example. Uh, who knows when Koch and Pasteur, those health heroes, came along and discovered bacteria as the cause of infectious disease? Latter part of the 19th century. One of the greatest causes of morbidity and mortality in the 19th century was uh, infection. In fact, uh, Lord Lister in night in 1867 said the great cause of infection is miasma, a contamination of the air with something rotten, <laughs> something bad. And so two years later, uh, Simpson in Edinburgh published in the Edinburgh Medical Journal that hospitals should be destroyed every so often, every five years or so. Destroyed? Taken down. Ah. Bulldozed. Get rid of them because they harbored infection. Mm. Well, that was an extravagant proposal, but that was part of the, the thinking in the 1867-1869 era. Well, Koch and Pasteur did their work in the latter part of the uh, Semmelweis uh, in, in the 19th century, and they showed that bacteria were the cause of infectious mm -hmm. disease. And, and uh, all they would have had to do would be to have read in the Old Testament, one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. Pardon me for a minute while I get out my scriptures. <laughs> um, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, if you equate infectious drainage of pus to what the scriptures called a running issue, or you've got a, a fur uncle and it's draining. The Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. And this shall be his uncleanness in his issue. In other words, the guy's okay, but the issue makes him unclean. Okay, every bed whereon he lieth that hath the issue is unclean, and everything whereon he sitteth shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth his bed shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the even, and so on. It just goes on and on about uh, contamination. And then it comes to this conclusion. When he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue, he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe his flesh in running water, and shall be clean. That was 3,000 years before the 19th century. Um, so, you know, it's very easy for people to be self-centered and think they're really smart mm. to the exclusion 
of truth that can come from heavenly messengers, mm. even in forms of the scriptures. So uh, I think it's important for you to assimilate truth from wherever it comes and don't exclude divine revelation. It's a great answer. As I said then, surely that meets some kind of criteria for professional misconduct and medical negligence. Along with his other statements that evolution isn't real and dogs have always been dogs, he is the poster child for intentionally avoiding information that challenges you to think more deeply about your religious assumptions, and still is just as persistently 10 years after that interview. The point, once again, is that these anti-intellectual, anti-science, anti-reason, anti-compassion loony buckets are not eccentric extremists who do not represent mainstream thought in the LDS church. They teach and reinforce exactly what President Nelson is teaching in General Conference, and mainstream LDS leaders and apologists interact with them and present alongside them in conferences without seeing any problem with this or what they are all up to and teaching. My topic today is God, the master scientist. And what I wanted to talk about today, I wanted to start talking about the question that we often hear. So this is a really common question that we hear in society, right? Is there a God? And we'll, we'll talk about this. Books have been written on it. Yes, there is. No, there isn't, right? This is a very common question that we think about. And the reason why I want to start with this is because it's really important for mental health. If we are constantly questioning if there's a God, we are, we're in a sense taking, taking ourselves away from, potentially, the one thing that can connect us with truth and the one thing that can help us to have real healing. There's many aspects of healing, but taking God out of our healing is not going to be good for us. So, is there a God? Um, we question this all the time, but how often do we question scientific theories? When was the last time that anyone in here questioned a scientific theory? Anything that you'd read coming out of any university? I know Rod, I know Rod and Ken have. Um, I've talked to these guys a lot about certain theories. Um, but it's not something that we do as much, right? So let's talk about where does science come from? Science is almost given this free pass. Science almost becomes like this entity of its own, right? It's created from who? Science comes from scientists, okay? So I'm a scientist. I create science, but once it's been created, it somehow kind of becomes this entity, science, that we don't argue with, we don't question. It must be right because it comes out of Harvard or Stanford or, oh, this really smart person came up with it, therefore it's true, right? So these are ways that we're deciding what's true and what's not true. These are not good ways to figure out what the truth is. We need to go to the source of truth to find this out. We're talking a lot about the heart-brain connection. 
um, with eternal core. There's also a gut-brain connection um, that we talk a lot about in microbiology that affects things. And there's lots of good research showing that when you make changes to your, di or your diet, stress, different medicines, that's going to change your gut microbiota, which can cause anxiety, depression, autism. These are all factors in those things. Um, I have a friend who's actually doing really interesting research on autism, showing that the lack of a certain protein can cause autism, and that protein comes from a bacteria, right? So what we knew before, bacteria are bad for us, doesn't seem to be holding up. So again, we have these issues, and there's tons of these in science, right? where we think we know one thing, and we're full speed ahead, this is fact and truth, and then, oh wait, maybe, maybe it's not. <coughs> so this is our conclusion, right? <laughs> the scientists in charge of these things must be stupid, right? How could they not know there's this huge field, it's one of the biggest fields right now in microbiology, with your gut and your brain and this connection and how important the bacteria are in your gut. How could we have missed this, right? They must be stupid. No, they're not stupid, right? Just because we're wrong about something doesn't mean that we're dumb or we're bad. It just means we're wrong. And we don't like to admit we're wrong, no one does, but it's something that we all need to work on. Um, this is kind of a thing that I've, I've talked to a lot of people about. Being open-minded has kind of gotten hijacked a little bit, where the, the lower definition, right, like simply having a belief or opinion um, on something, if it's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's popular or unpopular, or progressive or conservative. Nowadays, it seems like if you have a certain opinion, then people say, oh, I'm open-minded because I believe X, Y, or Z, right? And that's not open-mindedness. This is, this is getting ruined. We're ruining the definition. So the actual definition is willing to consider different ideas or opinions. That's it. So I'm going to ask you guys to be open-minded and just be willing to consider different ideas or opinions. It doesn't mean, being open-minded, you may or may not change your mind on certain topics. But be willing to consider new topics and new ideas. <coughs> so as I was mentioning, there's many scientific theories that have been accepted as fact and truth that simply are not true. The wrong conclusion has been made. Okay, so we're at the Eternal Core Conference. And I wanted to talk about another eternal core, which is the Earth's eternal core. <clears throat> this is probably something that none of us have really gone back to, excepting a few, um, probably since what, like fourth grade, fifth grade, when we learned it in elementary school. So in the beginning, according to science, this is a picture that I pulled off of Wikipedia for the beginning of the Earth. Um, you know, it's a big, molten, 
ball. This is the theory that science would teach us. <coughs> then we have here the traditional, um, this is the accepted current kind of state of what the Earth is, right? So you have the crust, which is very thin, and then you have the inner core, which is a solid inner core. You have the outer core, which is a liquid, and then you have the other levels in between. And so that's a huge assumption being made, right? That it must be iron. So then going back to this, what do you think they did these experiments using? Iron, right? So they're using iron in here. They're getting the melting temperature of iron to extrapolate the temperature at the center of the Earth. They're seeing what iron does under these extreme temperatures or pressures. And all of it is based off of the assumption <coughs> that it actually is iron because iron is dense. Um, this is a problem because there can be other things that are dense and we'll go into that in a minute. <coughs> so, do we really know enough about this to be making a firm conclusion? I have a picture of a, a mother and a baby up here. Can any, anyone guess why? <laughs> because we defend this theory of iron, molten, core, earth, as though it is our firstborn child. <laughs> and I don't know why this happens, but we all do it, and it's crazy. Like, this is another crazy thing, right? Where we get taught something in school, and our teachers have been taught it by their teachers, and their teachers by their teachers. And so over the passage of time, it just kind of gets canonized in society as, this is the way it is. This is fact, right? When in reality, we don't have enough scientific evidence to back it up as fact. It's a theory. And there are other theories that are also good that we need to, again, be open-minded about and consider. <coughs> so, if you ever find yourself defending something that you really haven't studied and you haven't prayed about and you don't really know a ton about as though it were your firstborn child, maybe pump the brakes <laughs> and think, am I being open-minded here? Or you might have a <laughs> or, or you may get forced to be open-minded like Ken. Let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> okay, so this is a quote by Lawrence Corbridge. The challenge is not so much closing the gap between our actions and our beliefs. Rather, the challenge is closing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. This is the challenge. I think a lot of us are pretty good, honestly, at... Um, acting the way we, according to our beliefs. But remember, going back, our beliefs can be wrong, okay? Our conclusions that we make can be wrong. We just need to get comfortable with that and go to the source of truth, God, um, to get those answers about truth. And to remember where science comes from. Science comes from scientists and lots of scientists are really smart and good at what they do, and they come out with really good, important information. Um, and a lot of it helps a lot of people. I'm not saying that all science is bad or that scientists are bad. I am a scientist. Um, but we need to be 
more critical about the way we accept or reject science and scientific theories, not just not just be critical and skeptical about religion, which we're really good at, um, but let's not give science and theories a free pass just because it's science or just because it came out of a certain university. Right? But ultimately, you cannot know what is true without a positive confirmation. You're never gonna know what the color I thought was the right, the color, right? Until I told you, yes, that's correct. It's moon dust, right? So same thing goes with science. Yeah, we can disprove a lot of things and like more and more theories can come up and we can disprove those or we can, if there's theories that are trying to disprove the existence of God, um, we can maybe like knock it down or do what a lot of us do where we try and kind of like, as, as someone who believes in God, we try and like mash it into being okay, where it's like, okay, this doesn't really fit, and it's kind of like almost saying there's not a God, but God could use that, right? So then we're like, okay, because we bring God back in and say he could use whatever way he wants, which he can, he can. But instead of like trying to do all these weird mental manipulations, maybe we should consider that that theory might not be true, the scientific theory. If it's trying to disprove the existence of God, I don't think God does that. I don't think he's trying to trick us and point us away from him. He's our father, he loves us, and he wants us to know him. Okay? So we talked about in the beginning with that molten ball, earlier in the beginning with science in the beginning according to scripture this is in genesis chapter one talking about the creation the king james version <clears throat> in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void okay void there's there's nothing in there darkness was upon the face of the deep what is deep generally referred to i just want you guys to think about this makes me think of water. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This is verse 2 of Genesis 1. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is before he even created light. God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Verse 6, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Nowhere yet have I seen anything that's talking about molten ball of magma, fire, brimstone, anything that's even mentioning solid, right? I have not seen any words like this so far. Verse 7, and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So verse 9, okay, verse 9 is where the dry land appears. 
and to appear, in my head, appearing means it wasn't there before, okay? That's what it means to me. But you guys can make your own interpretations of that. Um, I would recommend asking God. So there's this quote by St. Ansel of Canterbury. Believe in order to understand, rather than understand in order to believe. I think this is a really important principle that if we implement, we will be able to access a lot more truth because we're going to God as the source of truth. We believe in him. We, will, we believe that he will reveal his truth to us rather than letting science be king and letting science dictate what we think about God, whether he exists at all. Okay? Believe first and the understanding will come. So why does this matter? Um, believing in false scientific theories affects our eternal core. If we build our eternal core based on things that point us away from God, then we're not acknowledging the most powerful source of wisdom and healing that we can have in our mental health and in every aspect of our lives. <clears throat> so let's be good scientific consumers and remember, false theories do exist. Not everything is a lie in science, but be smart, question it, go to God and ask him what is true because he will reveal it to us. And I'm just grateful that I had this opportunity to talk to you guys. Question and question God, he will answer. Science is based on observation of consistent real-life phenomena that can be replicated and ruthlessly challenged by peer reviewers. It isn't a belief system based predominantly on the opinions of scientists, as Anne Tanner describes. She subtly but persistently discredited evolution. In passive-aggressive, vague American Mormon speak, but if you know the language, as all experienced Latter-day Saints do, her message was clear. She mocked the idea that there is a ball of iron at the centre of the earth, saying there isn't credible scientific evidence to support that, and it is mostly believed because generations of teachers have taught that idea to each other, which simply isn't true. She may be a biologist focused on studying bacteria, but you don't have to be a physics PhD to do a bit of googling and check the evidence and rationale for the consensus among physicists regarding the formation and constitution of our planet. Based on evidence, she doesn't seem to have bothered. But she doesn't leave it at that. It seems like a weird thing to focus on as proof positive exhibit A that scientists are wrong about some things. But it all makes sense when we get to her concluding comments. And you couldn't make this up when she actually reads the creation account in Genesis. Might as well go for the big one which she seems to take literally as a true scientific rather than metaphorical or visionary account of creation. Because there is no mention of anything specifically solid in that account until land emerges from the oceans, Aunt Anna, the bacteriologist, has concluded that there cannot be a solid centre to the earth. 
and uses that to tell everyone that the way to check whether scientific claims are true is to take it to God in prayer, and he will tell you what the truth about these sorts of things is. This approach to determining truth is obviously highly likely to just confirm your existing comfort zone of beliefs. Notice that Anne Tanner, despite being the token scientist, is not modelling rational faith. Rational faith is the harmony of rational analysis of professional, academic, scientific, evidence-based and peer-reviewed working theories or truth claims, and working it out in your own mind before seeking a confirming or opposing or clarifying revelation. She begins by completely misrepresenting science, the scientific process, and the evidence supporting the ideas she is dismissing from an extremely uninformed point of view. The rational analysis and research bit hasn't actually occurred in what she is modelling, even though she puts on a show of seeming to have done that. This scientist is engaging in just as much flim-flam and magical thinking as the rest of the speakers. Even when she seems to be talking about having an open mind and not letting your biases and assumptions shut you off from learning new things, the context makes it a strong message to distrust the scientists and evidence in favour of religious beliefs as equally or more valid, rather than being willing to adjust your religious beliefs because of the scientific evidence challenging them. The message I got from all that was how panicked the fundamentalists are by the weight of scientific, historical and research evidence contradicting their entire worldview, that they are now this desperate to discredit the whole idea of such evidence any way they can, however silly. The frankly really confusing and confused approach by speaker after speaker which we often see modelled by general authorities, is to oversimplify complex things. Wildly misrepresent the rationale, evidence, motivations and credibility of the schools of thought that contradict their religious truth claims. And keep telling your audience that if they just pray about anything they still don't understand, or the solutions and claims they are offering, God will tell them what is really true. But then, if you have paid attention to the Apostles' face-to-face broadcasts with teenagers and the films about finding truth in the seminary curriculum, you all already know that they have told you that if the answers to those prayers in any way contradict what the living prophets and revelators are teaching, that is a sure sign that those answers to your prayers were satanic deceptions and you should ignore them immediately. At no point did Antanna say, if you want to know about the creation of the earth, research what the scientists are saying, and why they are confident that there is an iron core at the centre of our planet, if you are really bothered by that, and alternative theories. Use your own mind to judge which seem most credible, how to assess and judge the credibility of experts in each field, or even to approach scripture with an understanding of context, literary traditions and metaphors in Bronze Age storytelling and religious texts. The Church's own correlated curriculum and the scriptorians it employs talk about these things being important to factor in 
when deciding how literally to take the several contradictory creation accounts in Genesis. What we get here at this conference is a young airhead from BYU who really doesn't know what she is talking about in most of what she presented, making sweeping, faith-promoting generalizations to discredit the theory of evolution and the idea that maybe God uses evolution as a creative tool, clearly aligning herself with the Bible literalist, anti-evolution, young earth creationist fundamentalism that is typical of this general faction among Latter-day Saints. The old-school Joseph Fielding Smith, Kimball, Benson, McConkie Mormons, who believe the entire scientific establishment is an anti-religion and anti-faith conspiracy, lying to everyone that Genesis is not literally true, that people are born LGBTQ, that our mental health is not predominantly about a lifelong struggle with hordes of invisible demon spirits trying to control you and possess your body. Whether she realises this or not, she was totally contradicting the science faculty at Brigham Young University, who are clear that evolution is real and the earth is very old. I suspect she does realise this, because her language is very carefully crafted to speak directly to those kinds of conflicts and intellectual battlegrounds, while being very careful not to be too specific about her meaning. However, her choice of language and examples indicate that she knows exactly which biases and assumptions she is pandering to and reaffirming. It was yet another tour de force of the incredibly frustrating fundamentalist Mormon speak that drives rational people crazy trying to engage with it and takes a lot more time to deconstruct than TBMs usually have the patience for. If you are trying to discuss a specific matter of history or science with a fundamentalist, but have to begin by first trying to convince them that evolution is real and that scientists aren't anti-Mormons with exactly the same biases discrediting their opinions as a politician or a pesticide salesman, it's going to be a long uphill struggle that very rarely resolves much because it gets lost along the way in swamps of stupidity. Most of us in the nuanced and post-Mormon space understand exactly what we are facing, because we have been there as totally trusting TBMs. We know how it's so much nicer and easier to believe you have already discovered the secrets of the universe, and how to determine the truth with minimal effort and quickly dismiss the more demanding weight of evidence and informed rational thoughts about it if it makes you uncomfortable by challenging the beliefs you were taught literally as a child. Speaker after speaker at these kinds of conferences and presentations, whether fundamentalist apologists or general authorities, offer as their testimony punchline recommending dealing with the painful cognitive dissonance by just praying about whether your infantile beliefs in sweeping generalizations are still true. Get on your knees, feel emotionally reassured that your comfort zone is still safe, and that's how you know what is true, folks. And with that reassurance, 
they then get stuck into talking and podcasting about how the church's university, the church's newsroom, the gospel topics, essays, writers, and even the writers of the church's own accounts of its history have all gone astray, corrupted by anti-Mormon science and scholarship, or, if you are the Midnight Mormons of Ward Radio, corrupted by Mitt Romney and the Democrats, seriously, to change the highly inaccurate McConkie Mormon script of yesteryear. And thus we have this entire movement of amateur anti-intellectual fundamentalists buying into the Christian nationalist culture war paranoid conspiracy theory world we see everywhere now, from Ward Radio to Firm Foundation to the Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist movement and so on. They get constant reassurance from the general authorities, irresponsibly declaring still that our doctrines and truths and values are timeless and never change with the wicked modern world, even while constantly changing them as new evidence and epiphanies play out in ways they can no longer avoid. They just never have the integrity to be honest about this with these fundamentalists and tell the faithful which ideas they need to abandon and improve upon now. So it is no surprise that these backward-looking bigots, horrified by recent baby steps of progress by the church to adjust to reality and the 21st century, then bombard Apostle Geoffrey Holland with letters complaining that BYU professors are teaching evolution and compassion to the suicidal LGBTQ students. So he then uses his ecclesiastical authority to channel them and quote their letters in his musket fire speech to the entire faculty of BYU that has turned the church's university into an even more disappointingly culty thought control and secret police operation. Rainbow flags or any other signs of empathy with LGBTQ people and their rights now incur the threat of discipline by the campus thought police, the honor code office. Faculty have to sign contracts now, agreeing they can be fired if even in their private conversations with their bishops, they express empathy for LGBTQ people or any other opinions or concerns that seem to question the leaders as infallible. And thus we see how all these things are highly interconnected in reality. How what is reinforced at pseudo-scientific conferences ends up being taught by people claiming to be the prophets, seers and revelators of the mind and will of God. As many of us are experiencing in our local wards, decades of pandering to fundamentalists and putting all the policing hypervigilance into challenging and silencing the more informed and genuinely open-minded people, instead of challenging the fundamentalists to get more educated and more nuanced in their beliefs, has backfired spectacularly on the church as a whole, as well as in rapidly shrinking local congregations. The educated are leaving in droves, and the ignorant are the tail wagging the dog more than ever. They are getting organised and relentlessly dismantling the credibility of the whole religion with their embarrassing ignorant prejudices, 
scaring the more aware leadership into conformity with the similarly ignorant, irrational and fundamentalist first presidency. And not surprisingly, this has crashed the church into the buffers of reality. One of the net results and manifestations of this madness is that while fighting hard in the courts of Arizona and Idaho to insist that clergy penitent privilege and privacy is so sacrosanct they cannot even stop a church member from raping his children, on the basis that this is part of our religion's doctrines, which it isn't and never has been regarding covering up abuse, in the church's own university, they now enforce the complete opposite with their own employees. There is no clergy penitent confidentiality or privilege there. At BYU, the bishops are obliged to tell the nominally secular university authorities about the slightest hint of thought crimes in official documents they have to complete annually. And this has already led to faculty being fired for what they said and what they thought were confidential conversations with naive bishops who now claim to be shocked that what they reported them for saying has led to them losing their jobs. The general handbook and lots of conference talks by prophets have emphasised how essential that confidentially and trust is to the ministry of bishops and how they should take the secrets they are told about people's struggles and sins to their grave and not even tell them to their wives. As we will be getting to in a later episode, this doesn't mean, however, doing nothing if they confess something like embezzling church funds. That has to be actioned immediately. Or maybe abusing children. My awesome fellow Brit Venger, Nemo the Mormon, is going to be following up his remarkable attempts at holding the leaders accountable by getting Dallin Oaks to promise and fail to investigate the lies he and five of his fellow apostles have told in public by asking for clarification about what these alleged doctrines requiring not stopping child abuse actually are in 2024. We are not giving up the fight against this insanity. Tom Harrison seems to have been the concluding speaker in the conference, and what is absolutely fascinating listening to him is how it's a complete word salad of nonsense. It it he doesn't even he just I'm kind of lost for words about how to describe it. It's just like random bizarre, somewhat semi-profound-sounding statements that when you actually listen to them either individually or in a sequence, literally make no sense whatsoever. Everyone nods along and gives him a big round of applause at the end. These people really are loony buckets, and it's not that difficult to notice they're talking nonsense if you just pay attention. See what you think. It's been incredible. Thank you so much for coming. There have been a few topics which have been, which has been left out and which individuals have approached me with and asked, why didn't you talk about schizophrenia? Why didn't you talk about same-sex attraction? All of our journeys are unique. A very wise man said to me once when we were talking about these very difficult process, he said the plan of salvation and the plan of the gospel 
moves from simplicity to complexity. And for some individuals, the complexity of their life on this planet is profoundly different. But all of us are unique. All of our plans, all of our paths. I think we look at the plan of salvation as it's this way for everyone. It is unique for every person in this room, in this town, on this planet. And we have to adjust ourselves in realizing my plan is unique and difficult and painful. But as I move forward, I can rise above that with the help of community, the help of further understanding, and the help of longevity. What I knew at 20 is profoundly different than what I know with seven decades on this planet. I'm glad I didn't give up in my teenage years. I'm glad the despair of my 20s did not overwhelm me. Please pass that on to those who you work with, those who you love, that all of our plans are unique and it is a process of time and dealing with our own. Yesterday I spoke briefly about the heart-brain connection. I love that everyone has talked about it. Thank you. Thank you for your reinforcement. Today I want to explain why I'm so excited about reconnecting the two of our often ignored superorgans. When we were in our mother's room, and thank you very much, Bruce, when we were in our mother's room, the heart was the first organ to be formed in our tiny zygote body. It then took cues from the mother's heart as it imprinted and became stabilized by her rhythm. very significant connection early on. Our hearts are neuron-laden. These neurons communicate with every part of our body system. We are all connected. Emotional intelligence allows us to perceive nonverbal cues, such as gestures and body movement and is that dog that's coming barking at me going to bite me or not? Or I remember walking in the home and sometimes the silence would be, uh-oh. Or sometimes it would be, oh, this is amazing with six kids and 19 grandkids. All of this happening is beneath our awareness. And we need to tune our heart brains together. And when we do, then we get a new awareness. We have a new feeling. We have a new understanding of not only what's going on with us, but what is going on with those around us. These neurons communicate with everybody's system. 
Our hearts are neuron-laden. These neurons communicate with everybody's system. Yes, we really have three brains. One in our head, one in our heart, and one in our gut. No wonder when one of these is ill, how easily it affects all those other systems. The heart produces hormones that enhance our immune system and greatly influence our emotional cognitive functioning. The heart responds with our brain to whatever stimulation we give it. Emotions of fear, anger, hate, danger, chaos, urgency, emergency, despair, all are processed by our heart, brain, and gut. Good emotions affect it positively, just as bad emotions affect it negatively. Moment-to-moment evaluations are made regarding how we are doing from this heart-brain connection. I could go on and on about this amazing system, but you've been here too long. The heart is far more than the greatest pump ever imagined. The brain is the most complex electronic circuitry ever discovered. But they are still so much more than that. As children, we are fully connected to this heart-brain. Then suddenly, something absolutely perilous happens. We become teenagers. (laughs) Shut up, right? We move into adolescence and become teenagers. This is when our brains tell our hearts to take a hike. We tragically start to rely entirely on our brains and not the best part of our brains either. At this stage, we demand our brains and bodies to just keep going no matter what we feed them or how we misuse them. That reminds me of my son, Rob. Now you see our brains lie to us 50% of the time. They lie to us 50% of the time, if we're lucky. If we're not on drugs or alcohol or pain pills, then they even lie to us more. Their job is just to try to keep us breathing and upright most of the time. At this stage, we demand our brains and our bodies to just keep going no matter what we feed them or how we misuse them. In teenage years, we feel indestructible. Do you remember that? I can do anything and my body will just keep going. How you see our brains lie to us, how do you see that? When, when do your brains lie to you? The problem is the brain doesn't always care about what we are thinking. Isn't that amazing? That which does the thinking doesn't care about what we're thinking. 
It doesn't concern itself with what we are doing to maintain those catecholamines, endorphins, dopamines, adrenaline, calories, blood sugar levels that it needs as long as it is getting what it wants. How it is getting them is far too often not its concern either. It just wants us to think we are happy, fitting in and moving, not concerned about if we are moving forward or backwards. Remember, remember Carter's talk today? You know, it doesn't care. And it just keeps going back, even if what we're getting from Instagram is negative or Facebook. Oh yeah, kids don't do Facebook anymore. You know, Snapchat. It doesn't care that people are bullying us or that we feel horrible when we spend five hours looking at it. It just wants us to keep doing it. This illusionary reality can lead us into great peril and dangerous behaviors with food, drug, drug, sex, depression, anxiety, and impulsive activity. You see, sorry to inform you, our brains are not always our friends. Luckily, most of us move out of the teenage years. Some with far more damage than others, but we move out all the same. The rub is, far too many of us never recover that very important harboring connection we once enjoyed. At about age 14, our brains and hearts are hardwired to seek after the divine outside of us and inside of us. At 14, we want to find the divine. It is a hardwired process, yet our society is so guilty of providing such poor role models and mentors for this hardwired belonging. In these teenage brains, if these teenage brains don't meet the standard requirement for the task, they are not led back to that heart-brain connection. When this happens, we become discouraged, disappointed, and far more apt to experience depression, hopelessness, and increased anxiety. And as Dan Gray said, then we go a-searching for something else. I think I'll drink a lot of alcohol because then that will provide me with what I want. Or I think I'll smoke a lot of marijuana. Or I think I'll do dangerous behaviors. Then sadly, the teenage brain stops searching and believing in the possibility of the divine and begins to doubt that it even exists. Sports figures, rock stars, movie stars, and TV celebrities just don't make the cut either. These role models don't provide the stimulus needed to believe there really is something great, wise, and divinely connected in us both internally and externally. This divine 
the teenage brain seeks must be something greater than self and far exceeds what the world has to offer them. With all this struggle and scarcity, still, tragically, some never find it. They go their whole lives without it. When found, the early learned heart-brain connection restores the circuitry and belief that the divine does exist and can be emulated. Not the greatness of ego, but the greatness of unselfish service and love. A connection with humanity awakens within us and others begin to be seen as family and kinsmen and friends and community. Hard-brain connectedness is how we were created in the beginning. Thus, this same capacity and renewed connection is how we function at our best and obtain our highest level, levels of satisfaction and peace. Remember, God don't make junk. He makes us, and he makes us with this profound connection. The divine in us and outside of us allows us to function in whatever lower levels of activity and function we choose. This agency is operable because we have to seek after and fight for the growth and enlightenment of these higher levels of functioning. Yeah, it's hard work. If we really want them, they unfold unto us by seven principles that govern them. Before we leave, let me remind you of seven more principles that are critical for restoring this heart-brain connection. The first is belief. We must first believe these are true principles and are operable in our life. Without belief, nothing is possible. Belief drives intention. The second is to extend the belief. Once we believe and apply what we have learned, then we need to take the leap to extend that which we now believe to other people. We learn so much by teaching what we have just learned to someone else. So go home and teach the principles you've learned. And they will connect, and your heart-brain will love you for it. The third is vulnerability. Without vulnerability, there is no creation. We must remain vulnerable to create. The more we try to control the outcomes and variables of what we think we want, the less likely it is that we get what we want. I had an opportunity for working for a number of years at a fertility clinic at the University of Utah. The more we tried to control the fetus, the more we tried to control the variable, woman after woman left not pregnant. But it's amazing when women adopt children, something happens physiologically and neurologically, and 
so many women then just magically get pregnant. Well, it ain't magic. We remain vulnerable, and when we're vulnerable, we can create. So get vulnerable, guys. The fourth is being childlike. We must remain childlike, open, humble, and teachable, not angry, not ego-focused, not into our own heads. Childlikeness allows creation, and it's contagious, what I said yesterday. Pride and anger destroy creation. The fifth is randomness. The universe operates on principles of randomness. The answer to our longing often comes when we are engaged in some other purposeful activity. How many of you receive revelation in the shower? I think the Lord loves water. <laughs> Allow for randomness as you create. In that fertility clinic, the less we messed with the egg and the sperm, the more women got pregnant. The more we messed with it, creation was gone. We should have just gone home. The sixth is a fascinating process. It's called the space in between. And that's what Michael's been telling me all day. Stay in the space in between. Okay? Because he, he doesn't like the words on my forehead. You know? <laughs> Think of a painting or a piece of art and how the space in between the art and the wall, the frame and the matting significantly enhance the image. How the space in between defies, defines the space in which the art resides. You know, you see much more here and can, than you see with all this clutter. How the space between you and the person next to you is your personal space which allows you to function well in your space without crowding and experiencing uncomfortable intrusion. The seventh and last is get yourself out of the way. We must allow the creative process to flourish on its own, to be given wings to fly, discover, become, fall and get up, fail and then succeed. To have a life of its own, creation has to be accompanied by trust and belief in the entire process. We control each other too much. We control our children. We control our wives. We control people at work. We get angry. We scream at them. All of that destroys creation. Get out of the way. Allow wings to fly. These principles do not come easy. They must be learned, <laughs> earned, 
obtained. How many of us felt like that when we were a teenager? You're 18. Get out of the house. <clears throat> Pursued and gained step by step, here a little and there a little. Heart-brain connection is the disruption that enhances. Heart-brain connection is the disruption that enhances. Our brains are very malleable, able to adapt and change. Our heart brains are very malleable, able to adapt and change. Well, most of them. They are able to take in new information until the day we die. They are able to take in new information until the day we die. Don't limit your brain before it's time, and it won't limit you, unless your name's Homer Simpson. <laughs> the brain and heart are not machines that cannot be healed. What is good for the heart is good for the brain. The standard American diet is killing us and killing our heart-brain connection. We must start to believe what we see and stop seeing what we believe. We must start being concerned about what we consume, not consuming until we drop dead. Find out what is good for the heart and good for the brain and change your diet. Our bodies and our brains are capable of acting as a single connected system. Everything affects everything else. Problems in our gut create major problems in our brain. We must heal our guts if we want to heal our brains and gain this connection. The heart-brain demands a transcendence from the animal-reptilian part of our brain to the greater access to the advanced frontal cortex. This process is a result of successful heart-brain connectivity. Spending our days in front of electronics, games, thank you, Mr. Karchner, games, sports, or the numbing power of binge TV or moving watching, or movie watching, or consuming pornography will not achieve this goal. These above activities feed the limbic animal part of our brains and actually shrink the part of our brains which allow the formation of the heart-brain connection. Serving others, reading books, playing or listening to inspired music, coming to eternal core conferences, Mutual face-to-face -face relationships, meditation, good intention, problem-solving, all of these enhance that heart-brain connection. Being honest, doing honest labor, all of these enhance that heart-brain connection. The heart-brain mirrors its environment. When operable, it produces far better outcomes and reactions. It is not impulsive or quick to anger. It is full of faith, belief, and joy. 
It resides in the brain where happiness and contentment reside. It is not quick to judge or jump to conclusion. It is not led about by our vicious tongues that too often betray and condemn us for speaking too hastily in anger or in condemnation. The heart brain is not divisive. It brings together. It is patient. It unites us. The heart brain seeks correction. Every day of your life, after you choose your spouse, I want you to say, give me correction today and welcome it in. Then you're not going to die of Alzheimer's. Seek after correction. It is submissive, it is true, and it is kind. These concepts are real. These concepts are eternal. You are real. You are eternal. I am thrilled to introduce to you these profound concepts. So heartbrain, meet Shane, and meet Barbara, and meet Sue, and meet Sandy, and meet Ken, meet Phyllis. You'll now become the best of friends. And this relationship is profoundly contagious. It has the power to heal and restore us to what we really are and what we really will become. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity. Drive home safely and connect that heart and brain. Adios. Did anything he said there actually make any kind of sense? He's managed to convince an emeritus general authority to turn up at his conference and endorse and repeat the same language about some kind of reconstruction of a connection between head and heart, by which he seems to actually mean literally your heart is thinking. It's not just a metaphor. Apparently based on some of the ideas from Chinese energy medicine we heard earlier, and notice again also the same tropes of massively oversimplifying complex things, but particularly an absolutely insulting persecution of the young. This narrative that all teenagers rebel against religion and lose something profound, which is why we're losing all of our teenagers. You know, it becomes the big excuse, and only a few of them will hold on to the, the religious thread and get back into it later. What utter nonsense. Teenagers are profoundly spiritual and religious and deep thinking. We send them out as missionaries, for goodness sake. When you demonize a whole category of people or an age group, it becomes far easier to persecute them and to torture them and not see them as real living beings who deserve a rational faith, who deserve a religion that helps them rather than harms them, who deserve a religion that actually practices what it preaches. That's why they're being switched off from this religion and many others. 
It's the hypocrisy. It's the boredom. It's the irrational nonsense they can see being taught. It's not because they severed their brains from their hearts, like some kind of ritual from the Golden Compass books, where young people lose their animal soul avatars. It's all pseudoscientific word salad nonsense that you can't actually explain to another rational person. It uses the jargon of psychiatry and spirituality and religion, but has none of its substance. Ironically, I found wading through this parade of self-important confusion and waffle quite faith-promoting. Real religions, for all their many faults, have substantial concepts in them that have survived a lot of scrutiny in the tests of time and philosophical credibility. Joseph Smith reads like Shakespeare and Aristotle compared to the shallow dreck these people were saying to each other in their imitation of significant religious weight and depth. While one could argue that the flaws in Joseph Smith's mind and religiosity eventually collapsed in a frenzy of adultery and murder and self-destruction, these people, speaking in 2019, took a much shorter time than Joseph to end up publicly notorious for sexual scandals, imprisoned and accused of murdering people. If this is the best the fundamentalist McConkie Mormons can do in our day and age, it rather points to how remarkable Joseph was in what he accomplished in his, even if he was entirely wrong. It really isn't that hard to sift truth and reason and wisdom from lies and irrational foolishness if you just pay attention to people and think through what they are saying. I'm afraid someone has finally had the sense to remove the Eternal Core conference from YouTube, so you won't be able to watch it all for yourself. Tom Harrison seems rather late in the day to have realised that the vultures are circling around him now, and he is in deep doo-doo for what he has been up to. But I learnt early on in this Mormonism-watching game to download the whole thing before it got thrown down the memory hole. When the crazy Mormons do their things in public, you save it fast and save it twice before the exhausted Salt Lake PR operatives turn up like the men in black to try and remove all the evidence that it ever happened. Especially any speeches President Nelson and Wendy give when they are out and about. Those get scrubbed almost instantaneously. Multi-millionaire social selling businessman and entrepreneur guru Ken Krogh, a patient of Tom Harrison after an accident in 2015 damaged his brain, who co-founded Eternal Core with Tom, was fascinating. Thanks to investigations by ex-Mormon Reddit superstar Devils Ravioli and others doing the research, we know that Ken Krogh is an active member of the church. He was introduced to Tom Harrison by, of all people, Rod Meldrum, who in 2008 founded the Heartland Model for the Book of Mormon Location-Obsessed Organization, Firm Foundation. Firm standing for Foundation for Indigenous Research and Mormonism. Rod has also collaborated on projects with Avraham Gileadi. All these fringy factions of the fundamentalist faithful are just as entangled and collaborative with each other as the nuanced and post-Mormon community is. 
But the difference for most of them is that they mostly have temple recommends and a listening ear from general authorities in between their other hobbies and careers, destroying marriages, murdering their children, and ignoring science and reason. Kenkrog started running Tim Ballard's Operation Underground Railroad social media in 2016, and has run the social media for dozens of Utah stakes. He is on the board of a media company called Liberty 89 that was founded by Tim Ballard and also has as a board member Apostle M. Russell Ballard's son-in-law, Brad Brower. Liberty 89's purpose was to publish American-centric Christian nationalist books that Apostle Ballard has mentioned in his talks, along with describing visiting historical sites with Tim Ballard on one of the tours he offers. Tom Harrison attended meetings of Operation Underground Railroad and Liberty 89, and it is reported that his and Tim Ballard's ketamine-assisted visions about the second coming were discussed in them. Thank you, Lynn Packer and others, for your excellent journalism discovering those little tidbits of information. Tim Ballard became famous and influential in LDS circles for pretending to rescue thousands of child sex trafficking victims and recruiting other concerned American citizens in a frenzy of dumbed-down white saviouring. It is so much more fun if you get to be the hero of the story and rescue those poor people in foreign countries with militaristic operations and a camera crew as the solution to their problems, rather than addressing the boring socio-economic injustices of wealth and class and privilege that lead to people selling their bodies and their children to survive. But we should remember he has been much more than that to LDS culture. Tim Ballard has for many years immersed himself in the ideology of American exceptionalist Mormon Christian nationalism and published three books about those ideas, The Washington Hypothesis, The Lincoln Hypothesis, and The Pilgrim Hypothesis. The Washington Hypothesis and The Lincoln Hypothesis were published by the church's own publisher, Deseret Book, and The Pilgrim Hypothesis was printed by Covenant Communications, a division of Deseret Book. They have always been slated by historians for inventing fake connections between the history and founders of the USA and the LDS scriptures and prophets, although of course the groundwork for that is in the Book of Mormon itself and teachings of those prophets past and present who keep forgetting that most of the key founding fathers were highly sceptical about Christianity and more impressed by the values of Freemasonry. The Washington Hypothesis claims that George Washington was visited by the angel Moroni, and the Lincoln Hypothesis says that Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation of the Slaves proclamation was inspired by the Book of Mormon. The Pilgrim Hypothesis runs with the white supremacist privileged bloodlines theme in Mormonism that has Joseph Smith as a literal descendant of Joseph of Egypt 
and inheriting the right to rule the Americas along with the Lamanites, as described in the Book of Mormon, through his pilgrim father ancestors. When Deseret Book recently removed these books, it had spent years promoting and making a lot of money from, from its shelves. The Salt Lake Tribune interviewed two of the leading contemporary Mormon historians for their thoughts, which in my opinion were spot on, and go straight to the point of the church leader's responsibility for not just tolerating, but actively promoting anti-intellectual, superstitious fantasies that will obviously end up causing the church huge problems as they spread like wildfire through an extraordinarily gullible population of Latter-day Saints. Quote, Benjamin Park, Associate History Professor and Director of Graduate Studies at Sam Houston State University, said Ballard's books are more hagiography than history. For his part, Park is pleased the church appears to be removing Ballard's books, but he and others wonder why Deseret Book promoted and sold the books in the first place. Quote, Historians have been highlighting the problems with Ballard's books for over a decade, he said. Many brought their concerns directly to Deseret Book, to no avail. The books were not only profitable, but also fit into a larger and equally problematic Christian nationalism that enraptures many Latter-day Saints. In all likelihood, Park stated, were it not for the morally indefensible activities that resulted in the church distancing itself from Ballard, they would still be on Deseret bookshelves for some time to come. It wasn't Ballard's many, many historical problems that resulted in their removal, but his personal indiscretions, close quote. Taylor Petrie, Associate Professor of Religion at Michigan's Kalamazoo College and the Editor-in-Chief of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, concurred with Park's concerns. Quote, Ballard's books, he wrote in an email, have long been a lightning rod. By any standard of historical credibility, the books should have never been published by a mainstream press. Latter-day Saint historians have expressed dismay and embarrassment that these ideas are so popular and are promoted by the church's publishing company. They are more fiction than fact, close quote. Petrie said Deseret Book publishes and markets many worthwhile books but added Ballard's books do not belong on the shelves of any credible bookstore. Ballard's books, he explained, greatly damaged the reputation of Deseret Book by giving a home to extremist and fantastical history. His books reflect broader trends on the far right, which is increasingly untethered from reality. The cause of this situation is far greater than any one book or press, and extends far beyond the borders of the LDS community. However, by promoting Ballard, Deseret Books bears some responsibility for creating an environment where many Latter-day Saints prefer ideology over evidence. For Deseret Book to carry and promote Ballard's histories, both Park and Petrie maintain, can be construed by some inside and outside the faith as a tacit endorsement of the author's ideas 
on. <laughs> That's it. It's an understatement. They're selling his books in the church bookshop. Huh. Anyway, back to the article. I hope this causes the top leadership at Deseret Book to reconsider their publication standards, Park said. It is a lesson that historical malfeasance is not something to merely ignore. Indeed, the Tim Ballard episode may underscore the fact that the willingness to prioritise sales at the expense of interpretive fidelity might result in larger problems later on. Close quote. For his part, Petrie hopes Deseret Book will learn from this experience and help, quote, curate more responsible content for Latter-day Saint readers going forward, close quote. Ballard's books are still available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble, close quote from the article in the Salt Lake Tribune. So, who is the top leadership of Deseret Book? Why, our very own completely fanatical and delusional Sherry Jew, of course, the Emeritus Relief Society General Presidency Councillor, who keeps declaring that President Nelson and all the LDS prophets are the most perfect people on earth, can see round corners, and should be the only sources of information we listen to and trust. Not only is she the Chief Executive Officer of Deseret Book, she is also now Executive Vice President of Deseret Management Corporation, running all the church's for-profit businesses, and Director of Bonneville International Corporation, the church's media operation. Let that sink in. (laughs) An actual lunatic has taken over that asylum. So is it any wonder? It publishes Tim Ballard's delusional propaganda alongside hers. Similarly, the accused child murderer, Chad Daybell, has a long history of writing oodles of books promoting his worldview within Mormonism, including The Ironic Priesthood, Seven Principles That Will Make This Power a Key Part of Your Life, that my fellow Brit Venger podcaster Nemo the Mormon now finds it hilarious that he was given by his parents when he was a young teenager to inspire him. One could have a sobering philosophical discussion about how the kill rate of these murderers like Chad Daybell compares to the deaths by suicide caused by the rhetoric of shaming and homophobic general authorities like Spencer W. Kimball and Dallin Oaks over the years, and thus conclude who the most impactful monsters in our community really are. But let's get back to multimillionaire Ken Krogh. After running Operation Underground Railway's social media for a while, he became the director of Tim Ballard's Spear Fund Company, and has persisted in defending Tim, even after his other business partners like Glenn Beck have woken up to what he is really like. At the Eternal Core conference, Ken Krogh spoke about how rich and famous self-help guru Tony Robbins was caught up in Tim Ballard's web to become a major celebrity fundraiser. And then, interestingly, how the evangelicals are doing better at keeping their kids than the Latter-day Saints by having a thriving Christian music and film industry and on-campus ministries 
offering authenticity and answers to hard questions. I totally agree with his analysis. The current overlords have killed most of the cultural expression of the Latter-day Saints. They are totally fake in their claims of honest integrity and doing lots to help the needy of the world with the vast wealth we gave them. And they condemn people asking the hard questions as satanic lazy learners asking insincere questions and persecute them. People only trust authentic, peer-reviewed claims. We saw a beautiful story last night with, with Tim Ballard. And Tony Robbins was at one of his big master class conferences where it was $10,000 a person to come to the course for a long weekend. Hundreds and hundreds of people were there. He has a tradition at the end of the course where he gives back, tries to find a cause. They gave an open mic and one of the ladies at the back of the room stands up and says, I want to tell you a story about a man named Tim Ballard and Operation Underground Railroad. They rescued children. She built a pretty compelling case. Tony Robbins was very struck and said, wait, what does it cost to save a child? And uh, she said a jump or a, an insertion, a, a one, one team effort is about fifty dollars to $100,000. And they, they, they average, I think, seven to ten kids that they're able to rescue. And Tony says, well, uh, then I'm in. Um, I put $100,000, and I'm asking everyone in the audience to match me, and um, we'll do dollar to dollar. In seven minutes, they raised $200,000. Um, he said, let's do it again. He put in another 100000 and in 17 to 18 minutes, they raised $417,000. And uh, isn't that amazing? Uh, a couple days later, Tony just couldn't sleep. He said, I want to hear more. So he had his assistant track down Tim Ballard. Tim Ballard gets a call, and uh, uh, this is Tim, this is Tony Robbins. And he said, Tony, Tony Robbins? Like, Tony Robbins? <laughs> And uh, he said, yes. Is this true? Are there two million children in sex slavery and human trafficking? And Tim said, I hate to say it, but yes. He said, I want to see it. I want to see it. And then you saw what happened. They had to disguise him, and he went under. He was on board ship. Um, and they watched it happen, and now he's their largest donor. Um, but he said something remarkable. Tony said, Tim, this may be the most powerful, important cause I have ever heard of. Saving our children. Um, there's a book called Crucial Conversations. Uh, what you say and do when stakes are high. Uh, and what Tony basically said was, this is a cause we all have. Whatever background you share, whatever problems you face, children, trump it all. And um, 
when our dear founder Tom Harrison was made aware and when we put together his background we decided to invite him to leave his private practice and become the uh, one of the chief consultants assisting Operation Underground Railroad. So that's what he's been doing for the last year and a half. And I believe strongly that the Lord is starting by going after the children. Um, you know, we're seeing some trends towards some challenging times ahead. And it's comforting to me that the Lord is reaching out across the all aisles and, and aiming for the children first. Um, 57.8% of the millennial generation have left the church they grew up in. Um, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's actually slightly higher. Uh, I decided to do a research project personally and see are there any organizations that are doing better than that. And I found that our friends, um, the Christian Evangelical and Assembly of God has learned some beautiful things. I wanted to share just a moment, and then I want to tell you the most asked question we had yesterday was, Ken, what is a core story? Um, but I decided to analyze what's going on. Why is there one group of people who've uh, got a much lower loss of their young people? And I could only find three correlating factors. One, the Christian music industry. I have fallen in love with the new newsboys <laughs> and with Amy Grant and with, um, and, and what the Christian music industry has done is find a beautiful spirit-filled alternative to the world's version of rock music. The Christian movie industry there's some amazing, beautiful movies. There's an alternative to Netflix called Pure Flix that is life-changing. There's some amazing movies coming out. God's Not Dead. God's Not Dead Part 2. Um, and then the third factor that I thought was absolutely incredible. Um, On-campus youth ministries going face-to-face -face with the young people with answers to questions that are being asked. Now, the millennial generation um, is, the lowest, is the generation with the lowest level of trust towards established organizations. Um, only 14% of America trusts highly produced advertising content, but 90% of America trusts authentic peer-reviewed content. You don't see a lot of billboards on the freeway or advertisements on television for broccoli. <laughs> and um, the millennial generation is asking for authenticity and answers to hard questions. And what you talked about Rwanda, the conflict between the Tutsis and the Hutu, and, and um, I see conflict in all directions. The hardest challenges we face were either from the right or from the left, or 
our political ideologies trump our belief systems and we this last election was nuts it was so contentious and um, if we let that continue then it's it's a downward spiral we know that contention is a spirit that's not of light so I was asked to consult with um, the LDS Church about five years ago, again about four years ago, and I asked them, I said, what's your single biggest challenge? I was there for over two and a half hours, and they said, oh, without question, addiction. I said, I've never heard that. Where does that come from? And they said, oh, and then I remembered, oh my gosh, he did those 12 addiction videos. Okay, I get it. Um, and addiction's a subset of mental health. So that's a challenge across all lines, amongst all people. And if God made us, he can fix us. And here's the challenging thing. The use of medications is going up. The prescriptions are increasing. The types of medications are, are increasing. There's billions of dollars that go into launching medication and there's a definitely a place for medication a lot of good is being done but the biggest need in mental health is addiction Alema Harrington yesterday talked about his opioid addiction as you're going down the I-15 corridor isn't that that's the main billboard that you see that crosses all lines <laughs> and um, so it seems ironic to me. Now, I have no qualifications to be in this audience speaking today. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I have, I, I actually, I did get a, a bachelor's degree in psychology. I'm qualified to push a broom at midnight in a psych ward somewhere. <laughs> you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I went down a different path and became an entrepreneur. My only qualifications to be here today is I got in a car accident three years ago. I was asked in August of 2015 to work closely with 54,000 young single adults and in Utah County to teach them how to use social media as a tool, not a toy. And I had just begun moving down that pathway when within two and a half weeks, I got in a car accident that about took me out. I was driving home on my lunch hour as the founder of InsideSales.com. At the time, it was valued at $2 billion. I was the second largest shareholder with four batteries for my mobile home to go replace. I'm turning off State Street at 55 miles an hour in my big Chevy Silverado, slowing down in the turn lane with a big Ford truck and trailer coming down the hill. And um, a young lady in a Honda pulls out in front of the Ford without looking. And moments later, um, he tried to swerve to miss her kicked me into my oncoming lane and threw my 
truck clear across the freeway into the steel barrier. Through her the other direction, she had to be life lighted. And um, in a moment, my life changed. Now, I'd been going down the path where if I'd have stayed on it, I would have been worth three or four hundred million dollars. I had learned to manipulate the honors of men on behalf of my clients. I built $20,000 a day to come in and consult and teach them how to become famous, how to become thought leaders, how to um, make their companies worth a lot of money using social and digital media. I had done that for myself. I was ranked number one in the world at what I did. And the Lord picked me up mercifully and pulled me right out of that. I got up to speak a few weeks later in San Francisco at the large trade show down there for Salesforce.com. I'd been the keynote speaker in many conferences all over the world. I'm on stage. Uh, took me five times longer to write my talk. And I started saying inappropriate things. And most of the people in the industry knew Ken Krogh, a Mormon kid out of Utah, he doesn't usually talk that way. I knew I was in trouble. And I came home and talked to my dear wife. And, um, and shortly after that, I went on some business trips and um, started realizing I was having temptations. I gained like 35 pounds. I started having uncontrollable temptations around pornography. And it was weird temptations, things you'd have as a teenager. I couldn't even slow it down. I knew I was in trouble. I, I tried to get some help. No one knew what was going on. And um, I said some heartfelt prayers. And... Uh, I knew, I, and then I heard a recording of a man in a sort of a seminar with another man, and that man's voice was very familiar to me, but I didn't know his name. And um, the next day I went to meet with a dear friend of mine, Rod Meldrum, about a seminar we were supposed to be having together. I have a nano silver technology company, it's really fun. and. Um, I was going to be at his trade show. That's all I knew about Rod Meldrum. I said, I'm having some real, and I showed up in my sling from my broken arm, and my hand had gone through the glass, and I wasn't speaking very clearly, and I was hurting like crazy. When your vertebrae accelerates to a net 70 miles an hour in a fraction of a second, um, you're, you're destined for years of challenges. And I said, I need to meet a man who I think can help me. And Rod says, oh, well, that man's name's Tom Harrison. And here's his phone number. That was the next day. So I called him up, and I asked my dear wife, I said, Crystal, will you come to this, meet with me with this man? And he said, well, I'm not even free, Ken, for about a week and a half. He was booked out, and we went up there. And shortly after conversing, he said, oh, well, Ken, let me, let me guess, the, the airbag slightly right of center, um, he got hit in the back of the head, he said, okay, that's called a contra-coup concussion. It's been sort of nicknamed a brain slap. 
Your cognitive controls, your emotional controls have both been damaged or bruised. He said, you, you're not able to stop what you say, right? Yep, yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> it's almost Tourette syndrome, but not quite. It's a little bit more refined. But um, when you're up on stage saying things and, and cracking jokes that no one laughs at, and uh, people, what's wrong with Ken? In an industry, I, am, I almost invented. And he said, it'll come back. But you have to go redo the things you did to put those filters in place. He said, let me put it this way, Ken. Somehow, God has blessed you with an open mind. <laughs> and I, um, I had been middle, in the middle of this conflict between different groups of Latter-day Saints debating over things like, where did the Book of Mormon happen? And why is this? Why is that? And I had been in the middle of it thinking, okay, I'm supposed to help 54,000 young people learn how to use social media. And if they get in the middle of these discussions, it's going to be worse than if we didn't even bring it up. I went back into my journal of a few weeks before the accident and I had written down I don't know what to do I can't figure out who's right Heavenly Father bless me with an open mind be really careful what you ask for I was meeting with Tom. I said, Tom, why do I, and before I could say, he said, Ken, why do I feel like I know you? I said, Tom, why do I know your voice? Tom's got a pretty distinctive voice. He said, I don't know, but let's talk about it next week. And I said, and why am I having these crazy urges and temptations and appetites? I can't even slow them down. He says, well, let's talk next week. By the way, Tom excuses himself and goes to the restroom quite often. What I've learned is he's really going to turn to Father and ask, how do I help this person? Linda, you've got an amazing husband. So I came back, and he said, Ken, I need to ask you, what's your calling in the LDS church? I'm like, why are you asking me that? What does that have to do with anything? No, just humor me. I said, well, two and a half weeks before this accident, I was asked to be the head of social media ministering for the young single adults in Utah County, 30 stakes, 54,000 of them. And he said, what's their greatest challenge? I said, without question, it's pornography. I said, oh, he said, Ken, you can't help what you don't know. And within a month, it was gone. It was utterly, completely, totally 
gone. And Tom was like my personal Obi-Wan, but it wasn't him, and he says it. He says he turned me to the force. He turned me upstairs to the Lord. And ever since then, I'm really careful about asking for an open mind or anything else. About six months ago, Tom had a very clear uh, vision of this conference, that we would be here today, and that we would be addressing the single most challenging thing in all of our lifetimes, and that's the needs of our young people. And then Tim is addressing the needs of the children. The Lord's coming before too long and it's comforting to me that he's starting with the children and he's asking us to reach across all lines and help our young people and uh, so my company had not gone public it had not been purchased all of my so-called value was just on paper we'd taken a little bit of money off the table along the way probably seven or eight million dollars and I talked to my dear wife and I said can we uh can we put what we got on the table and make a difference? And she was with me. And so we formed a little organization called Mobilize. Mobilize International. It was just approved to be a nonprofit. And we decided we would uh, walk into the fray. Right after that, I was asked by Tim Ballard to become the chief architect for the social media strategies for Op Operation Underground Railroad almost three years ago. We've got some amazing people like Clay here. You know, Clay joined a LDS Influencers Conference a while back with me, and I told him that I had had a dream that I was telling that story that I just told you. I mean, who admits they've had an addiction to pornography for two and a half straight months that was uncontrollable? That's called vulnerability. Brene Brown, I'm a fan of hers. She says it's one of the most powerful things you can do is be open, be authentic, be vulnerable, lay it out there. Everybody else, all of us, we're just, we're just holding our privacy and, our, and keeping it to ourselves, and we're not willing to share. What are we really feeling and going through? So there it is. And in my dream, I had seen myself telling my story to Clay Olson. Here he is for the second time hearing it. He's got three million followers in this cause to overcome pornography. He's one of the only people on the planet that's figured it out, how to turn it into a cause for the millennial generation who love a cause, and they become fighters. We invited Tom to leave his practice, become part of Mobilize, <laughs> only because we knew we were supposed to, and then out of the blue I said, by the way, what are we going to have you do, Tom? And then immediately we realized he's one of the world experts on working with children with deep trauma. And I've just been asked to, to handle the consulting for OUR. So it worked out great. Last year and a half, he's been helping. But now he's left that, and we're doing this. We know we might be trying to boil the ocean. This is one big thing. How do you even handle mental health and addiction? But you know what? It's a big problem. But don't tell God you got a big problem. Tell your problem 
you've got a big God. Because we do. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And I'm inviting you to be part of it. I've put a million dollars into it, and I'm out of money. But I knew we had, if we build a model home, and if people went on a tour with us, they'd say, ah, I want to be part of that. So we're asking for your help today. We're going to be talking a bit more about how do we get involved in Eternal Core. Well, you start with your own story. You start with time, resources, finances. And maybe we can learn, like what, Tim, what Clay Olson's done, we can, we can build a cause that does some good. You couldn't make up how the Eternal Core Conference marketed Tim Ballard's presentation as a date night dinner. Considering how many people's wives Tim Ballard is now accused of manipulating into adulterous sexual activity with him, the very last person you should ever go to to be mesmerized by on a date night is Tim Ballard. He gave a barnstorming performance talking about OUR and the Sound of Freedom movie with lots of emotionally elevating film clips. We have uh, just had an amazing first five years as an organization. We've been able to rescue uh, over 2,000 victims of child trafficking. We have, thank you. We've been able to arrest uh, over 1,000 pedophiles and traffickers. And we're currently in 20 countries and in 22 states actively operating. In fact, I, like I said, my operators are here. Uh, we're planning a series of major operations in several different countries right now uh, that are just going to blow the roof off some of these places. So we're, we're really excited. We're moving fast, quietly, everywhere we went. I'm like, Tony, you like dropped a half a million dollars in the last like five hours. You know, uh, what is up with you? What, what are you doing? He's like, you don't know? You don't know the secret? I said, what? What's the secret? He said, that the secret to living is giving? I said, okay, what, what does that mean? He's like, all right. If I'm going to really do this, if I'm going to explain this to you, uh, I'm going to take you into my office. And he's in this beautiful home on the beach, and he has this beautiful big office. He's like, I'm going to take you into my office. We're going to close the door. And these were exact words. He said, and I'm going to give you a blessing. And I thought, okay, that's unusual. Coming from Tony Robbins, what is this? My first thoughts went to the movie Shallow Howl. Have you seen the movie Shallow Howl? When he gives Jack Black a blessing in, in the broken elevator. This scene right here. I, I got one. I got one. Devils, come out! What the hell are you doing, banana hands? So, I'm going with banana hands into his office, and he's going to give me a blessing. So we, I sit down. He didn't do that to me. We sat down, and all I can, I can't get into the details. I don't have time, but basically, he put me into a very meditative state. It was a prayer, a meditation, but what he did was he got me into a state where I was in, in, in pure communication with my brain, with my past, with my body, and, and thinking of times when people had served me or when I had served other people and just being grateful for those times and going back and forth and, and there was music involved and it was, there was prayers involved and... He, told me, he asked me, how do you feel? 
And I, I, I immediately went back to the 4th Street exit. That's what I felt as I made that decision to serve. That's what I felt. I felt optimism, creativity. I felt light, energy, optimism, courage, all those things. In fact, he said to me, who do you hate right now? Because we all hate somebody at any given time, right? Who's that person? Do you have them in your head? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an easy one. Um, and, and he said, what do you think about that person right now? I said, I have no ill will. I, I, I love this guy. He's like, exactly. Can you imagine what this does to you? I said, what, what is this? What's going on? And he pointed me to the science behind what was going on. Uh, and, and I started researching, and I went to my resident expert, who is your host, Tom Harrison. I said, Tom, what's going on? Is this real? What is this? And, and Tom said, absolutely, and explained it to me. In fact, I'm going to read a quote from Tom. He says, the research is conclusive through ongoing acts of service, charity, thoughts of kindness. The brain releases a powerful cocktail of chemicals which include oxytocin, endorphins, dopamine, and others. These chemicals produce in the recipient positive benefits which, include, which produce higher levels of achievement, increased creativity, positivity, optimism, and enhanced team unity. As I thought of those attributes, these are very important attributes. Creativity, optimism, love, team unity. Why, why is it so important? Because you can't really teach that. If you're a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, an employer, you want your children, your employees, your, your family members, you want them to have these attributes. You want them for yourself, but you can't give them a textbook and say, here, learn creativity. Learn team unity, but just read this chapter and learn team unity. Learn courage. I don't know how you do that. These are attributes that are, are, are beyond the ability to just sit down and read and, 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 and really get it and receive it. But this is how you do it. Through service, through acts of service, you get these amazing gifts. You get downloads. I want to propose something. I want to propose that we right now are proving this principle because I've done this presentation and I'm looking out here and I know something that's going on right now. I know that there's a lot of you who are having very irrational thoughts, beautiful irrational thoughts. <laughs> and you're thinking, you, you have zero law enforcement experience, you've never done anything like this, but you are right now willing, if I told you go undercover right now into a dangerous part of the world, you would go right now. And you know, you know who you are, you know what I'm talking about, I know you're feeling it. You're feeling a super amount of optimism and courage and creativity and all sorts of things are going through your mind. Your bodies are changing right now. This is the principle. And, and this is just from watching these heroic stories of people like Gesno, Marty, and little Colleen and seeing these acts of service, just witnessing and thinking about it you are getting that chemical reaction. You're feeling these things. And the heavens are opening, and you're having ideas. This is a true principle, and you can apply it to anything and all things that you are doing. It's amazing, and it's beautiful. And I'm going to come back a little later. We can talk more details, turn the cameras off, and, and talk about things that otherwise we probably wouldn't. Um, but I want to ask you, as you're experiencing this right now, I want just two things. 
I want to ask you to do? Um, well, three. I'm going to add three things. Okay, first, please go to OURrescue.org and go to where it says join the fight and just be inspired about what you can do to help us rescue children. You will know before I do. You can ask me what, what I can do and I'm going to tell you, you'll know before I know. Heaven will tell you before I can tell you. So that's one. Two, go watch the documentary called Operation Two Saint. That's how you spell it. It's on Amazon Prime, it's free. Go to Amazon Prime, watch Operation Two Saint, and ask yourself the same question as you're watching the documentary, what can I do to fight this cause? And three, and maybe more, the most important thing, we're not the only cause out there. There's so many people in need of service. Take what you've learned today and, and how you feel today and just go serve. Make service part of your personal culture, your family culture, your community culture, your professional culture, and you watch what happens. If the world would all do this, can you imagine what a great place it would be? So I'm really excited to come back in about 40 minutes or so and, we'll, and think of some questions and we can talk more um, in the meantime, I think they're going to serve you up dinner. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So what were the key messages from each presenter curated by Tom Harrison and Ken Krogh at the Eternal Core Conference? They add up to the total worldview of these prepper religious fundamentalist control freaks. Authoritarian and ruthless parenting and therapeutic strategies are best because Jody Hildebrand has been told by God the simple solution to all mental illnesses, which matches what President Nelson teaches. Just choose to believe, to be good, to make a miracle happen. And any sacrifice or extreme measure is worth it to get your marriage and your kids lined up in a row on the covenant path before they die, or you will never see them again. Trust feelings and visions over rational thought and analysis. Don't trust secular experts like scientists or your school teachers to be telling you the truth. From the Hafens. There is no point trying to change the church because its leaders are infallible. So you deal with discovering the real truth that they aren't infallible compared to your idealized belief that they are, that they taught you to believe about them, by giving up hope for change and instead changing your own attitude to relabel blind obedience as informed, eyes wide open total conformity obedience. And somehow that makes it okay and makes it make sense. Just trust that everything messed up in the church is exactly how God wants it to be and he knows what he is doing. This episode is already really long, so I will save the detailed analysis of the Hafen's fascinating presentation at Eternal Core for the next episode. God is working great things through LDS people who trust their feelings and their own ideas more than anybody else's, 
to justify pretty much any kind of exploitation or cruelty to other people, like Jody Hildebrand and Tim Ballard, one of whom is in jail now and highly likely to be joined soon by the other. It's no wonder so many women are attracted to these alternative outlets for their passion and skills outside the mainstream correlated church life. Things are actually getting worse for women in the church this year. Only three female speakers in October 2023 General Conference again, and now the North America West Area Presidency that covers California, led by President Mark A. Bragg, has told the wards and stakes in that region to end their long tradition of having female leadership presidencies sit on the stands in meetings along with bishoprics and stake presidencies as a mark of respect for their work and importance, even though the female general presidencies get to sit on the velvet thrones with the apostles in general conference. Not surprisingly, this has not gone down well with the faithful female leaders in that region and plenty of other regions. As one of them said, why would they take away from us this crumb? Another way women are being intentionally disempowered was discussed recently in Mormon News Roundup, episode 89, one hour seven minutes in, responding to the Salt Lake Tribune's Mormonland podcast about this. Divas Lazarus's co-host that week was Rob Tobler of the President Please Help Me TikTok channel. He made the points that I and many others have, that the LDS Church is the last place left where young women in the developed world are experiencing blatant relegation of women to second-class citizen status. They also pointed out that originally the Relief Society chose its own leadership, and its presidents served for life, like the apostles do, enabling them to become experienced and respected authority figures and steer long-term projects and innovations. These days, the female general leaders are constantly replaced by men on a fast rotation, so cannot embed or challenge the male leaders who can release them at any moment, like all the other female leaders in the church. As you know, Rob, there's a, you know, this is from Mormonland. The apostle vacancy has spurred some questions about men who run the church for life. You know, the system for picking leaders in this hierarchy has been regularized. But the advancing ages have some asking whether it's time for more changes. What are your thoughts about the latest shakeup in the Quorum of the Fifteen, Rob? Well, I think we know what's going to happen, but it, it does give the church an opportunity to reconsider its, uh, its way of picking leaders and its policy of not allowing leaders to, uh, the top 15 leaders, to go on emeritus status, such as, uh, as we saw the Pope step down and, and things like this. I believe that the the um, the method that they currently utilize will ensure that we always have a gerontocracy and that the good ship Zion will turn very slowly and usually be about three decades behind the world. Yeah, it is. It'd be nice to see emeritus status for the general authorities. You know, there's no reason, as we covered last week, for President Holland, who was just put in as the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve, he literally said at Elder Ballard's funeral that in the last five weeks he had been hospitalized for five weeks, three of which were he was in a coma. How are you going to lead, help lead this multi-billion, this tens of hundreds of billions of dollar organization when you're 90, 95 years old 
and you've been in a coma for three weeks, how are you supposed to receive revelation from divine sources when you can barely um, stay when you're in a coma? It just makes no sense to have these individuals stay in power. The only thing that makes sense for them is that they've waited their entire lives to have these powerful moments and they're not about to give them up. No, that, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, concerning the option of having an emeritus status, it appears that historically the God of Mormonism would prefer to kill his leaders off to make sure that they arrive at the uh, president in the right order. And that if they do lead the church to stray, he can take them out. Yeah, that'd be nice if it was done in a timely manner, but it just seems to be incredibly ad hoc. The other thing that the article mentioned about uh, church callings is that historically, Amongst women, Joseph Smith allowed the sisters to choose their own Relief Society president, and there were no term limits. These women served for life as well. Why are women being treated so differently? Why can't they pick their own president? And why are they limited to five-year terms? Yeah, I mean, the Relief Society presidents used to be long-serving, and it was, I think, back in about the 1990s that the five-year term limit started getting put on the Relief Society presidencies. And that was from the Mormon Land podcast with uh, Dr. Bowman. He talked about the history of that and the fact that most likely his, his reasoning behind why ch uh, women don't serve for long periods of time in the church now is to diminish their influence and diminish their power. If you have a rotating cast at the top of the young women's and the and the primary yep. and the release society, if they're always rotating, if they never have, if they only have a five-year term limit, you don't get to know them and their influence then is diminished. I think he nailed it. The Handmaid's Tale Mormon Gilead is gathering its strength as the feminists, intellectuals, LGBTQ allies and liberals leave or are excommunicated and the patriarchal Pharisees rule the roost increasingly unquestioned and unopposed. As the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints contracts to a hardcore of very rich, end-times fundamentalists, we can already see what their Amish-like remnant curiosity in a corner of Utah, jostling shoulders with the polygamous fundies is going to look like. What is the solution for the clear and present danger posed to our church and its members by the mental health, parenting, community norms and living of a religious lifestyle embodied in the Eternal Core Conference and all the other conferences, firesides, therapy and counselling services and businesses promoting the same ideas? The solution is the same as the solution for the same extremist dysfunctions and decision-making playing out among the general authorities destroying the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from their positions of power and influence. Rational scrutiny and accountability. No effort was made from within the ranks of bishops and more senior leaders directing the Church's affairs who refer thousands of their ward members to these monsters for counselling or promote and publish their ideas and their books to scrutinise and check what they are actually doing and saying in their books and websites and training resources and counselling interviews with vulnerable people. It is enough that they are church members with a temple recommend to be afforded total trust. We have made this mistake of trusting too much all of my life in the church. 
it can have wonderful community benefits that we can move to anywhere in the world with an LDS congregation and immediately be afforded trust, leadership roles, support and huge reservoirs of patience and goodwill simply because we are church members who seem to be living the righteous lifestyle, dressing the right way, using the right language, declaring the correct testimonies. We are in the in crowd. But we might also be sexual predators, or affinity fraudsters, or totally lying about it all, and no precautions are taken usually to protect the congregation and its children from these kinds of people. In fact, the usual response to people raising the alarm about such predatory wolves in sheep's clothing is to not believe them, to minimise their suffering and the threats the bad people pose, bending over backwards to forgive them and tell their victims to forgive and forget and not warn other people about the danger they pose. An actual recording has gone viral this month as part of the Associated Press's ongoing investigation into the systemic enabling and covering up of child abuse in the LDS Church by the same spotlight team that investigated and first exposed the same going on in the Catholic Church in the USA and then globally. It is an example of the Church's lawyers offering one of their many hundreds, probably thousands, of payoffs to victims of sexual abuse in the church in return for legally binding commitments to stay publicly silent about the abuse so others are not warned of the danger the abuser poses to them, or the threats posed by the church's systems of enabling and covering up that abuse that continues to endanger everyone else's children. The recording was made six years ago in 2017. 31-year-old Chelsea Goodrich, whose father was a bishop and regularly abused her for years as a girl, accompanied by her mother Lorraine, was having a series of meetings with attorney Paul Writing, head of the church's risk management division, who knew they had that. Chelsea's father, John Goodrich, had confessed to his bishop that he had committed the abuse a little before he was arrested and charged for it and Chelsea wanted the church to authorise that bishop to testify about the confession in court. She also gave the police recordings of her father confessing to the abuse to family members, and Paul writing in his conversations with her acknowledged the abuse was real. The General Handbook strongly discourages LDS clergy from testifying in court cases in any way, and this is one of the several components of how the church proactively obstructs justice and prosecuting child abusers and other LDS criminals. Because the bishop was told not to testify, the prosecutor dropped the charges against John Goodrich, feeling that without that witness of a confession, the jury would be less likely to just believe Chelsea because the abuse happened years earlier and her mother Lorraine was divorcing John and the taped confessions were not considered to be enough. John was, however, excommunicated from the church. So the church accepted he was guilty of abuse, and administered its own trial and punishment for it, but would not cooperate with the criminal justice system punishing him, 
and protecting other potential victims too. The church's risk management director, Paul Writing, offered Chelsea $300,000 to never use the situation as the basis of a lawsuit against the church, to never acknowledge the existence of the non-disclosure agreement, and to destroy their recordings of their meetings. She was still allowed to talk about the abuse. Eric Alberti, a church member at the time who also recorded the meetings, which he attended as Chelsea's advocate and was not subject to the non-disclosure agreement, gave his recordings to the Associated Press team to assist with their investigation and tried to have John stop being offered the trust in the community that could enable him to abuse again and to stop the church paying people to be silent about these kinds of cases. The church helpline insisted that the bishop not testify in court on the basis of Idaho's laws protecting clergy confessor confidentiality that mean the clergy can refuse to share information about a confession if the confessor does not give them permission to. The LDS Church has continued this year to team up with the Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses who also have appalling track records of facilitating and covering up child abuse by their clergy, to oppose repeated attempts by campaigners to change the laws in states allowing that clergy-penitent confidentiality and instead make clergy mandatory reporters. However, in response to the revelations of the Associated Press's journalism, the Catholic Church decided 21 years ago in its Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, to stop using non-disclosure agreements, or NDAs, as a tool for silencing victims of abuse, unless they request anonymity. Recognising what a dangerous and powerful tool it was in the arsenal of abuse cover-up operations, the LDS Church still uses them as its number one preferred response to potential prosecution by its abuse victims. Millions of tithing dollars have been paid out to silence victims and allow abusers to continue their normal lives and access to more victims, rather than risk further embarrassment to its public reputation, or just do what is right and let the consequence follow, as they teach LDS children to sing, but do not actually believe or practice themselves as an institution. After dragging out the Arizona case of the girls repeatedly raped by their father with the full knowledge of the two succeeding bishops he confessed to over many years, and the lawyers on the helpline insisting that those bishops not inform the police and stop the abuse happening to those girls, the Arizona courts finally ruled recently that the church was protected by those laws and could not be sued for justice and compensation by those victims. The response to that verdict by the LDS Church was, quote, We are pleased with the Arizona Superior Court's decision, granting summary judgment for the church and its clergy and dismissing the plaintiff's claims, close quote. Pleased that the victims of his abuse, facilitated by the LDS Church, will never get justice and that the church can continue doing the same again and again when abuse is reported to their clergy in Arizona and a lot of other states with the same laws.
This is not compulsory, remember. It is the church's choice to claim that immunity from responsibility using these laws. They can at any time instead allow their clergy to report abuse to the police. Chelsea's father, John Goodrich, is still a practicing dentist with access to children and was recently convicted of using his dentistry drugs to dope a woman he was having an affair with. So, please, as we continue to learn about the mindset and crimes of these headline-grabbing individuals engaging in cruelty, hypocrisy, lies and abuse of the innocent, do not for a moment kid yourself that these are rogue individuals acting independently of the LDS Church or functioning on a completely different psychological and ethical basis to the mainstream church. The same general authorities the faithful vote to sustain and declare to be the mouthpieces of God and never leading the church astray and telling their children to trust more than any other people in the world are constantly spending huge amounts of tithing money to fund its lawyers and the risk management department to prioritise a false public reputation as a respectable religious organisation that does not tolerate abuse of any kind, to not just tolerate abuse, but proactively perpetuate it, and protect church members, or even members it has excommunicated, who are just as monstrous and dangerous and evil as these characters, and in many cases much more so. I sent you a letter indicating that the church was prepared to assist up to $90,000. I've been back and um, I explained a little bit more detail to those who make these decisions and indicated that one of the best ways we can help you to, and is it your mother? Yes, is my to try to figure mother. a way to, one of the things that you pleaded for is just, can we have some this little stability? Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I have authorization up to $300,000. Michael Resenders of the Spotlight team at Associated Press has not finished yet. He has already done sterling work to get the ball rolling, shining public scrutiny on the church's abuse operation. But one thing continues to lead to another, and he concluded his reporting about this case by noting in another case This same man, Paul Writing, who has led the risk management department for 15 years, stated officially that the church has its abuse helpline operatives and lawyers destroy their records of what is being reported to them every day, so there is no paper trail. But in these recorded meetings with Chelsea and Lorraine, he said that he could check their archives to see if their father had confessed to abusing her previously, and whether that had been reported by his bishop at the time to the helpline, and later said there is no record of that, which indicates that these documents are not destroyed and could therefore be subpoenaed in the future. This opens a huge can of worms for the church that taught me all about how once you tell one lie, you have to keep telling more and more lies to maintain the first one until it all becomes too much to keep up and the truth eventually gets revealed. As I keep saying, 
if the church actually practiced what it teaches us in primary and the seminary scripture mastery lists, it wouldn't have most of the problems destroying it now. And as other awesome podcasts like Latter-day Struggles and At Last She Said It keep saying, why doesn't the church seem to believe or practice its own stuff? Why is it so hard for it to just believe and practice what it preaches? The church members are scrupulous about trying to get that exactly right with integrity. But somehow, no one higher up the ranks of priesthood leadership is being anything like as careful. It is no wonder their interconnected webs of lies are unravelling so horrifically now in the full glare of publicity and the world's press. By failing to take that responsibility or act with integrity, by refusing to listen to its critics screaming warnings towards the church for years, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been directly responsible for inflicting appalling cruelty on an ever-growing list of children. The babies and children being raped by their parents when their bishops know all about it and are doing nothing to stop it. The young LGBTQ people having their hope and self-worth ripped from them by what apostles teach in general conference and ending their lives. The children being brutally tormented by paranoid parents turned into monsters by beliefs the church has taught them and counsellors and guides it has recommended to them. Ruby Frankie and Jodie Hildebrand have just appeared in court and entered guilty plea confessions of some of the things they both did to Ruby's youngest children this summer while they were literally imprisoned in Jodie's home and their older siblings hidden in the homes of other people in their connections business. TikToker The Recap with Julie Louise has been following developments and summarises the charges for us here. Trigger warning. What you're about to hear is extremely upsetting, but I want to include it here for the record so that no one who hears it can fool themselves or be deceived by other people downplaying how bad this was and how it was done by the same people followed by millions on the Eight Passengers podcast and rubbing shoulders with emeritus general authorities at the Eternal Core conference curated by Tom Harrison. How these people were trusted temple recommend holders, integrated into the normal life of their LDS congregations and culture. We have a problem, and we all have a duty of care to our core values and beliefs and our children to do whatever it takes to dismantle this whole operation of manipulation and abuse and replace it with the far better systems and practices we should be more than capable of insisting upon and making happen. We now know the details of what Ruby Frankie and Jody Hildebrand had been doing to Ruby's two youngest children. Trigger warning right now, guys, because this is way worse than I thought. As you know, Ruby Frankie was in court today. She pled guilty to four out of the six child abuse charges, and she has agreed to testify against Jody Hildebrand. From her statement released by her lawyer this week, it sounds like she is putting a lot of the blame on Jody Hildebrand. 
Ruby did have family members in attendance today. She had her brother, Beau, her sister, Julie, and her parents were also there. It appears they have returned home. They did appear to arrive together, and when Ruby entered the courtroom, she did turn and look at them and smiled. If you haven't seen the courtroom footage yet, it is in my previous post. I'm going to now read to you exactly what Ruby has admitted to, the things that she has done to her two youngest children, her 10-year-old daughter and her 12-year-old son. She's admitted to four counts out of the six of child abuse, and it appears to have started May 22nd, 2023. I am going to read some of this just to make sure that I get all the facts straight, so bear with me. One of the first things I noticed in this document was that it does appear that Ruby Frankie is taking responsibility for doing some of this to her children. It's worded like this. Ruby intentionally or knowingly inflicted and allowed another adult to inflict serious physical injuries upon her 9 and 11-year-old children. So it does say that she inflicted this as well. The first count of child abuse has to do with physical torture of her 12-year-old son. It says that initially she was forcing him to do physical labor for hours and days at a time. And the examples listed were doing wall sits, which is when you put your back up against a wall and squat down. It's absolute torture for anyone that has tried to do this. The other is carrying boxes of heavy books up and down stairs repeatedly. And the third example was the fact that he was being forced to work outside and do labor outside in the crazy Utah heat. As you know, in Utah, temperatures can get up to over 100 degrees. This is one of the things that Jody Hildebrand's neighbor had actually told the police about was that she would look outside and she would see the children outside in crazy hot temperatures doing gardening. It also listed that he was made to do all of this barefoot and that he was also forced to stand outside in direct sunlight for hours and even days at a time. He was also forced to stay outside at all hours of the day and night for extended periods of time. This of course resulted in, as you can imagine, extremely serious sunburns. It resulted in blisters and repeated slothing of the skin. So his skin was literally peeling off. He was denied food and water while he was doing this, and he would actually be punished if he was caught drinking water while he was outside. It went on to say that if they did feed him, he was given extremely bland, boring foods like a piece of chicken and some rice while the rest of the family had a normal meal. He was being isolated from everyone in his life, and he was also refused any form of entertainment, which of course included electronics, but it also included books and any kind of paper. It also says that he apparently tried to run away previously. It was in July and it looks like once they got him back, that is when they started restraining him. They initially tied up his wrists and his ankles and they would tie him to weights or to Ruby as well. They also would get him to lay on his belly and they would put his hands behind his back, handcuff his wrists, handcuff his ankles, and then tie the handcuffs together. This apparently caused excessive damage to his tissue and his muscles. And once he had open wounds, they would put some sort of homeopathic remedy on it, put duct tape over the wounds, and then put the handcuffs over the duct tape. The document also listed three specific incidences that Ruby Frankie has admitted to. Number one was that she was kicking him while wearing boots. Number two, she said she held his head underwater. And number three, she said she would cut off his oxygen with her hand over his mouth and nose. 
Count number two is for the severe emotional harm she caused to her son. It stated that Ruby and Jody sought to indoctrinate him. They were trying to convince him that he was evil and possessed. It went on to say that he had to be willing to be obedient to avoid punishments, that his punishments were necessary for him to repent, and that they were doing all of this out of love. The next two counts are for what she has done to her 10-year-old daughter. The first count is for severe emotional harm, and it does look like she endured exactly what her brother had endured, other than apparently the binding and also the three specific incidences that I had mentioned. She had been isolated the same way. She had been forced to do physical tasks and remain outside for extended periods of time. She was also denied food and water and told that she was evil and possessed. And the final count, count four, was that these actions caused two or more physical injuries to her daughter. It says that she was forced to work outside in heat, barefoot as well. And she was also forced to run on dirt roads, apparently barefoot. So she had extensive injuries to her feet repeatedly. They said that when they found her, she was extremely sunburnt. She had blisters and her skin was peeling off as well. Ruby Frankie is going to be sentenced on February 20th. We don't know right now what that is going to look like, but I will definitely be updating on this case. So make sure to hit follow. LDS leaders will galvanize themselves to minutely monitor and discipline anyone spreading ideas about being inclusive or telling the truth about our history or not asking sexually inappropriate questions in worthiness interviews. But if you are a whack job, spouting American exceptionalist patriotism, last-day prepper extremism, paranoid, brutal parenting, or bringing God into the therapist's room, you are very likely to get a free pass, a promotion, a photo opportunity with the GA, and a lot of church money, one way or another. Maybe it's because nothing these people who seem like entirely crazy extremists today are saying is that far outside of what was totally normal for us all a few decades ago under the leadership of men like Ezra Taft Benson and what they taught. It probably makes them feel nostalgic for the good old days when you could be assertively and viciously racist and homophobic and get a pat on the head from your prophet. And then it all blows up. In the next episode of this Take Back Control miniseries, we will venture into the infuriating, fascinating, and often very funny and exasperating world of the hyper-conservative, McConkie-Mormonism, politicised and mostly paranoid and conspiracy theorist world of the podcasting apologists for the LDS Church, who have made heroes of people like Tim Ballard and Tom Harrison and Jody Hildebrand. How have they been reacting and adjusting to their first experience of the church ruthlessly turning on them and their heroes? After years of cheerleading when the church excommunicated and publicly condemned our heroes, where are Cardinalis and Quakuel and the rest of the tits that Fair Mormon put front and centre of their attempts to engage the young and stop them leaving the church over its history now? It was the shock of that parade of crass stupidity in This Is The Show that catapulted Brit Venger Nemo the Mormon into his first forays as a podcaster. He was so horrified by them. And the tits gifted me the F-word bleep I used in some of my earlier audio-only episodes. 
Um, in a Tribune story that we published on Tuesday, Elder Oaks, you were quoted as saying that the church doesn't seek apologies and we don't give them. And of course, this sparked a, a whole storm on social media about those who, who wonder how this view comports with Christian theology. Uh, again, wanted to give you a, an opportunity to respond to that. I'm not aware that the word apology appears anywhere in the scriptures, Bible or Book of Mormon. Uh, the word apology c contains a lot of connotations in it and a lot of significance. My wife Lynn's pithy response to Dallin Oaks's non-answer and the widespread discomfort among Mormons following this realization that our apostle didn't seem to understand anything at all about the need to say sorry to the victims of your sins was, what a pile of sh**. It's not just a word, it's a concept. I couldn't put it better than that. Today's swear bleep is brought to you courtesy of church-sponsored LDS apologetics misinformation machine, Fair Mormon, in its funky, new, youth outreach, down with the kids, YouTube videos called This Is The Show, or Tits For Short. The wonderful moment you are looking for is where presenter Kwaku L tells a ridiculous and easily refutable lie about Jeremy Runnell's CES letter and pretends to get so riled up that he has to drop an F-bomb. The episode to look for is called The CES Letter. LOL, LOL, LOL. Seer stones are awesome! Two exclamation marks. In the CES letter, Runnels criticizes Joseph Smith for using a Ouija board to translate the Book of Mormon. The only problem is that the Ouija board wasn't created until 1894, and Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon in 1829. Also, no, Joseph didn't use a Ouija board to translate the Book of Mormon. If you believe a bogus lie like that, you probably believe Jussie Smollett, or that you're going to win a cruise on an Instagram giveaway. You're not. Okay, so Ouija board is an in inverted commas in CS letter, which can often be used as scare quotes. Scare quotes denote irony or the phrase so-called. That said, if Jeremy sincerely believed that Joseph was using the Ouija board, then of course he's incorrect. You can make up your own mind on that one. The rest of this section of the CS letter, however, contains no further mention of a Ouija board. Catch them while you can. Someone with a bit of common sense in the bureaucracy will eventually actually check out what's in them and have them removed from YouTube pronto and quickly thrown into the Mormon memory hole, along with Brigham Young's Adam-God doctrine, and that time President Joseph Fielding Smith insisted that man would never walk on the moon. They are proof, not that it was needed, that mainstream Mormon apologists have got so desperate in their mental gymnastics trying to defend the indefensible, even when some of the apostles and their own staff have given up trying to defend it, that they have literally and conceptually gone tits up. We now return you to your normal programming. This is the show, or tits, was scrubbed from the internet in a deluge of terrible reactions from normal church members, and they rebooted as the Midnight Mormons, and then Ward Radio. Other similarly-minded people have joined them in the podcasting firmament, and I have taken the hit of listening to them for more than two minutes at a time in order to discover that they are starting to agree with the critics of the church, that it is alienating the young people 
and the older young people that are their age, and that the root cause is the gerontocracy system for appointing the church's prophet presidents. They know that it is essential now that we somehow take back enough control to break that system, but they don't seem to have any idea about how. So they need to join you, wise and intrepid listeners, and keep listening to this podcast as I map out the game plan for replacing them and that system. We will also hear from some of their like-minded podcasting friends, and as a special treat, also listen to Tim Ballard's Utah psychic, Janet Russon, who ran his operation for years and told Operation Underground Railroad operatives where to look for the sex-trafficked children they continued to not find, despite her best efforts asking a long-dead Nephi for help, and the controversies around which dead Nephi she was consulting. All that fun will be in episode 11D. Even the apologists know that all is not well in Zion, followed by 11E, church and state discipline for apostles who lie and steal. And then we will dance along the final stretch of this journey by paying close attention again to what the general authorities are actually saying to try and stop the exodus, and realise that it isn't that much less ineffectual or crazy than what the end-time preppers and fraudsters have been saying. Just much less exciting 